This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking, who attacked our country? You declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. the grotto for another q a session yeah number five five yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um we got Sorry. some got some good questions from the grotto discord this time yes yeah yeah and hopefully i think we're gonna try to stay a little bit disciplined it's, uh the seven hour two-part two q a <laughs> it's not gonna be seven hours long we're gonna go through it you know it's just gonna be you know so uh yeah hopefully uh you know, uh, it'll be fine. You know, I hope no one feels slighted mm-hmm. that you didn't get a uh, seven-hour answer to your question. But <laughs> a lot of those answers, like you know, were kind of tangential uh, anyway. So, like, I don't think the substance uh-huh. will be at all diminished. Uh, no, let's no, start. Actually, let's go. Yeah, right let's in. do it. You know, let's just let's go for it. Yeah. All right. Number we, yeah, one. We beat around, uh, no beat around the bu- Aust- we won't beat around the bush, as as Mr. O would say. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, Ossificans <laughs> asks uh, thoughts on Coast to Coast AM. Uh, I think we mentioned Coast to Coast AM like when we were first like conceptualizing or like you know when we did our first round of episodes like uh, we were mm-hmm. definitely t- keeping Coast to Coast in mind as a uh, you know uh, lodestar for a uh, touch point you know mm-hmm. or an inspiration uh, for the for the uh, for uh, you know uh, the show the podcast um, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah I mean obviously like Coast to Coast AM is just like a you know a dumping ground for like all sorts of like. Uh, psyop slash like mm-hmm. you know limited hangouts like bizarre stuff yeah like the sounds of hell uh you know <laughs> like uh all sorts of things uh giants like uh you know ne- nef- nephilim like uh giant uh-huh. attack yeah uh, john titor you know. tri- time travelers yeah mm-hmm. that kind that's of stuff definitely uh, like a psyop thing uh yeah least, of course yeah. uh yeah i think, I think that we'll, is a confirmed like psyop pretty much or like some kind of like art projects the john tai tour thing uh mm, yeah that could be a good episode uh, for sure yeah um, yeah some other people have i think crazy days and nights did like a whole thing on it uh recently or last year um a lot of other people have as well yeah i mean general as a general rule i would say that coast to coast am is definitely like some kind of psyop or you know um 
uh, entity. Yeah, well, I don't know that, if it was uh, like meant to be a psyop. I don't know if like Art Bell or whatever is like maybe he is. I guess yeah, I don't know. But, yeah, like, I, really I would don't have know to look about closer into him. I mean, but, I did. I mean, you listened to Coast to Coast, uh, like in the a past, little right? bit, you know. And I listened to a lot of like Coast to Coast knockoffs, you know, like. Uh, uh-huh. I listen to like coast to coast inspired programs like heavily like that type of like late night sure. like paranormal thing uh, you know where uh, yeah it's dark and uh, you yeah know, yeah talking about these random sort of paranormal topics just like a chill mm-hmm. yeah the the sort of pre parasocial podcast experience you know uh, yeah I, and I think there's there... parasocial experience yeah. Uh, for sure yeah. and i i think it, yeah i think it for me it was almost like a gateway drug into sort of the world of like conspiracy podcasts i used to listen to it mm. late at night on the radio uh many years ago when during my like uh moonlighting uh like lift driver phase um yeah before right. i really got like deep into podcasts uh listening to coast to coast am late at night driving around los angeles was a pretty nice vibe and you know i think if you just kind of you know float along with it and don't take it too seriously it's pretty it can be pretty entertaining radio um mm-hmm. i mean there's a kind of like really disciplined like uh kind of openness that like art bell had because i think mm-hmm. this is back when he was still alive um or like a uh, a kind of i mean you could call it a, a gullibility but like a very almost like a principled gullibility like yeah. wow Oh, so you're yeah. saying the dog man, he, he, he yeah. feasts on the souls of, of the wicked, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, that's uh, wild stuff. You know, he's just yeah. kind of like equally, I mean, I guess Joe Rogan probably, I don't know who run, who does like coast to coast AM now that Art Bell is uh, passed on, but I feel like Joe George Rogan Nori is like a similar a energy. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. George Nori. Now George Knapp was the, uh, the, what's it called guy, uh, with the guy from area 51 Lazar. Um, he was like the local news reporter that, uh, yeah, and he's kind of wrapped up in a lot yeah. of like the ufology world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, George Nori, yeah, that's what I was uh, impersonating. Um, he, yeah. it, I feel like Joe Rogan kind of inherited that, like, whoa, like, dude, what? You know, like, yeah. like that kind it's of just saying like, here like, that Muslims <laughs> all have sex with their cousins and they're wiping us out. Like, dude, you're right. Like, you know, look that up, look that up. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but I, I think there is something cozy that that late night radio the callers i think the callers for coast to coast am that was like a really amazing part of it you know um and hearing i think that's something alex jones inherited from coast to coast am uh which i mean was also kind of like a right-wing talk radio kind of staple uh but i think like caller radio like call-in radio is something that was kind of cool and it sucks that i guess you have like twitch streams and stuff like that now but um there was something about you know that just like a you know kind of anonymous voice or you know like lonely you know i think i watched sleepless in seattle lately so that's why i'm thinking because the entire plot hinges around like a a late night call-in love line sorry we're getting off track from ghost to ghost but you know it's like not around anymore i guess this is like our indirect way of like try this is like letters to the uh letters yeah, from yeah, Grotto, yeah. Uh, for us mm-hmm. yes but you know right. I, yeah. I think it's influential well, it would be great. I, we should also the, solicit you know. i mean i'm sure someone would send yeah i mean maybe we should uh also open it up to like uh taking people's like stories about encountering dogmen or whatever or uh bigfoot i mean maybe we should do like one episode at least at some point where people can call in i know this is like you know a long thing down the line like you know but uh long term possibility there must be a way to do it uh yeah i feel like it would be good conjure a digital switchboard that would be kind of yeah 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. we can do something like that. Yeah. I've had a lot of uh, proposals for like alternate episode formats. So that's that's one that definitely should go on the docket. Like having people like come in and express their views about whatever. Like you know, or uh, tell us that they're like currently outside Area Fifty One and like their position is being triangulated <laughs> upon. They only have like two seconds to tell Minutes. us about. <laughs> how they're cloning hitler yeah like, yeah yeah exactly uh, yeah, exactly. exactly you uh, know anybody like that feel free to come on we will have some interview yeah. guests coming up i think in the next yes mm-hmm. we're, yeah, soon, we're, soon. we're breaking that barrier mm-hmm. yes um, we are it's it's in the works it's in the works yeah it's definitely happening we're gonna have <laughs> our, our first guest uh relatively shortly after this episode uh mm-hmm. and uh yeah i think maybe the next public one we will have we will have our first guest which i think will be good um yeah, inshallah. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so that okay. will have yeah. some of that vibe, I guess, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. coast to coast. All right, well. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of sus stuff that goes on on there, but, like, on the whole, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a cultural touchstone, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, can't deny that. Definitely, you yeah. know, we're, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad it came up because I hope people feel like, uh, you know, uh, the same way that coast to coast, the same thing that coast to coast was for us during our various points in life, you know, maybe subliminal jihad can, can be with a, you know, with a twist, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, so, okay, I think right. we move on to number two yes. from Computer yeah. Coward. Um, and they ask, uh, what is Dracularity? What is Dracularity? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Dracularity is, uh, like, uh, oh, I feel like, yeah, I kind of uh, have innovated the concept of Dracularity. There is a, uh, I think as I mentioned in the 9-11 episode, there is a prior uh, example of Dracularity. Uh, I think from Gravity's Rainbow, Pynchon uses the term mm-hmm. Dracularity. Talk about the, yeah. the West's uh, dusty Dracularity. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, Dracularity to me is like vis-a-vis 9-11. I mean, we've talked about the Dracularity of 9-11. Um, yeah. And Dracularity uh, to me is uh, like a sense of this like ineffable uh, uh, sort of uh, predation that or a sense of uh, creatureliness or being at the mercy of a force that can't fully be comprehended due to like its sort of radical foreignness in some way on multiple mm-hmm. levels. Uh, something that has a kind of uh, radical alienness that's that's very threatening, uh, both like in a sort of ontological alienness where it's something that is outside of the the normal sphere of things that maybe are considered to exist, uh, and then that can sometimes be translated into I don't know how uh, great of it like you know a precise definition this is, but you know Dracularity it's an abs- it's an abstruse concept, uh, you know so mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> like uh, but yeah and that can sometimes manifest uh, in that that sort sense of alienness can splinter into kind of an association with other uh you know with a more conventional or mundane expressions of of foreignness such as uh an association with death an association with like uh you know Mm -hmm. uh uh other cultures maybe uh you know with the from a a, from a culturally rooted perspective like you know in the terms of the culture that uh generated the novel dracula you know basically the sort of uh, anglo-british uh culture you know it's sort of a uh, an mm-hmm. era of, of orientalism yeah around, it was very much rooted in the f- yes yeah um mm-hmm. so he's a, like yeah. a swarthy eastern european feudal lord yeah yeah so in Dr- the dracularity of 9 11 
is something that we've talked about uh, before. And I think 9-11, obviously, that's probably the prototypical example in that, you know, this has uh, a sense of uh, this incredible, like, uh, grandeur to uh, the people who experience it as a cultural phenomenon um, and Mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, or a cultural event. And, uh, And that is something that is... Uh, affected through the systematic properties of it and the symbolic properties of it. Um, and it suggests in a way like an agent or uh, a sort of uh, meticulous uh, plot plan in a way that's a very sinister and has a sense of like very deep and immediate threat to the individual from uh you know a uh in a, in a vampire type oh, way think- but anyway so yeah there's a sense uh it creates a sense of the threat in the same way that like you know you could say like jonathan harker in uh dracula's castle or to the girls to mina uh you know uh it creates a sense of personal vulnerability and uh fear of this like uh profoundly alien threat that's kind of interpreted in uh, the language of alienness that we have available, but that language, like that language of evil, that language of, of alienness that we have available, but that language isn't really adequate to it. And the same that with 9/11, you know, all the explanations that we have for like who did it and things like that, they don't seem al- they don't seem adequate, you know. Uh, and there's a sense of something, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, uh, yeah. people Much try like to grapple Mothman with it. Or, uh... Yes. Yeah. Similar to Mothman. I mean, Mothman definitely has dracularity and definitely has Dracula characteristics uh, in terms of the aspect mm-hmm. of blood, the association with the dead. Even the MIB have like a quality of like being almost corpse-like or dead. Uh, you know, the, the robotic uh, automatons, like uh, zombies, even dead. Um, yeah. And, and uh, even yeah, like a so. destruction of a major piece of infrastructure, much like 9/11, the, you know, yeah, collapse of you're a right, bridge. Of course. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the element of and mm-hmm. the element of fate and also, as well. you know, they. You know, that that Russian article that we found that was about the 1999 uh, apartment bombings in Moscow, which they said uh, was accompanied beforehand by the spotting of Mothmen flying around, uh, also Mm -hmm. mentioned, like, rather in in passing that there were Mothmen seen in, like, the morning of (laughs) 9-11, like, in New York. Right, yes, of course. There was a Mothman hovering around the World Trade Center. Um, yeah, well, that type of thing, or the uh, the face of Satan in the clouds and things like that. Um, uh-huh. And uh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, so I definitely think that. And th- there's also, of course, the element of fate that comes in. You know, of course, when people say they see Mothman, but there's also whether or not you include the Mothman thing. Both of those stories have this as a strong aspect of uh, destiny or the convergence of you know we, even bef- we, if you're not even thinking about Mothman, there's all those 9/11 stories about like oh I almost did this you know I almost got on that plane you know like there's uh yep. or this you know this one thing miraculously survived like uh that type of like a hidden hand you know uh mm-hmm. the hand mm-hmm. of uh you know there's forces at play that uh we can't quite apprehend and the attempt to apprehend Mm -hmm. it you know creates this explosion of uh you know or this uh, conflagration of different sort of vocabularies for dealing with it in the same way that like after 9-11 we just had to like go murder like every muslim you know like uh Mm -hmm. you know like yeah whether like like, and it uh, didn't matter what what did uh what did what did tom friedman say we had to go do uh, like go over there and say suck on this Right there in the center of that world. Didn't matter if it was, you know, from we descended American boys and girls from Basra to Baghdad. Yes. You know, I'm sure he said Baghdad, good, but good for um, good for you know, uh, yeah, great. Except, but that's that is the that's the idea. You know, like we needed to send, we needed to go and say suck on this, like to this vague enemy that like was not really like uh, had any logical connection to. It was like this bizarre sort of thing. So yeah, and saying that mm-hmm. the event has dracularity, it has that 
uh, quality to that inspires like that reaction, uh, that sense of personal threat from uh, this like vampiric uh, or uh, supernaturally powerful uh, other. It has a sense of like personal cult, even and cultural threat as well in the same way that Dracula is. Uh, all the it's the it's the quality of Dracula in this, uh, you know. Really, <laughs> I'm trying to think of other things. Yeah. And uh, what are there any other things we describe in the podcast as having Dracularity? Uh, maybe Dracularity, maybe Eliza uh, Lamb. Maybe we've said Eliza Lamb. Yeah, Eliza Lamb definitely similar, does. Similar, I mean, I, yes. I would potentially put like I would potentially put like the JFK assassination in uh, maybe even though there's like a nice clean. I mean, there's. In some of these cases, there are like 9-11. There's a clean explanation for like exactly what happened. But there's just like this pervading sense that something else hidden was happening during that. I mean, just like the like the fixation on this Bruder film and like the trajectories and things that don't add up. Like there's a force that is not seen that, you know, as of yet. Uh, and maybe mm-hmm. it never will be, but there's a sense that there's something deeper mm-hmm. going on. There's definitely other events I think that have, uh, they're not really coming to mind right now, but I, I, I think, yeah, I don't know if I would put kind of, you know, like a certain, maybe like mass shootings or, uh, kind of lone wolf terrorist attacks that have a Dracula. Maybe some of them do that also, I wouldn't say everything that's like maybe a gladio false flag is like has Dracularity. Um, I think it's a, it's yeah. a common feature no, that pops up not. and maybe what, some more suspicious think, things. Yeah. When it's present, you know it. When it's present, you know it. And, mm-hmm, like, uh, mm-hmm. Dracula... Dracularity is a good term to use. Dracula, of course, like, he congeals a lot of qualities of other, like, supernatural things. So when perhaps that's that sense of what uh, would be the word, like, a numinous, almost, a, uh, you know, or a uh, almost... I guess, yeah, the word that's coming to mind is supernatural. I know it's a better word. Uh, but anyway, yeah, like, almost a, a numinous level of threat or something that is, yeah, radically alien uh, and almost in an ontological way that, you know, uh, even mm-hmm. if uh, the vampire per se uh, isn't involved, like, uh, Dracula is a good symbol for a lot of these things it has the sort of cultural component uh you know it has the disease component um and it has like Mm -hmm. the you know uh malicious agent component the sort of conspiracy and plotting component the deviousness the you know uh capital component you know dracula like buying up properties to put his coffins in things like that uh the sexual the sexual (laughs) component this is uh just one thing uh we'll end our discussion of dracularity i'm sure it's a concept we'll come back to but uh you know that's uh you know i feel like maybe people will get an get an idea of what uh we're getting at but uh this is a very interesting little tidbit um there uh we forgot to mention this in the 9-11 episode where we were Mm -hmm. discussing this concept originally there's a tight script of dracula uh, that was in an older typeset of Dracula from the 1980s that, w- that was discovered in the 1980s. Um, and now, you know, some private collector obviously has it. Uh, mm-hmm. And it has a different ending uh, from the one that we have currently. And there's, a, there's an omitted section. And this is what happens in the omitted section. So this is like after Dracula has been defeated. Um, as we mm-hmm. looked, uh, so they're looking out at Castle. They says, uh, Castle Dracula now stood out against the red sky. That line is still in there, but this part is not. As we looked, mm-hmm. there came a terrible convulsion of the earth, so that we seemed to rock to and fro and fell to our knees. At the same moment, with a roar which seemed to shake the very heavens, the whole castle and the rock, and even the hill on which it stood, seemed to rise into the air and scatter in fragments, while a mighty cloud of black and yellow smoke, volume on volume, in rolling grandeur, was shot upward with inconceivable rapidity. Then there was a stillness in nature as the echoes of that thunderous report seemed to come as with the hollow boom of a thunderclap, the long reverberating roll which seems as though the floors of heaven shook. Then down in a mighty ruin, 
following Wednesday rose came the fragments that had been tossed skywards in the cataclysm. And where, from where we stood, it seemed as though one fierce volcano burst uh, had satisfied the need of nature, and that the castle and the structure of the hill had sunk again into the void. We were so appalled with the suddenness and grandeur that we forgot to think of ourselves. Wow. Mm. Wait, so uh, so a volcano explodes and, like, uh, Dracula's castle sinks into the earth? Well, the volcano is, like, uh, you know, symbolic. Like, the dra- castle just suddenly, like, has a controlled demo type of thing where it just, like... Uh, you know, he says the volcano burst he's just means, like, you know, how loud the sound is. The explosion, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So, basically, gotcha. his castle explodes at the end of the original ending. But it was taken out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, maybe people, maybe mm-hmm. they thought it was a rip-off of Fall of the House of Usher is something that I'm seeing suggested uh, on this page that I'm reading it from. Uh, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Um, so, just a little interesting tidbit mm-hmm. uh, that I remember from... Uh, you know, uh, my general knowledge of, of Dracula, uh, yeah, very reminiscent, of course, of, of 9-11, uh, and very intriguing, mm-hmm. that same sort of play of uh, invisibility and omission and absence, uh, where, like, this is the deleted content that, like, parallels so uh, well the, the actual event, you know, it could be a description almost of, of that day. Uh, it really is, it's a controlled demo, you know, it just collapses for an elder. Mm. Oh my god, yeah. 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 Yeah, wow. To quote Subliminal Jihad's uh, maybe a second favorite rapper after K-Rhino, um, I was watching <laughs> the towers, and though I wasn't the closest, I saw them fall to the earth like they was full of explosives. No. Mortal uh, wait. Um, uh, oh, right, right, of course. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Oh, yeah, great. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, I, that's, I think, yes. uh, good for now on Dracularity. Okay, um, yes, we can move on. All right, you want to move on yeah, to number three? we're going, three? we're going. Yeah, all we're right, read it. Yeah, why don't you read that one? Uh, you know. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, or um, I, I guess I can. Uh, uh, yeah, I given guess you can go. recent yeah, discussion on yeah, we're alternating. Uh, given recent discussion on '60s, '70s bands, what are your thoughts on David Bowie? Uh, I don't really mm. like David Bowie, uh, but I don't really know if like really like no, I like I don't. I don't. I really don't. Oh, like I. Okay. I all right. I well, no. Have. Preach. Like, what, uh, do, are you what, uh, are you down what, with him? What did, like, I'm surprised. Uh, uh, I mean, I like I like a lot of David Bowie's music. However, I'll get to it in a second. He there's some sus, a lot of sus things going on with David Bowie. Uh, but like, I don't know. Musically, I mean, no. I mean, I I think I was I was probably over the last decade. Uh, I got. I had various phases of kind of like getting into various albums of Bowie, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that, you know, obviously, you know, it's like very critically acclaimed and everything. Um, I think Mm -hmm. uh, I liked his album Low. Uh, The song Vorshava is pretty uh, evocative and haunting. Uh, That was inspired by his train trip through uh, Poland on his way to a a concert in Moscow. Uh, This is like Mm -hmm. one of his Berlin albums. I mean, Heroes, I think Heroes is a great song, but uh, I feel like he's kind of slandering the anti-fascist protection barrier a little bit in that song uh, in a way that... Mm -hmm. uh, triggers me a little bit um <laughs> but uh but no i mean i think he was like a, a sonically adventurous uh you know perform artist basically um i think his like funk stuff in the 70s you know like young americans um i'm kind of like his glam rock stuff is kind of like the least interesting to me 
I mean, I think like Ziggy Stardust is a good album, but just like, I don't know. It's like, it feels very like HBO vinyl. Like he was so wild, like dressing up in like a spacesuit, And like, he was a character from Mars. And I was just like, okay, cool. Whatever. Um, I think that, uh, I think even like his 80s stuff has like some jams uh, on the, uh, like the Let's Dance album. Uh, you know, I think his last album that was released like either right before or after he died, uh, Black Star, like was really creepy and I don't like it. And it felt like a ritual or something like he was like uh, preparing for. I mean, you could say, oh, he's preparing for death and like it's an artistic statement, blah, blah, blah. But I remember that was like the beginning of like the 2016 just like string, like the slaughter of sorry, not slaughter, you know, the unfortunate passing of many uh, like A-list musicians that died in several months. You know, you had, mm-hmm. you had David Bowie, then you had Glenn Fry. Uh, you know, big, big L there. And then you had Prince. Uh, and then I forget there was one other person. Wasn't there a country star? Merle Haggard. Yeah. Merle Haggard also mm-hmm. died uh, around that time. And, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it's just a creepy album. I don't know what other way to put it. The video for it is like super creepy. Mm-hmm. It feels satanic. Like, uh, I don't know. It's like weird. Like, it feels like an OTO ritual, basically. It feels like Kenneth Anger. You know, it's like, yeah. in the valley of like it's, it's like really spooky, spooky, and like sus. And I don't know. There's also the big thing about Bowie that I think is a little bit complicated is his like thin white Duke phase in the 70s, where he was doing like mountains of cocaine and started dressing like a fascist, like like a a trendy like fascist european noble kind of and then said in some interviews that like hitler was like a huge rock star like about as good as jagger and then ambiguously maybe gave like a nazi salute when he was like driving his car through london uh which he claims was like you know is a freeze frame taken out of context but he started like flirting with some of this like kind of, almost like Julius Avola and he was also you know yeah, really obsessed with like the Kabbalah at that time he had Station yeah, to Station he, right. that one he album he was definitely in the same milieu of like Led Zeppelin like the Rolling Stones being all into Magic Cal stuff and like yes. Gnosticism like uh, you know uh, yeah I, I also weird, believe like, he's yeah. uh, if if we want to go there you'd have to cancel just about every 70s rock star but I believe um, he slept mm-hmm. with the same groupie uh, oh, I yeah, think it Laurie, was Maddox. Laurie Maddox. That was the thing. Yeah, that was a big thing, like, uh, you know, around the time of his death. It's like, yeah, he, like, slept with this 15-year-old girl. Like, he took her virginity, like, when he was, like, what, 40? Like, uh... Yeah, I'm looking right here. She wrote an article about it. And she actually wrote an article about it, like, before he died um, in 2015. Mm-hmm. So I actually... Right. I forgot. I, I forgot if this, like... You know, I mean, this was, like, pre-Me Too um, and right. pre-his yeah, she was death. Like, and I forget you know, if he... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like yeah, I forget like, if like like, you know, like what if people really like really went after Bowie for this or mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know like uh, the yeah like uh, I I don't know if what Lori Maddox's take on it was I feel like maybe she was like uh, you know it was fine like uh, it wasn't bad uh, you know in retrospect like that's what she like her position on it was but it's still like you know not uh, I don't know I'm not like super down with that that conduct uh, really like for someone to just like. You know, the circumstances of it as she describes it, like, I don't, they don't check out well with me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she does, she wrote this article in The Thrillist. Yeah, I lost my virginity to David Bowie. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, she had, she lost her virginity that night and had her first threesome, I guess, with, uh, um, 
I don't know, maybe this girl, uh, uh, Bowie's wife, uh, Angie. Um, yeah, uh, or no, not it wasn't Angie. She came the next morning. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, like, what do you do? Uh, I guess they asked, you know, uh, she described the whole incident. And they said, still, you were a 15 year old kid and he was an adult man with a lot of experience, power and drugs. You don't see any problem with that now. She says, I was an innocent girl, but the way it happened was so beautiful. I remember him looking like God and having me over a table who wouldn't want to lose their virginity to David Bowie. They asked, but did it ever feel like there was something unusual about it? And she said, no, you need to understand my life has never been normal. I've always been special. I always felt like the universe was taking care of me. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, she said it was not that different. Like her older sister was fucking low riders and surfers. Her dad was deceased. I was with rock stars. Besides, I had been the last virgin in my high school. Um, in some ways I was not different than one of the Kardashians at that point. You could say I was viewed as a groupie. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that's her experience. Uh, and then, you know, then he got a call then she got a call from jimmy page after that she thought it was a prank at first i guess i remember jimmy i think jimmy page did something really weird like he virtually kind of like uh his their manager peter grant um who was he she says was like 700 pounds and scary as hell um fat phobic um uh, uh <laughs> no, no sorry I guess he's exaggerating yeah, uh, yeah, maybe exaggerating right. but yeah he showed yeah. up uh in a he showed up at the rainbow room one night which i think we've referenced before uh and he said on the sunset strip and he said you're coming with me young lady i wound up in a limo and didn't know where i was going but it was to the hyatt i felt like i was being kidnapped i got taken to a room and there was jimmy page he wore a wide-brimmed hat and he held a cane it was perfect he mesmerized me i fell in love instantly uh, zeppelin was starting its tour right. for houses of the holy and jim jim Jimmy stationed himself in L.A. The band had a private jet called the Starship, and he flew back and forth from the gigs. But I was underage and couldn't travel with him, so I would stay in the room and wait for Jimmy. At that point, I was 15 and totally in love with this man. I put him on a pedestal. It became so serious that Jimmy asked my mom for, permis for permission to be with me. And they said, wait, he asked your mom? Did he ever seem at all nervous about having sex with a minor? And she said, looking back, he had to be afraid of getting sued for being with such a young girl. So maybe he thought it would be better if he cleared it with my mother and told her he was in love with me. But I do think he was in love with me. He brought me beautiful maxi dresses to wear, and he wouldn't let me do drugs or anything. Um, and uh, wow, he wouldn't let yeah, I don't know. They yeah. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, um, yeah, that's a little uh, bit sus to me. Uh, this is an, like I'm reading this Jezebel article about it, which, you know, it's ironic from Jezebel. Like, you know, he talks about how like David Bowie uh, like propositioned this girl, uh, Lori Maddox, when she was 14. And uh, she turns uh -huh. out Jezebel's like Maddox had implicitly declined the encounter at 14 and notes no pushback in her account. Like, OK, thank you. Like, oh, how nice that he didn't, you know, get the pushback. Uh, and they quote uh, this thing from uh, Rebecca Solnit, uh, the perpetually mm -hmm. wise Rebecca Solnit, uh, which I think some of which I think is actually insightful. Uh, she says the dregs of the sexual revolution were what remained. It was really sort of a counter revolution. Guys arguing that since sex was beautiful and everyone should have lots, everything goes and they could go at anyone. Young women and girls with no way to say no and no one to help them stay out of harmful dudes way. The culture was sort of snickeringly approving of the pursuit of underage girls, and the legal argument doesn't carry that much weight. Smoking pot is also illegal. It's about the immorality of power imbalance and rape culture. It was completely normalized, like child marriage in sometimes in places. I kind of, like, object to that 
I like comparison just because like not to say child marriage is good obviously like you know I am completely opposed to the idea of child marriage but mm-hmm. I will say that like marriage is different mm-hmm. from like you know uh having sex with a 14 year old girl for like one night like you know while you're like stoned or like high on coke like in you know in like a groupie situation yes. or like uh, yeah I, I would like, quibble with know. that as well that like uh yeah like uh, I mean because of like the inherent patriarchal dynamics of of marriage that it's like basically as bad as what jimmy page yeah i would say well there weren't like you know there weren't mores around like you know people in the same way that like you know uh for instance like in the prophet muhammad's time it was normal to like have sex at puberty or like to get married to people like you know at the time that you became like you know sexually mature uh then Uh like in the 70s it was all like you know same thing you know 1400 years ago uh 50 years ago (laughs) no big difference uh yeah right i mean this was Um, uh yeah Hmm. Well, Um, interesting that calling it a counter-revolution as well. Yes, Um, that's what I find interesting is the idea that, like, yeah, the sexual sexual counter-revolution, although, you know, some might take issue with that and say that was in a way part of the sexual revolution and that, like, to make a distinction between, like, the misogynistic, like, patriarchal, like, uh, rape-driven aspects and the good aspects. For sure. You know, isn't really fair, Uh, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. I would go a step further and say uh, it was all a (laughs) counter-revolution. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's either all one all or all of it was kind of revolutionary. Not some of the things that were ensconced in it, but like the way it was done was all for like counter revolutionary ends. Like Gloria Steinem was like sitting there, like Langley, like, you know, getting her like, you know, assignment to go and uh, so, and like spin yeah, it I, in a particular way and, and all that stuff. I really don't like the instrumentalization of this narrative to defend Bowie. Like, you know, uh, which is like you know something that like you know you might use to explain like why we shouldn't bomb like you know an afghan tribal village like you know uh because it's like she says it doesn't make it okay but it means that unlike a man engaged in the pursuit of a minor today there is virtually no discourse about why that might be wrong i am gonna say that there was it wasn't discourse from within that group but certainly in the 70s there were people who were saying that that was wrong and like indicting that entire culture for the sexual permissiveness like yeah they were just squares you know that was the problem yeah, yeah. you know like exactly. not that there was they no were... discourse of that you know it's not like right? she's they were to, over she's, 30 and not she's to be basically trusted. using the she's basically using like yeah a defense like that people use like for not applicable she's like trying to defend david bowie with something that you could you know talk about like you know uh mary and joseph or something you know like uh it's like you know like uh, oh it's just a cultural difference like no like there were people who said that it was wrong like people were yeah and and like, we're talking i mean we're really getting like 14 i mean you know uh it's like that is uh and and you're right like in the the hollywood milieu like perhaps i think there was a kind of like licentious like mm-hmm, uh yeah. libertine mm-hmm. libertinism that was uh kind of like in in certain ways and that would like not be in today or you would just be like a client of jeffrey epstein's basically but it's like it's interesting like it's literally the same like kind of uh age range and a lot of the same kind of like dynamics of like these groupies in the 70s and of course you know frank zappa had a whole group of groupies um like the gtos and speaking of that just as like a, a little i don't know to clarify I found a little medium uh, post here that talked about a uh, Pamela DeBar, you know, that who we talked about in Dave McGowan's episode, the Dave McGowan episodes, um, who was one of the groupies who uh, was, 
you know, uh, I lived with Zappa for a while and uh, was with Jimmy Page. And so I guess this person um, uh, wrote that in Pamela DeBar's celebrated memoirs, I'm with the band, they contradict Laurie Maddox's account. Um, by late 1972, Miss DeBar, age 24 at the time, had been in a long-standing relationship with Jimmy Page. She ended her relationship with him, however, before moving in with Frank and Gail Zappa, for whom she'd previously worked as a nanny, in February 1973, precisely because of Page's ongoing relationship with Maddox. And from the book, it quotes, I realized how desperate I was for attention and affection I, I was uh, when good old Led Zepp came to town and I flopped around with Jimmy again. The first night was wonderful, even though he had started to ingest many harmful substances. But the second night he left me stranded in front of the whiskey like a floundering faded Jezebel while he sleezed off with a 13 year old nymphet called Lori Lightning Maddox's modeling pseudonym I sat around all night with the rest of the group getting pissed and they all agreed I was too good for that sort of treatment oh well and uh, the author writes, uh, importantly, this occurred before her move into the Zappa's home in February 1973, and therefore well before David Bowie's March 73 Long Beach concerts. Between Miss Maddox's own accounts and Miss DeBar's memoirs, it increasingly seems that the fact that the underage Miss Maddox was already in a relationship with Jimmy Page well before she claims to have lost her virginity to David Bowie cannot be seriously disputed. So mm. in that case, like, I guess she was in a relationship with Jimmy Page at 13, which is Damn. like, do you, also, I, I do want to know this and it's like not necessarily to excuse Bowie. And I guess like we shouldn't stray too far from Bowie here, but no, like, why is Jimmy Page, why is Jimmy Page like never been canceled? Like it's weird. Well, it's like, he's literally, sa Bowie, literally a Satanist. Like, like him, even though there's all sorts of like, you know, uh, like things that he could be canceled for, honestly. In addition to like yeah. age gap stuff, age gap discourse stuff, um, <laughs> like uh, yeah, it's yeah, just like it's, saying, it's weird like, that like I, I love cause Hitler I, I, or whatever. It was just a joke, yeah. you know. Uh, I love the you mm -hmm. know. Uh, yeah. Just I mean, yeah, he was always politically I, I, slippery. Yeah. I guess you know, yeah. Well, back much. in the '70s, it was just considered to be a hilarious joke to just say like I love Hitler. I guess like uh, yeah, I'm a fascist. You know, yeah, like actually, so lol, funny. I'm a fascist. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh huh. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, just and it was around the same though. time that punk was coming about. Even though he didn't, he wasn't really doing punk. Um, I'd say some of his mm -hmm. stuff has like a a sort of like proto and post punk quality to it around the late seventies. But that was also like a British trend that really pushed this like like ironic Nazi iconography out in like the music world and for the kind of the first time since World War Two. And Bowie, in his own kind of special way was also like uh experimenting with fascist aesthetics and maybe even some fascist ideas though i guess he ultimately like stopped doing so much cocaine and like pulled back from it but it's still it's an interesting uh especially you know the, the his trilogy of berlin albums which um i don't know like you know uh it's just i don't know um is it the kind of thing to say like oh bowie's a nazi and all his music is like fascist uh i i wouldn't quite go that far <laughs> But uh, uh, I think uh, I think he would he would he would give him the thumbs down. Um, but uh, he probably would. Yeah. He probably I've never would, listened to but... his album uh, Station to Station. Uh, you know, I don't know. It's if, interesting. Uh, like Wild is the Wind, I think, is a pretty good song. Uh, he was doing like a lot of cocaine when he made that album in L.A. Yes, he so I guess he as, was like really out of it. Yes, he just it's uh, apparently inspired by. Uh, Nazi Grail mythology, uh, Nietzscheanism, obviously, uh, Crowley, mm -hmm. uh, Kabbalah, um, 
and mm-hmm. yeah word and it's yeah. Uh, uh yeah so i mean take i i think maybe i think if we go he might pop up in some further exploration yeah, of like the like music a, scene of the, yeah, of the cold war like era that. and the british uh influence on it and yeah uh yeah yeah but, i think maybe yeah. uh i uh, it's uh that they're the, yeah. the, I, I'd like to look a little more into like yeah his like spiritual fascinations. I'm I do sure remember be, somebody like, some uh, stuff coming up. I can only imagine uh, like you know uh, labyrinth. Like what was going on with that? Uh, yeah, what was up right? with the labyrinth? Something I mean stuff. that cod piece was seared in my memory from the time I was like four years old. Uh, like you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, like uh, oh yeah, actually the man uh, who fell to earth would be good because he that director did a previous movie starring Mick Jagger that I think we brought up. Oh, like where Persona? It, uh, is that what I'm thinking of? Or, yes, uh, it was. Pers- yeah. I think it or, or, or uh, Persona or something like that. Or it was Persona. I, I guess like uh, I think that might have been the Bergman movie or was it Performance? Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, Performance. Um, yeah performance um, exactly so the yeah. i believe the director of performance then you know he did mick jagger and performance in 1970 then he went on to do um the man who fell to earth and i forget yeah, what Nicholas the uh, um yeah yeah and i forget there was one other like sus connection to the man who fell to earth that i don't know if it was like a to palma connection i'm kind of blanking like it on came it right up now in weird scenes in laurel canyon but maybe i'm making that yeah but i do seem like uh feel like there was oh oh no i now i remember what it was uh papa john phillips did the soundtrack for it oh i see yeah uh word yeah uh, yeah yeah uh, i guess yeah and, that was when know, he that was when mcgowan uh, said he sobered up long enough to do the soundtrack for this movie right. so same old characters hmm you yes know. and of course there's like you know et themes all about you know yeah you know shit like that you know star star yeah. man I'm the star man. Uh, you know, <laughs> can you hear me? Major yes. Tom? Uh huh. Yeah. Weird, like space age, mood age daydream, which I, I thought was very appropriately mm-hmm. used in the We Live in Public documentary, and I think we put it in our episode. Like uh, spiders from Mars, uh, Ziggy Stardust. Yes, yeah, spiders. Uh, that's us. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. I don't want to think uh, about spiders on Mars. A little bit um, of a uh, uh, content. Yes, there. exactly. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, we got to get to that uh, one. Talk about cryptids. Uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, that's the only. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, really something. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, 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 there, there's even I, I did hear. Uh, maybe we'll we'll leave it here. I did have. There's one anecdote I heard from like a a, a British like uh, a film director that I I knew like years ago who, like he was friends with one of the guys from the band Yes, you know that kind of like mm. prog rock band, and they had toured with David Bowie, and he he told this guy once that like when they were on tour with Bowie, Bowie had a separate tour bus that was completely full of just books. And like mm. Bowie, I guess this, I don't know when this was, so maybe it was like after his like huge drug phase, but basically like every night he would like go onto his like library tour bus and like read like, you know, like old texts and things like that, or like <laughs> magic house stuff, or just like uh, like that. Right. I don't know. It felt kind of like MIB is like weird, like Alien yeah. Man, you know, okay. like Starman. Uh, like he just he just brought this like gigantic like supply of books with them to like read things, and I guess that informed his music. And he was very kind of like uh, disciplined and like uh, kind of you know intense about that so i don't know take from that what you will um but is uh is scary monsters and super creeps like a whistleblowing thing about reptoids like that's what i want to know i'm like, not familiar that, with that one is uh, that a, a song never heard that song i feel like you've heard it on the like scary monsters you know uh 
No, I don't. Uh, that's a Bowie uh, song. I never heard of it. Yeah, uh, it was a whole album actually. I think. Uh, yeah, you're right. Was, wow, that yeah. I guess I missed that one. I got. I still have some. Uh, I have some Bowie. Oh, it's a 1980 album. Wow, it's right after the Berlin trilogy. Okay, I guess I have one more uh, Bowie yeah, album to yeah. listen to. Uh, it sounds kind of sus, like Ashes uh, to Ashes. Yeah, yes. and Brian Eno too. I forgot he did all that stuff with Brian Eno, who also is somebody who's like work I admire, but also might be sus yeah um, <laughs> but maybe we'll get to him one day yeah i mean yeah i don't really like david bowie to be honest but again i have like you know as i mentioned before I, I have pretty bad music tastes which i think we'll get to again when we get to the question about tool but uh well uh, yeah. <laughs> do you love tool are you a tool, did, are you tool i head? did love tool i you know i haven't like i did love tool i definitely went through a period of time of like you know being a big tool listener anyway we'll get to that in oh time, man but, you were that sad um, little like claymation figure like living in a furnace or something like um i don't really know what you're talking about but uh you didn't even the Video. I mean, I feel like that's like a millennial uh, like MTV staple of like uh, my yeah, childhood. It's like uh, that like depressing um, claymation video. Um, but anyways, uh, uh, we, we'll we'll save that um, um, for that. Yeah. Um, okay. We're, uh, okay. We'll yeah. move on now. So, we'll move on. Okay. We'll move on. Uh, uh, number four. Um, I'll uh, I'll read this. Uh, this is from Marximum. Considering the um, considering the recent news, I'm not actually sure uh, what that's referring to. Uh, What's your thoughts on the Dyatlov Pass incident in 1959? Uh, I know this is a real normy one, so apologies. Um, this is not a normy one. This is a, not this is a good question. Necessarily normy. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is. No, I don't think too many like people. Cold, I, I think it's yeah. been brought up in the grotto before. People have asked us what we think about because it kind of, you know, it's. I guess. I think it's it is normie, kind of natural SJ territory. It's, it's of, normy you know, by like you know the standards of people who are interested in. I guess that's what made by normy is in scare quotes. It's like normy for like the X board on 4chan uh like <laughs> but that's not necessarily normie in general uh but anyway yeah so yeah I do yeah think that like the recent news of like the Dyatlov like past incident being debunked is bullshit like definitely not mm. like uh and i don't think that people who like said that like it was actually kind of weird that people jumped on it to say like it's been debunked when like uh like oh, okay, that's what like, he's referring to, is the recent debunking I of it. I think so, I think so. Okay, but I see, yeah, just from January of this year, wow. Yes, but I think even the people who, like, you know, proposed, like, an avalanche of, like, an avalanche said, like, you know, not only is the avalanche hypothesis not new, but, like, they weren't saying that it was definitely an avalanche. They were just proposing that explanation. Like, they weren't, mm. they didn't claim to have, like, debunked it affirmatively. Uh... Yeah, you know, I, 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 yeah. I, I'm seeing a Nat Geo article here that said already uh, I'm skeptical right off the bat. It says a 62 year old adventure mystery that's prompted conspiracy theories around Soviet military experiments, yetis, and even extraterrestrial contact may have its best, most sensible explanation yet. One found in a series of avalanche <laughs> simulations based in part on car crash experiments and animation used in the movie Frozen. Um, already I don't trust it. Uh, it's an well, elegant computer model. Disney. I didn't yeah, pick up on that. Uh, uh, yeah, all right. chill out. That's hmm. bizarre. Uh, what? Like, oh, okay, they created that, like a you know a realistic physics engine to model an avalanche for Frozen, and then they're like, let's what? All right, okay. What? Yeah, uh, uh, debunked. Uh, uh, debunked. Yeah, debunked by the yeah. Frozen animation. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, mm, okay. 
So yeah, that's, that's this was pu- published in the Nature Journal in January of this year. So that's uh, mm-hmm. basically, you know, what they're saying now is, uh, uh, I guess, uh, yeah. For anybody who doesn't know, uh, the I can read just a really brief summary of like what we're talking about. Um, All right. So uh, from Smithsonian, this is like uh, referencing the recent you know, paper, but in February 1959, university student Mikhail Sharavin made an unexpected discovery on the slopes of the Ural Mountains. Dispatched as a member of a search party investigating a group of nine experienced hikers' disappearance, Sharavin and his fellow re- rescuers spotted the corner of a tent peeking out beneath the snow. Inside, they found supplies, including a flask of vodka, a map, and a plate of salo, white pork fat, all seemingly abandoned without warning. A slash on the side of the tent suggested someone had used a knife to carve out an escape route from within, while footprints leading away from the shelter indicated that some of the mountaineers had ventured out in sub-zero temperatures barefoot or with only a single boot and socks. Perplexed, the search party decided to toast to the missing group's safety with the flask in their tent. Uh, Quote, we shared the vodka between us. There were 11 of us, including the guides. We were about to drink it when one guy turned to me and said... Best not drink to their health, but to their eternal peace. Uh, Over the next several months, rescuers recovered all nine hikers' bodies. Per BBC News, two of the men were found barefoot and clad only in their underwear. While the majority of the group appeared to have died of hypothermia, at least four had sustained horrific and inexplicable injuries, including a fractured skull, broken ribs, and a gaping gash to the head. One woman, 20-year-old Lyudmila Dubanina, was missing both her eyeballs and her tongue. The wounds, said a doctor who examined the bodies, were equal to the effect of a car crash. Um, according to documents, and uh, it's one of the one of Russia's most enduring mysteries to this day, spawning conspiracy theories as varied as a military cover-up, a UFO sighting, an abominable snowman attack, radiation fallout from secret weapons tests, and a clash with the indigenous Monsi people. Um, but as Robin George Andrews reports from National Geographic, new research published in the journal Communications, Earth, and Environment points towards a more sensible explanation, drawing on advanced <laughs> computer modeling to posit that an unusually timed avalanche sealed the hiker's fate. Uh, they say right there the lead author says, we do not claim to have solved the Dyatlov Pass mystery, as no one survived yes. to tell the story. Yeah, but we show the yes. plausibility of the avalanche hypothesis for the first time. Okay, so this is like, you know, uh, Elisa yeah. Lamb like, evaded the alarms and like climbed to the roof and like decided to climb on top of the thing and nothing weird happened uh the end mm-hmm. <laughs> talk about right. there is a dracularity speaking of dracularity there is a dracularity yeah, going on here there's a good example a great example because there is yeah, yeah wow how fortuitous a perfect yeah, example we didn't even think about where it, yes. like perhaps it is plausible based on the model offered by frozen that uh <laughs> you know um like uh, yeah like uh that the damage of an avalanche uh, to the human body and like catabatic winds could have like caused you know the, the snow to like uh be propelled by funnels of air uh down to the campsite um and then like you know due to like whatever it's called like when you become so hypothermic that you like experience heat uh they like undress themselves mm-hmm. and like left the tent yeah. and wandered out into the snow like but that does not like seem adequate it seems like a yeti did it uh yeah you know, it seems I, like a yeti did it uh well yeah because um, i mean if they were if they're suffering from hypothermia in their tent i mean they had like they did have clothes with them but presumably they had brought clothing that would allow them to like not freeze to death so like it and if the yeah, avalanche wasn't there was the also thing like radioactivity that, like on at least yeah which is there. part of the thing it's like oh nuclear fallout or something like that so i don't know if they got if they felt like the burning of radiation did they like take off all their clothes and you know run into the snow maybe but then know. why would they have gashes like that why would her eyes and her tongue be missing that is 
bizarre. I mean, I guess, like, um, in the, they could have, like, you know, if they were dead for days, like, predators could have gotten them, like, bird. You that's know, true. Like that, but I, I feel like maybe that accounts for, like, the eyes or the tongue, but I feel like it doesn't account for, like, the gash on the head and things like I mean, it's just, like, a that's a... It's a lot of uh, coincidences compounded on top of each other to basically make the story like fit. And while I can't, you know, honestly uh, say uh, that, you know, no, that's not true. It didn't happen. It could have plausibly happened that way. But I guess that's kind of what you're getting at in the essence of Dracularity is the normative explanation, even if technically plausible, is un- deeply unsatisfying and feels yes. uh, incomplete. And- Right, yes, and that, like, you know, even beyond that, I would say that, like, the fact of it being unsatisfying, like, is legitimate. It's not just, like, a psychological phenomenon, like, uh, mm-hmm. or whatever. It's not just, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, something where it's, like, people being irrational and, like, wanting to, like, For have sure. conspiracy theories. Like, there's something, mm-hmm. like, important, like, in that intuition of Dracularity. Like, it's a primal, um, you know, uh, 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 reflex that we have to help us detect Draculas. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, not yeah. Be, like, I think it's ignored. a honed, uh, uh, I think it's a, yes. a, a deeply honed, like, skill, uh, that humans, uh, possess, or like a, you know, yes. a, a deeply rooted tendency to, uh, of how you deal with the unexplainable and how you process mm-hmm. it. And, you know, yes. I don't think humans survived all these, you know, tens of thousands of years by just like trusting science all the time and not having to grapple with ambiguity and not knowing and come up with ways to still function and operate uh in that environment of unknowing and things of that nature like there's like if you want to be like reductive like there i think there's an evolutionary benefit to being paranoid basically yeah well i think that's very well put in a way because like yes i mean there's both it's a i think that a good way of saying it that there's a it's a fundamental aspect of the human experience that is not something mm-hmm. that, you know, in the same way people are not going to just, like, become rational and not have, like, this mm-hmm. experience of, like, calling to uh, a uh, or a sense of the uncanny or a calling to, like, a sense of, uh, you know, something uh, ontologically other. Um, I think that, you know, like, yeah, but of course it's also, it can be helpful, it can give us uh, insight into, like, our condition as human beings or as, like, you know... Uh, uh, conscious people experiencing life on this planet. I mean, it also can obviously be dangerous, you know, like it can, uh, like uh, in Salem, for instance, like, uh, you know, even though there, as we have discussed in the past, like, uh, might have been something to these witchcraft accusations, like it wasn't good to uh, <laughs> yeah. kill like a six year old, um, you know, uh, maybe like yeah or like you know like 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 sentencing like half of like the Politburo to death uh in like 1937 like like like, was there something going on probably there was but like maybe you know you don't want to let the the paranoia get out of control um Mm -hmm. you know because then that can unleash some things uh or if it's like very consciously weaponized uh paranoia like that which like nazi germany weaponized obviously can have horrible consequences uh you know basically uh when you incorporate it but but Mm -hmm. you know i think at the same time it's something that we have to live with and grapple with like we're not going to eradicate uh the kind of um like this kind of skepticism and paranoia and like not uh, yeah it's just like 
it's uh, it's gonna be you yeah. know fun not really but like uh watching them try to like you know make society more like this and just be you know uh rational all the time yeah the but aspect of I, the, uh, nothing is unknown everything is understood like you know we know everything like you know or like you know uh well, it's just natural that human beings want the unknown. You know, it's like the god of the gaps. Something that was never real. Uh, you know, something that no, like that was never <laughs> a reason why people believed in God was because they couldn't explain, like, you know, I mean, not that everyone, I mean, according to Noam Chomsky, we still don't understand why water comes out of the faucet. Uh, but, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's my new favorite uh, thing to, yeah, I know. my new favorite little factoid that we don't, uh, according we to We might Noam have Chomsky. to do a whole episode on, on how does I water just, come I, out I, of the we faucet. We need to have a physicist come on the show and explain to me how water comes out of the faucet. Like, you know, I feel like I could say like, yeah, like there's some kind of, uh, you know, when the valve is released, like, you know, when the faucet is turned or, uh, you know, moved in that direction, some kind of uh, pressure changes within the pipe that forces the water from like whatever reservoir it's in. You know, I'm not a plumber or like, you know, a physicist by any stretch, but out of the faucet, which I feel like to me is a- um, my, my very unscientific, uninformed guess as to why it happened is like the first thing that pops up on Google. And I guess it is like not a mystery at all. Like the uh, water, water in the pipes of your house faucet? is held at a higher pressure. Spoiler alert. It's held at a pressure higher than the pressure of the air around you. The pressure difference is what causes the water to come up from the ground level pipes coming to your house and out through the faucet. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's saying that like we don't know why pressure works that way. Maybe there's like a deeper thing going on. But I, right. I would love to have a physicist come on and explain. Uh, yeah, who knows what? No, you know, or hydraulic engineer, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, like, uh, you know, it's not just like a yeah. Ex but uh, you know, that's never been like the you know this whole thing of like oh people like mysteries, you know, and that's why they choose to believe these things. Like it's not really uh, no, that. Like liking it's, them uh, and being you know, like there, a, are, and there are mysteries. There are mysteries. Like you yeah. know, you cannot I make them go being away. interested like, in something exist. is not. Not a frivolous um, uh, thing in and of itself. I, I think being interested in mysteries is very different than just like you like them, like you like uh, romance novels or like yeah. 80s action movies or something and, like you know you just love a, you yeah. love a good mystery uh but there's a reason right. why we love mysteries and we're drawn to those types of stories and narratives is because it mirrors something very deep uh about the our reality and yes, always has and yeah, and some mysteries, like, you know, I mean, once a mystery is solved, it's no longer a mystery. And uh, some things simply are mysteries. Like it's they a history. Just, you know, uh, wow. Yeah. Uh, um, like, that's my first book. It's going to be self published on. Uh, <laughs> on uh, wow. Um, um, on Lulu. Yeah, you can pick it up. Uh, <laughs> but, um, from Lulu. mystery to history. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that that sounds like your History Channel show or something, or like Discovery right, yeah. Travel oh, Channel, like you know. Anyway, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, well, I just like you know, uh, this is an I feel like this is an ontology heavy Q and A, but you know, mysteries are an ontological thing. Like you know, it's not just that like people want to make things into mysteries. Like they are in fact mysteries. They are mysterious. Like uh, there's something about mm -hmm. them fundamental about these events like really events like happenings uh experiences that fundamentally have yes. that quality and like you can't like take it away uh by going into the fucking frozen computer program uh <laughs> you know yeah no matter no matter like, what you know uh sour grapes <laughs> over getting debunked by the imagineers but <laughs> i i stand by it um 
Yeah, I, I yeah. yeah, I would say like no matter what the aunt cops try to do to police the uh, ontological boundaries of you know mysterious questions and situations, uh, people are going to like take a peek. You know, they can say nothing to see here, move along all they want, but you know, it's just a, another concatenation of Pinocchios. Nothing to see here, but uh, I think people are going to want to look. They're going to want a rubberneck. And uh, it, it, it cannot be dispensed with so easily. Uh, yes, here's another uh, good uh, Dracula quote. Uh, this is from the actual book, so, you know, you'll notice the castle is still standing uh, in this passage. Mm-hmm. In the summer of this year, we made a journey to Transylvania and went over the old ground, which was and is to us so full of vivid and terrible memories. Uh, you know, this is from the very end. It was almost impossible to believe the things which we had seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears were living truths. Every trace of all that had been was blotted out. The castle stood as before, reared high above a waste of desolation. When we got home, we were talking of the old time, which we could all look back on without despair, for Godalming and, Stu- and Seward are both happily married. I took the papers from the safe where they had been ever since our return so long ago. We are struck with the fact that in all the mass of material of which the record is composed, there is hardly one authentic document. Nothing but a mass of typewriting, except for the later notebooks of Mina and Seward and myself and Van Helsing's memorandum. We could hardly ask anyone, even if we did we wish to, to accept these as proofs of so wild a story. Van Helsing summed it all up, as he said, with our boy on his knee. We want no proofs. We ask none to believe us. This boy will someday know what a brave and gallant woman his mother is. Already he knows her sweetness and loving care. Later on, he will understand how some men so loved her that they did dare so much for her sake. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, hard to hard to disagree with Bram. We Stoker want no there. proofs. Uh, well, yep. I mean, there are. We well, no it was a yeti. It was well, a yeti. Uh, but yeah. yeah, we want no proofs. Uh, it was a yeti. <laughs> thoughts on skinwalkers wendigos and other similar native american folklore slash legends slash myths it's from Jinji zero zero um yeah i mean this is definitely a topic uh both uh, both of those things i think like uh are topics that we'll get into for sure like more substantially down the line you know mm-hmm. um big into dogmen uh so i think that <laughs> definitely like you know and that there's a huge overlap with those things um so uh we'll definitely get into those like at some point like you know in in an episode um it is interesting though i mean i feel like uh you know these are distinct things of course you know there's uh 
you know, uh, a skinwalker is more of I, maybe this a skinwalker might be cannibalistic or at least you know they defy they could defile the dead maybe uh mm-hmm, i know that there's mm-hmm. like some anxiety around funerals involving skinwalkers uh and i think that that's like uh you know mostly a navajo thing whereas uh wendigo there's like equivalents of that in a bunch of uh cultures but or you know similar concepts in a bunch of cultures that's like a you know i guess it's an algonquin thing um yeah but and uh, i well, i have yeah. i have a, a quick question because I, i'm vaguely aware with what a wendigo is supposed to look like but what are the characteristics of skinwalkers per se skinwalkers like uh well they're uh called like uh in the in the navajo language i think they're called uh ni uh the yi nal uh which is like like what uh walks with it uh on four legs you know so like uh what walks whereby on four legs or something you know so uh basically uh skinwalker is a traditionally speaking like in the classical idea a skinwalker is like a witch pretty much or a type of sorcerer that uses an animal skin to uh change form uh and take on like the the aspect of an animal but they also have like other uh abilities and they you know uh are uh monsters and some and like the the exact nature of like a skinwalker and what they do is uh very different there's a book that i uh wanted to recommend kind of relative to the uh the skinwalker thing because it's very skinwalkers are something that you know uh probably the most famous i'm gonna go out on a limb and say probably the most famous like uh native american mythological thing like i mean i remember even in the x-files episode uh i remember in the x-files you know their episode about the werewolves was like native american themed you know and it was all Mm -hmm. about like uh how this and like uh you know in in the twilight saga and whatever the the native americans are the werewolves so there's all sorts of like loaded like you know uh, fucked up shit around this you know so Mm -hmm. and like uh (laughs) the whole idea like uh, the skinwalker as being like a werewolf you know uh but of course like in in uh modern society like these things do blend together you know it's similar to like uh sasquatch or bigfoot you know in native communities where there wasn't like previously an idea of bigfoot like sometimes they will incorporate bigfoot and it will take on like the characteristics of like uh some a feature of native spirituality or like the, mm-hmm. the you know the structure of native spirituality even though like it wasn't even traditionally a part of it because of the association of sasquatch with native americans like you know sometimes in uh modern culture you know these things can become assimilated and the, the characteristics assigned to them and the larger sort of uh pop culture can kind of uh enter into the you know uh it's not like a hermetically sealed thing where there isn't transference okay, yeah. between the two of course so like sometimes in skinwalker uh stories which is what i was going to mention like uh there's a book called uh, Some Kind of Power, uh, Navajo mm-hmm. Children Skinwalker Narratives by Margaret K. Brady. It's like, you know, an ethnography, uh, and it's pretty dated. It's like from the 80s, you know, so this mm-hmm. might not be like super up to date, but, uh, you know, like there might be a better treatment. But it's very specific about skinwalkers. I'm not sure like how much this topic is treated like uh i'm not like an expert on the anthropology of navajo or anything like that so i don't really know like uh you know what other good ethnographies on skinwalker beliefs but uh that is one and i uh yeah i don't know of like uh, any others or if there are you know it might be that like because the topic kind of has that pop cultural sheen on it like the interest mm-hmm. in it uh, uh from sometimes from academics or ethnographers is 
maybe discouraged or but another interesting aspect of it of at least of the skinwalker stuff uh is the uh like aspect of secrecy that's around it like uh, in this book i remember there's one very interesting part where uh which kind of gets to the the heart of this the author writes you know uh, it is significant uh, that although these Navajo children were willing to tell jokes, riddles, and ghost stories in groups of children they did not consider kin, uh, sometimes including Anglo children in their class, they were unwilling to tell skinwalker stories in the same groups. It was important then for the children to select their own groups for these narrative sessions. Never was an Anglo child selected. Always those children who were involved in sessions where skinwalker stories were told referred to each other as cousins. In other words, this particular kind of narrative demanded adherence to a peer group as kin prescription, as was first suggested by Buddy Randolph when I asked him if he knew any, quote, scary stories. Uh, so this is the interview. Uh, the interviewer asks, do you know anybody? And he answered, family secrets. Uh, the interviewer says, you have family mm-hmm. secrets? Oh, you can't tell them? And he nodded his head yes. And he says, what are they about? And he goes, uh, witches. Uh, and, he mm. says, and you can't tell them outside your family? He says, or relatives, only cousins and relatives. This notion was elaborated by Buddy when I questioned him much later about the sharing of Skinwalker stories. One time, the only time me and Melvin and Billy Yazzie, um, we tell our stories like, like what Buddy told his mom, told him never to tell anybody. Uh, the interviewer said, did he tell you? Uh, yeah, he told me to te- he told us, and I told Melvin and Billy what my mom said never to tell anybody else. Uh, why did you do that? He said, because it's sacred ways. Uh, the interviewer goes, I know, but why did he tell if it's sacred ways? And he goes, the clan, the clan. Or, sorry, Mel- someone named Melvin interjects and says, the clan, the clan. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, they're in the same clan. And all the boys at once said, yeah. Uh, so he says, mm-hmm. here the notion of never telling anybody refers to outsiders, non-relatives, strangers. Uh, and I found mm-hmm. another reference to this, like, in some... Uh, like quarterly journal on uh, native american affairs or something uh that mm-hmm. was uh talking about uh you know how uh around funerals sometimes uh navajo families would ask the funeral director to keep quiet about the funeral because they would have uh, a concern about about skinwalker so there is this aspect wow. of secrecy and i think that you know there the whole like th- aspect of the the uh internal stories around this stuff and the beliefs like there might be some difference between like what the sort of popular idea of skinwalkers is or like when these people go on the history channel and are like trying to tell the ufo people like you know what their legends are or whatever that's not really like you know there's a different level of uh privileged information that is maybe yeah. isn't being granted to these types of uh people outside like you know uh, but uh yeah and i mm-hmm. assume that's that's true of many things of, of this of this nature um for sure yeah, but for sure. that's uh, really interesting Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember yeah. also in this book that there's like various sort of takes on it in the same way that like you have uh, more naturalistic or, or mundane takes on supernatural phenomena a lot of the time, you know, mm-hmm. for some, it's a very conventional take on the skinwalker where he sort of sings his spirit into an animal in some way. Uh, and okay. that's, you know, when asked what is a skinwalker, they'll be like, oh, you know, he sings his spirit into a coyote and then, you know, he can put curses on people and, and such things. Uh, and some people will be like, well, you know, they put on an animal skin and they get flashlights and they use those Mm. to replicate the eye shine and then they just steal people's turquoise you know like they just go around (laughs) scare people to steal their turquoise you know uh well what kind of flashlights you mean like a like what kind of uh is there is there pre-existing i don't know i have to like actually uh i'll see if i can actually find that part of of the book flipping through it now because it is on archive um but uh 
Yeah, like uh, do they mean I in modern times somebody running yeah, around? Yeah, yeah, they do. Like, right, of like course Hoffman? they mean in modern oh, okay, times. Okay. Yeah, they mean okay, in modern yeah, times. Yeah, because the they're like this is still yeah. something that like you know is like participated in like actively. You know, these stories. Yeah. This is an ethnography from the '80s, so these are stories uh-huh. collected like you know during that time. So like yeah, when people like skinwalkers are still active, like you know for people who have an idea of them as being witches, like they're still they still have that active uh, quality, but. Uh, yeah uh but it might be like a yeah. mothman now green beret like parachuting like, yeah exactly or like <laughs> some like greedy guy who is like you know wearing an animal skin and holding these weird flashlights you know to yeah. uh yeah like freak people out um yeah like um but uh yeah so yeah in some cases okay. they'll turn into yeah um yeah i guess they do they dig in graveyards to eat things Wow. So that's a similar thing to the Wendigo, which is always the yeah. cannibalistic aspect of the Wendigo is always emphasized. Um, and also, yeah, like I mean, no I small, really no small amount of Dracularity, I think, going on with the Wendigo stories. Oh yeah, well, the, uh, obviously the Dracula is cannibalistic, so I feel like there is, and the yeah. violence and the Wendigos for that matter. Wendigos are cannibals as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wendigos are. Okay, that's yeah. why yeah. I Wendigos like, you know, are. I don't, can- you don't. Yeah, skinwalkers. Mm-hmm. Their primary characteristic is probably being the skinwalking, like you know the. Uh, uh, the walking, uh, you know, the transformation, shape shifting, but uh, okay. Wendigos, their primary aspect, I would say, is being cannibals. Uh, yeah, that's like yeah. the main thing with Wendigos. I, I was struck. Uh, yeah. I haven't like read super deep on Wendigos, but I was struck as a kind of the synchronicities between like the insatiable cannibalistic appetite of the Wendigo and like the encroaching european settler colonialists who yeah like like it sounded a lot like if you're gonna launch an invective against like western settlers and like raiding parties that are just like insatiable like no matter how much land they take and like how many resources they still want more they want to like you know eat all the buffalo they want to like poison the streams you know like it it it, it there's a kind of um yeah, I don't know, like spiritual, political synchronicity uh, kind of going on with like the legend of the Wendigo. And is, isn't the Wendigo usually like ghostly pale and white? Uh, yes, I well, I think that in many cases, uh, I feel like Wendigos can look different, you know, uh, it varies. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure like what, if there's any sort of stable experience, uh, stable appearance for the Wendigo. I feel like a lot of the time, yeah, they're like humanoid. They, yeah, being pale and white, that would maybe make sense. Uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I think there's yeah. a, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Um, yeah, they're kind of Wendigos are kind of like z- zombies a little bit, like uh, you mm-hmm. know they're kind of like corpses. Uh, yeah. where, you know maybe they look like uh, uh, they look like de- like de- like there's there's an aspect of like being like star like starvation. You know they seem like uh like uh, yes they, they have like victims. a wasting disease where like yeah. they, they have an insatiable appetite mm-hmm. but they're always hungry. Um, yeah, isn't that, I mean Dracula kind of has things like that where I mean if he doesn't suck right. on people's blood he starts to, like wither away. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. he looks yeah, he gets so, old, uh, yeah, and pale yeah. white as well. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. like capitalism uh, needs to, like you know exploit super. Yeah, profits I mean that's actually and, like, a thing. Know, that's actually a thing in like uh, anthropology as well. You know, uh, anthropology I think as a discipline, academic discipline in the United States, like is mostly like interested maybe in Native Americans. I would say almost mm-hmm. like especially like as a theoretically productive ground because like of the genocide. It's it's an interesting thing because of the genocide that's inflicted upon Native Americans. Like you know now there is a little bit. And I mean this is something that's also been criticized, but of course there's like the noble savage stuff where. But I think mm-hmm. that. 
people often look to Native American things as being like a, a you know Native American culture, or Native American concepts or theories or cosmologies as being like a theoretically productive ground for critiques and things like that. It's very mm-hmm. interesting because yeah, I get the whole Wendigo, Wendigo capitalism thing, but I also yeah. like. You but know, it's also have yeah certain, to uh, yeah I don't mean yeah, to, I don't even yeah. I don't mean to reduce it to a simple uh, direct analogy in terms even in like a phenomenological sense. Uh, I think it's it's yeah. reaching it, it's operating on different levels and the whole framework of it is a bit different right yeah well yeah it's just like one of my pet peeves when people like you know uh look at the belief like anthropologists for instance like uh who often have sort of explored the idea of uh wendigo cannibalism as like uh you know a way to critique capitalism or uh, imperialism or, or something like that which do you think you know, like I maybe think, even to imply you know, that it's like a kind of a literary metaphor they came up with to describe well, yeah, well, their experiences yeah, yeah, exactly. and like thus it's, not yeah, rooted in something like, deeper yeah, oh, yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. it's insisting on their uh western or you know their like uh you know academic anthropological ontology and put like you know and saying like oh you know the ontology is this and it's just an epistemological difference like their word for capitalism is wendigo you know like yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah exactly i guess that that, uh, that's why i meant to say there was like synchronicities between uh like the concept of wendigos and capitalism uh even though they are kind of like quite different beasts uh in yeah i mean i do think that like Like, the discourses around that are like super interesting it's interesting that's like an interesting new like afterlife for the wendigo and the same with the skinwalker has kind of had an interesting afterlife in the world of ufo stuff around the skinwalker ranch like being mm-hmm. like uh you know yeah. passing through all these different hands being a hub for to the stars academy like <laughs> yeah. being this like you know this famous place Bigel- for Robert ufo Bigelow, activity yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the same way that like because of the name of that that has sort of had a new uh interest in the skinwalker lore it is interesting an interesting act with the wendigo thing that like it hasn't had a renaissance as like a theoretical concept like in kind of like critical humanities you know mm. uh yeah, <laughs> yeah that's uh, also interesting but like you know uh obviously has like two uh aspects to it um yeah mm-hmm. like uh i'm yeah. still seeing if i could find uh this part where uh the flashlights are i'm seeing some great uh flow charts uh yeah if i didn't pronounce that right the skinwalker words it's uh ye nald lushi i hope i i don't know how to pronounce that but you know that's basically what it is uh ye mm-hmm. nald lushi uh sure. yeah uh yeah what walks I, yeah, I no uh, you know <laughs> uh, uh like yeah. uh, on four legs with it so that's basically what um they do yeah uh Skinwalkers as witches constantly threaten the highly valued order and balance of Navajo society with the inherent possibility of chaos, uh, the licentious behavior that the Yi Nazalushi repeatedly engage in, according to Navajo tradition, marks them as transgressors of social cultural boundaries. Skinwalkers invert the social order and make a mockery of the most sacred rituals of Navajo society. For though ritual is the most powerfully effective way to create order, it can also be used to create complete disorder. Hmm. Ritual was a means of transforming chaos into the cosmos, but it can also be used to reduce cosmos to chaos. Uh, traditionally, uh, ye now lushus with their bodies painted in ceremonial fashion gather either in caves or in a witchery hogan, which is a complete opposite of a normal hogan or like a home. When they chant mm-hmm. ritual songs in reverse and make sand paintings, when they spit, uh, they then spit, urinate, and defecate upon these sacred symbols in a Navajo ritual. They are truly calling forth chaos from the strictly ordered events of Navajo life. Uh, yeah, uh, that's wow, a that's a black idea. mass. Yeah, basically. Not, yeah, not they, again. Not to make a direct comparison, but basically, no, but uh, like, folks, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, touch. It is. It is interesting because you could have like two perceptions of it. Like you know the. 
it, it is interesting and like you know again it's hard to really know like a sort of pre-columbian form of these beliefs or if there's any kind of influence upon the way they're expressed by uh, these ideas but like you know assuming that the basic structure is still in place you could compare that to a critique of capitalism but you also could compare it to like the witch beliefs that the puritans had you know uh -huh, like uh, uh -huh. it's very much the same that there are certain people in society old people in particular people who yeah. are conspicuously wealthy politicians yeah. or people yeah. who have uh, religious power being particularly suspect you know and singers uh, right and singers well, singers are shamans basically like by okay. singers they don't mean like you know uh like miley cyrus you know they mean like uh, <laughs> well like i they, mean well uh... yeah exactly sorry yeah i would take that back i take that back um okay. you know yeah. like uh but yeah like uh i think yeah when they say that singers are of are, are being suspect is because singers like you know in our culture one can say yeah yeah, yeah, as singers, you could say, perhaps, you know, uh, at least that, that aspect of, of uh, musical performance or vocal musical performance is, is occulted in, in, in our in our culture, but it's very much, like, yeah, emphasized right. their ability to heal or something like right. that, you know, so they're, uh, they also have, like, a you're more... Right. They're uh, honest more about the role that, that singers role. play in their yes. society, mm -hmm. uh, unlike ours. Yes, yeah. uh, <laughs> yes, uh, but, wow. yeah, no, okay. but it's interesting, yeah. like... Uh, it's very interesting how you know one day we build a dogman episode and it's very interesting how similar some of the ghost stories that the kids tell about um the skinwalkers really parallels um the like the the same thing with dogman you know they come to the the uh, the walls of the house they like knock on the uh the doors and the windows and things like that uh mm -hmm. you know so um yeah uh yeah don't want to uh, oh, get wait, targeted okay. by one yeah okay i did find it uh so these are the two sort of uh different perceptions uh he says uh the author that uh, sorry she says each child's characterization of skinwalker might be placed in a continuum ranging from the most traditional skinwalker as witch who sings his spirit into a coyote the skinwalker of chapter one uh, you know, what we just read. So the most acculturated, mm -hmm. skinwalker as a man, greedy for wealth, who kills a coyote, cleans it, puts on the skin, uses flashlights for glowing eyes, and goes about the countryside stealing jewelry and other valuable possessions. One of the most traditional children, John Begay, describes skinwalkers in this way. These old people, they sing until their spirit leaves their body. Their spirits go into different things. Like when they sing something, their spirit leaves them, but it goes into a wolf or a coyote or something. And if they say something while they're in that body, they'll die. Uh, one step away uh, along the continuum lies a construction among three 11-year-old Navajo boys. It's like they kill something like a wolf or a coyote or a bear, and then they cut out the inside, but they don't eat it. They just burn it, and they wear the skin. First they dry it, and then they wear it. And they clean out the head, take everything, and put it on top of them. They have to wear all kinds of turquoise. Yeah. Then, like if they, like skinwalkers, they run fast. The medicine man, this one medicine man, they got some kind of power, like yeah they put they pray they put it on their head that's how they make them run fast in this example the participants indicate they don't believe the skinwalker has the power to sing his spirit into a coyote or bear skin as john begay suggests he does rather they describe quite pragmatically the entire process the skinwalker must go through to readily uh, to ready a suitable costume for himself they do however suggest that they believe in the skinwalker's power to run exceptionally fast um an even less traditional view of skinwalker is seen in charlie bitsui's claim that uh, they're just bad guys that put on skins to scare people and take their turquoise. Wow. Uh, wow. So, uh, yeah, different so ideas. Like, walking <laughs> in, their, in the skin of an animal, like, through, like, astral projection and, like, spirit possession versus, like, 
you know, putting on the skin, et cetera, you know, different literally things. like putting uh, on a gorilla suit basically. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, well, yeah. uh, I think we should, we should probably move on. Yeah. All right. We'll move we'll, on. We'll, we'll move pick on. up but on again, that a stuff. Rich topic on our, yes. To return to at the Absolutely. end of the line. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. All right. All right. Yeah. Now, number six from Liberty mm-hmm. Uprising. Okay. This one, I think this one's kind of a doozy. We'll try to, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, I think th- this yeah. almost deserves like its own episode. Uh, I think that's yeah, the only way to not do an hour on it right now. This is yeah, it's like episodes. it's yeah. multiple episodes, uh, but I think we can touch on. You can probably touch on maybe the uh, the Islamic roots aspect. I could maybe touch on the, the, yeah, so, so the socialism sure. aspect. Anyways, mm-hmm. uh, Liberty Uprising writes a topic I would like to hear you two riff on is Islamic Marxism. In reading Sylviane A. Diouf's Servant of Allah, it has become even more evident to me that any positive impact Muslims have had on Western events, history, culture is omitted. Abu Zar Ghaffari has been called the God-worshipping socialist, the world's first socialist. Are there examples of caliphs ruling based on Abu Zar's beliefs, teachings, or beliefs or teachings? How influential was Abu Zar's teachings in contemporary Marxist left-wing struggles, such as the Iranian Revolution, Qaddafism, or uh, Jal Muhammad Sayyid Bar's communist state in Somalia? Could these struggles have succeeded without Zar's teachings? Is the Waisi movement or Mirsaid Sultan Galiev's uh, prominence in the Communist Party before Lenin's death a brief success story of Islamic Marxism? Can either of you envision an Islamic Marxist jihad functioning, functioning as a vanguard party sometime in the future? Uh, uh, all right. Well, all right. Uh, all first right. of all, uh, shout, yeah, uh, I think that I might have recommended Servants of Allah uh, a while ago in the Grotto. But yeah, very interesting book about like the history of Islam in America, like going back, you know, uh, uh, Muslim slaves uh, predominantly mm-hmm. in America and, and in the in the Americas, you know, before uh, the uh, era that people associate with uh, Muslims, you know, from Arab immigrants, you know, mostly uh, Af- African Muslims in America and their influence on. You know, the example I think I brought up before in past episodes that I think is, you know, uh, one of the best crystallizations of this is uh, the Levy Camp Holler, you know, uh, which you can real. it's a, uh, it's, you know, it is what it sounds like. Uh, you can look it up on YouTube, but you can hear the sort of harmonics of the mm. call to prayer in it. So that's, you know, but that's not necessarily about uh, socialism per se or the examples that he asked about. Uh, he mentions uh, Abu Thar. I think that, uh, like, Abu Thar... Uh, I think that he is like mentioned by Ali Shariati, who I would definitely recommend as probably like the preeminent writer, like in an Islamic socialist mode. Although a lot of people mm-hmm. have called themselves Islamic socialists, I think that even Said Qutb went through at least a time of describing himself in that way, like uh, or saying I'm an Islamic socialist. I mean, there's many. Actually, you know, you would think it's odd because like if you're just on like Muslim Twitter with all these goobers, like you would get the mm-hmm. idea that like. You know, Islam has nothing to do with socialism. Like the, yeah. you know, uh, association with Islam and socialism is like, incredibly hostile. Like, uh, you know, blah, blah, like, blah. It's like shirky, we're all like a bunch of dumbass reactionaries. It's shirky as hell, right? It's that socialism is shirky. I mean, maybe because socialism has a materialist aspect to it, but I think the main thing is because of the like, like you know, horrible things the Soviet Union did do vis-a-vis uh, Islam many times, uh, you know, in the past. But like. For one, uh, Muslims in Soviet domains aren't the only Muslims who have interacted with with the idea of socialism at all, mm-hmm. and that and relationship is a bit more complicated than you know ju- the it goes you know the 
very negative aspects of it that are real where they're you know uh like uh for instance like clergy or sufi leaders like being disappeared or killed like uh you know uh atheist campaigners like coming in and like you know shutting down mosques and things like that there's also Mm -hmm. like you know uh uh, other aspects where people uh you know and i think that uh, someone who's mentioned this question uh merced uh galiab is an example you know uh yeah. he kind yeah, of so, we can talk about him yeah like he kind yeah, of yeah we can talk about him and he's really interesting like, really interesting i've read a little bit about him before in the past and yeah really fascinating figure and, and you know it goes to show that even there was space early on uh directly following the russian revolution like during and after the russian civil war uh like he said before lenin's death basically where uh people like uh merced sultan galiev were they envisioned a kind of synthesis like that, that there didn't have to be an antagonism between islam and bolshevism basically um and uh, unfortunately like that didn't pan out uh and yeah I, but well, i think people that people have I, different it, yeah people have different takes on him he did like kind of one of the most like uh infamous things that was you know that he did write was he kind of wrote this thing sort of advising like anti like uh basically atheist bolshevik missionaries like about how to approach muslims which Hmm. a lot of muslims like use to kind of but some but you know you say like this guy you know was uh kufar or whatever you know like uh it was Mm -hmm. kafir but uh some people see it as being tactical you know like because obviously you can't just be like actually you can't you know you have to do a little bit of entryism uh you can't just Mm -hmm. say like uh you know hey guys like islam is good you know they're obviously operating from like the point of view that like you know and since thing i mean this guy eventually was purged uh you know so it was well yeah and to be fair i always i always always want to be clear uh, when we talk about uh purging people that the like that that word can mean different things it has a particularly like sinister evil comment he was eventually executed so like we could just say executed like he was politically Uh, purged he was actually arrested and then kicked out of the communist party in 1923 like but not but not killed or anything it was just like you're kicked out of the party that's it you know Yes, so he, uh, but he actually was executed but yeah eventually yeah, yeah but in a not different like, like was purged the yes. purging isn't a synonym for killing uh okay, yes it's not I a synonym apologize. for killing uh, though right, everyone loves yeah. to say it is uh but basically um, so it, you know and yes, i think well, that, kind like, of like you know, how everyone loves to say fatwa is a synonym for a death sentence when it just means like any legal ruling uh, of course so, of course you know. yeah yeah or a jihad uh, yes. is like do like terrorism yeah, against civilians war. like yeah exactly uh, kill everyone like, uh, yeah, exactly. Lenin, uh anyway um but, but actually uh, um yeah but so, like you know basically he yeah. his his biggest protector in like the soviet government was lenin so lenin yeah you know uh, like lenin saw some promise in this guy's approach uh many others did not though unfortunately um but yeah so uh, like because yeah yeah, he actually became kind of like the poster child for like invidious like national like deviancy you know like people i think actually he there's a term coined after him of like Sultan Galiyevism or something, you know, like uh-huh. uh, where uh, they'd be like, this is, you know, like uh, the biggest blight upon uh, the communist project is like this type of, you know, but he was, yeah, trying to make his, I mean, even in his writings, like where he says like, this is how atheist missionaries should, you know, they should come in and live amongst the people and like integrate themselves with the community. And then they'll see that atheists aren't a figure from the devil. You know, you don't want to act like, uh the christian missionaries of the past you know etc cetera, etc cetera. like people read that different ways some think he sure. was actually sympathetic to islam or even you know 
uh we always want to give people atheism. the benefit of the doubt when there's any room yeah well, pe- well no like people I think that people's... maybe he was actually se- secretly sympathetic to islam despite saying that you know despite being openly atheist i see like he, uh, that, that was kind that of like actually, a tactical yeah. pivot to like yeah, uh, exactly. not not stoke some, antagonisms right. basically okay yes, which yes, is yes, like, yes, uh, yes. understandable and, like, yeah you know try to dissuade them in a light way from going in and doing what you know uh did happen in a lot of places which was like not conducive to any kind of cooperation and just you know uh yeah so yeah. uh yeah exactly so that's why some people read it but you know uh in terms of the, uh, you know, uh, Vaisi movement, I honestly don't know too much about that because it's actually, like, a very, like, understudied topic and, like, little unknown and understood. Like, they were kind of, like, you know, uh, yeah, like, anti-clerical. They were supporters of the Bolsheviks. Um, mm-hmm. People, uh, I've, I've see, heard them, like, compared to, like, the, you know, uh, the Wahhabis or whatever, you know, in, in certain ways because they had that sort of, like... Uh, purity but obviously uh you know aspect on like islamic purity or going back to the old system kind of that that salafist streak uh avant la lettre maybe but um i guess not really quite avant la lettre uh at all Mm -hmm. but um you know uh without uh identifying in that way remotely um but uh or what i know of because i really don't know uh too much about them but it is very interesting yeah Um, i don't know much either um uh yeah well it's like there's material on it i think in russian so we have mm-hmm. to do a lot of work. It's definitely a, a fruitful area of research and yeah, something that yeah. people, you know, uh, who work on Islam don't tend to do. Like, people do tend to neglect uh, that area of uh, the world. Like, people think of Islam, they want to do the Middle East. Uh, and if not that, maybe yeah. they want to do South Asia, you know. So that, and, like, you know, Islam for that matter, that, yeah. uh, a lot of uh, Marxists and leftists, like, in the West as well, mm-hmm. uh, probably this is not I, – I think some people would find it very interesting. But a lot, I think, kind of look at it as, like, eh, like – you know what like that's yeah you know a bunch of why why make in i mean you see it all over the place like why why reach out to any religious people they're all Mm -hmm. like they're class enemies they're opiated you know even though that's narcophobic like they're they're taking (laughs) religion they're like misreading that classic Mm -hmm. statement uh that you know it's like a sedative to deal with the pain of like you know oppression as opposed to like a fun drug that like tricks you um or something Um, like that uh yeah or that like your yeah head exa- with- uh, like yeah was he talking about opiates like in the sense of the time where it's like medicine you know like yes, uh, yes. yeah exactly, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, so it has but, a therapeutic uh, effect and all yeah. this stuff um, um i just i just want you know um we, maybe you could talk about like abu uh, abu zar um uh, gafari yeah. but i just want to read uh uh, Galiev's uh, Sultan Galiev's like statement from December 1917. It's just one paragraph here uh, mm-hmm. that was a response to some Tatars' uh, accusations that he was betraying his own people to the Bolsheviks, and so he wrote uh, this. And I think it, it's an interesting encapsulation of like is what he was about. Uh, he said. I now move to my cooperation with the Bolsheviks. I will say the following. I associate with them not from sycophancy. The love for my people, which lies inherently inside me, draws me to them. I go to them not with a goal to betray our nation, not in order to drink its blood. No, no. I go there because my, with my whole spirit, I believe in the rightness of the Bolsheviks' cause. I know this. It is my conviction. Thus, nothing will remove it from my soul. I realize that only some of the Bolsheviks were able to implement what was promised at the beginning of the revolution, but only they stopped the war. Only they are striving to pass the nationality's fates into their own hands. Only they revealed who started the world war. What does not lead me to them? They also declared war on English imperialism, which impresses India, Egypt, Afghanistan, Persia, and Arabia. They are also the 
the ones who raised arms against French imperialism, which enslaves Morocco, Algiers, and other Arab states of Africa. How could I not go to them? You see, they proclaim the words, which have never been voiced since creation of the world and the history of the Russian state. Appealing to all Muslims of Russia and the East, they announced that Istanbul must be in Muslims' hands. They did this while English troops, seizing Jerusalem, appealed to Jews with the words, gather, quick, gather together quickly in Palestine. We will create for you a European state. So, like, uh, I don't know, like, mm-hmm. like, why would you execute this guy? You know, like, come on. Uh, you know what well, I mean? Like, t- like uh, he's yeah, pledging his I, love I, to the Bolsheviks. Like, you know, like, come on, whatever happened after that. A huge yeah. opportunity was blown because there really yeah. was, like, a huge, like, yeah, Muslims were ready to ride with the Bolsheviks in a lot of cases because, like, the Tsar was a fucking crusader, as he rightly yep. said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mm-hmm. even Lenin had like a you know a, a great statement like about like the you know Muslims and their freedom to uh, worship you know uh, like uh, yeah Muslims of Russia all you whose mosques and prayer houses have been destroyed whose beliefs and customs have been trampled upon by the czars and oppressors of Russia your beliefs and practices your national and cultural institutions are forever free and inviolate. Uh, wow. If only like yeah uh, I know yeah you know, once again Lenin. Um, uh, uh, wish he could have lived a little longer. Um, that, yeah. But no, but um, anarchist had to shoot him. Uh, you know, so. Uh, yeah, it was Chomsky. Because uh, uh, Yeah, Chomsky. Yeah, he time traveled. Uh, he got John Titor's time machine and he went back to, you know, because. He dressed uh, up like a woman, like he, in a De Palma he, thriller. And he asked he, himself the yeah. philosophical question of, you know, like, is he worse than Hitler? Like, well, you know. Yeah, he had to choose, like, uh, killing Trump, left, yeah, uh, Hitler, or, uh, or Lenin, yeah. and he chose Lenin. Uh, um, Lenin's allowed to live, yeah. Uh, yeah, warming. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, so... Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, the, yeah, just to touch uh, on, like, the first part of the question, because I wasn't really... I don't really know anything about... I don't know if it's Abu Zar or Abu Dhar. Uh, um, uh, yeah, well, it's, yeah, well, it's, a, like, the her, like, uh, you know... Oh, I see differently. It. Like, uh, yeah, so... Uh, Gaddafi, Qaddafi, yeah, uh, that yeah, kind of Abu thing. Zar. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things. Like, um, but, yeah, yeah I... He, there is a, actually you know what it might actually be I probably can find let me see if I can find online uh, Ali Shariati's once again Abu Zar because I think the reason why he's mentioned or like why he has such a big role in or you know why maybe he people are talking about him in this way uh, I actually hadn't encountered I definitely think in terms of the question that like could these few, like uh, communist movements have succeeded without Zar's teachings. I definitely say yes because uh, even though uh, Abdullah is phrased by uh, Shariati, I think one of the main things that he likes about him is that he sees him as being like you know a true like Shia or someone who just like stuck to the principles of Islam, like mm-hmm. you know, uh, and like stood up to like the corruption of them. So like he wasn't necessarily like an innovator of any like special teaching so much as like someone who was like a good model of like courage, you know, uh, and standing mm-hmm. up to. Uh, you know, uh, the in this case, like the the earlier uh, the earlier caliphs who had started to corrupt uh, Islam, because obvi- like you know, it's very much a Shia take on uh, this uh, permutation of, of uh, Islamic socialism or uh, you know uh, Shariati's ideas um, or you know Red Shiism, maybe uh, his famous mm. uh, phrase and book, right? So I I, uh, I am kind of in yeah. uh, just to uh, bounce back to the like the modern thing i i am very interested in like the government of siad bar in somalia um because mm-hmm. he basically i i don't know like too much uh i haven't delved as deep into him as i have with maybe some other people like sankara but uh this is you know it 
he actually had a pretty long run, I mean, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. from 1969 to 1991. And I feel like Somalia today has been coded as just like this, you know, Black Hawk Down kind of lawless, like anarchist failed state kind of a warlord space that's very dangerous, blah, 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 with lots of poverty and stuff. But uh, he he was very basically like directly advocated for the synthesis of like scientific socialisms aka marxism leninism uh and the quran (laughs) basically like (laughs) yes basically islam like very much so uh i guess especially in after 76 when uh the src uh, turned into the somali revolutionary socialist party um that was yeah like directly based on scientific socialism and islamic tenets um and then i know there was a civil war in the 80s um there's also one in ethiopia there was a lot of uh uh, fucked up stuff going on uh, in the 1980s that led to you know the collapse uh, and various economic problems but I think you know I think oftentimes you really don't I think in the third world struggles for socialism you really see a lot more kind of synthesizing and uh, it, it there's more creativity I think and anachronistic approaches than maybe they get credit for you know it's mm-hmm. like either they were like a soviet backed like puppet government or mm-hmm. uh, you know um yeah so i think that like you know there were differences between like the cuban approach and the somalian approach and like you know the uh, the chilean approach etc um, yeah and i think that that was uh like galiev's like vision in a way as well like you know he just wanted to say that like we're going to have our own approach that was seen as like nationalist like deviationism you know and that like that was a threat you know so Mm -hmm. in that case but i think that's something that might have been uh important uh or good to have and you know as we talked about in our victory episode like that weakness was definitely something that was exploited really like you could tell the story of the whole thing through that um you know so i mean imagine if the, the 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 levels of like loyalty in central asia were closer to that statement i read you know that that yeah. he said of just like how could i not go to them like they're you know like they are uh yeah that you know basically that uh they like this is the first time that we've been protected ever you know and our like lenin said you know our right to our religion and traditions is like inviolate you know uh it, it it sucks that that was not allowed that that line was not pursued you know in it's because yeah. i think it would have made socialism in some sense like much more i do think maybe that's one uh maybe that's one area where taking a less like heavy-handed approach would have actually made the whole thing stronger in the long yeah. run I mean, maybe, you know, there would have been other external, like, downsides to it in some respects, but I feel like, uh, like, they had, they had very, um, talented, uh, political leaders, you know, uh, like Sultan Galiev, who Mm -hmm. were, like, ready to, like, do the work, basically, and bring, like, Muslims on board. And yeah. integrate it in like a very, you know, almost like like not quite bottom up in that classic, I think, like positively Leninist way, like a real synthesis of like organization and like setting out to do things in like a very direct way with like kind of getting bottom up feedback. And I mean, you know, I think that was something yeah, that popped up a lot right. later in, in Maoism as like a central tenet of that. Yeah, there definitely were some annoying like jihadists and there was like internal like friction. Like I think the Viasi movement is an example of that again. 
again, I wish I knew more, but that's an example of even before, you know, the revolution, there's tension between, like, the the ruling, uh, sort of, or the, the older elites, you know, the, the clerics and uh, the ulama, you know, uh, uh, you know, beforehand. So, like, there would still, there might still, you know, be existing frictions, like, not everyone, you know, but the only way, like, to do it is not to have, like, this, you know, uh, Glowy's warning about making sure that, like, you don't seem like these old czarist missionaries coming in and imposing stuff. Like, it's just, yeah. you know, and he had a point, like, they're not going to, people aren't going to put up with that, like, you know, and that yes. still lives on, so... Uh, that taps you know, into people like, in a deep, like, you know, especially such deaths, a... You know, like, it's yeah, just not going to work. Yeah, you know? and, like, like especially yeah. for a, a an um, empire, a former empire that has, like, a multitude of religious tendencies that, you know, had been oppressed and were really itching to, like basically like you know run their own thing after a while you know whether yeah. it's like ukrainian orthodox or muslims or etc like basically um like the idea that like i think again i think i've mentioned it before like if there's one line that i'm like most critical about of like 20th century like marxism or you know communism or whatever it is like the edgy atheism like i think that was mm-hmm. like by far like the biggest like own goal i get why people were like that at that time but i think Mm -hmm. that somebody like lenin who was an atheist was able to understand the importance of religion and counsel against like cracking down on it or like sending in like you know like reddit moderators to be like um excuse me comrade like did you ever consider that like a flying spaghetti monster like you know like (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) shut the fuck up like Like, making it so much harder you know basically to yeah it's a perennial problem that people who are not religious just fundamentally do not understand it and they really do think that like they could fly spaghetti monster away someone's religion like uh and that is just like a that's a problem even today where like there just is a fundamental problem for people to understand like you know religion and its importance and like what it even is like uh but you know uh and i think that was one area where i'd say just on Uh, a basic statistical level that like if you looked at the the difference they made in the numbers like if you i mean okay if you just take a few things they did succeed wildly at like industrial output literacy like healthcare access like education like public transportation if you looked at like the you know the first like 40 years of the soviet union like all those things would be like skyrocketed but then if you look at like i actually be interested to see if there was a like survey or if there could have been a survey that said like okay how many people are religious now but i mean i think if you if you zoom to like now uh like most of the muslim people i think in the central asian republics are probably still muslim and most of the orthodox christians are still orthodox christians like most of the jews are still jewish like like that didn't really move the needle despite you know Mm -hmm. trying and using like a heavy hand at times like it it just you know it, it like yeah you waste a lot of energy and you create a lot of uh uh resentment by basically yeah, no, going after something like that religious. there was an effect which was well, like on the whole just bad but like yeah yeah like it certainly I mean, didn't the, like I'm, make everyone enlightened like you know uh epic atheists who like are you know and the soviet union now doesn't exist anymore uh and people so. a lot of people ran back to really i mean now like the russian state like is reifying like the orthodox church again and like putin's yeah, like sure. showing off like putin the ex-kgb officer is like showing off you know how like how orthodox he 
Nazi is and all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, oh, it is back to back to the old program. You know, it, it, it was not dislodged. So I think that I don't know uh, the last part of this question. Like, can either of us envision an Islamic Marxist jihad functioning as a vanguard party sometime in the future? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, wait, before we tackle this question, I did also want to mention two other people who I vaguely know of, uh, okay. which are uh, Ubedullah Sindhi and uh, Hibzal Rahman uh, Suharwi, uh, who, uh, or that's, uh, I, well, his name is spelled different ways, but uh, Hibzal Rahman, uh, S-E-O-H-A-R-W-I, I think is the normative spelling of his name. Uh, mm-hmm. The other one I think you can uh, uh, figure out, but... Um, uh, yeah, Ubaidullah uh, Sinti is the other one, uh, who are both uh, uh, Pakistani slash Indian, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think uh, pretty much like pre-independence where they were mainly operative uh, uh, Muslims who uh, had like socialist thought, who I think are really uh, uh, interesting people to uh, possibly engage with on, on that front as like theorists mm-hmm. of, of that, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, like, again, I just would emphasize that there's like a whole history there of like muslims dealing with these ideas like uh there you know um and uh yeah and i also would um you know definitely uh like recommend uh shariati you know that's a very particular take where like you know most muslims are sunny and uh this is a very like shia take where there's like a uh on on this but it is uh you know probably like most of the stuff like that people like when people talk about uh islamic like socialism or like red uh islam or like you know people red shiism like yeah this is a lot uh, you know and a lot of when people are like you know exploring the uh kind of resonances between socialism and islam uh you know they will uh talk about this here's a uh just like this one passage from uh uh sort of uh work maybe this is a lecture or a little essay that Shariata wrote particularly about Ablazar. So uh, basically he was ordered to come before uh, Uthman. So the caliph, mm-hmm. that's Uthman, uh, ordered no one to follow a religious edict from Ablazar, but religious edicts were issued, one after another by Ablazar. That which he had seen in Damascus had made him more anxious and more brazen in struggle. Abdul Rahman Off, the head of the caliphate council of Umar, died in his heritage, which was an abundance of gold and silver, was piled up before Uthman. Abu Dhar heard that Uthman had said, Abdul Rahman is blessed by God that he lived well, and when he died, he left behind all of his wealth. Abu Dhar, when by left behind, he means like he didn't give it away to the poor. He like left it mm-hmm. behind and Uthman took it. You know, oh, okay. uh, you know, not, uh, you know, not saying anything bad about the Kaios, but this is, you know, just a Shiat take. This, they're also hmm. Muslims, just saying. Okay, okay. All right. Uh, and, but they're very, you know, they're not all about the uh, first uh, three Caliphs. Uh, you know, anyway, so okay. they're, uh, they're emphatically not all about them. Abu Dhar, uh, agitated and inflamed, invaded Uthman's house alone. On the way, he found a camel's bone. He picked it up and took it. He cried out to Uthman, You say that God blessed a man who has died and left all of this gold and silver behind? Uthman softly replied, Abu Dhar, does a person who has paid his zakat have other religious obligations as well? Abu Dhar recited the verse of Kins and said, uh, The problem here is not zakat. The problem is with anyone who hoards gold and silver and does not give it upon the way of God. Kabul Akbar. Okay, so now you're going to see a little Ooh, bit of the okay, anti-Semitism okay. here. Um, okay. You know, Kabul uh, Akbar was, uh, his name actually means, like, uh, the rabbi, kind of, or, like, uh, you know. Well, yeah, uh, but, I mean, uh, the well, he's scholar, also, you know? he, he's making a statement against wealth hoarding. Is that not just Well, that's, uh, uh, that's Abu Zar, uh, who's doing that. But uh, okay. right now, uh, Usman is about to get some support from 
uh, a form a, a convert from Judaism who's you know okay. a known figure in Islam. Of course, you know uh, this is not to say uh, as Sunnis do this as well. You know uh, some of the more extreme uh members of uh my own persuasion uh mm-hmm. will sometimes uh say that uh shiism itself was founded by uh you know a crypto jew or something so you know it definitely goes both ways but uh, i don't uh, necessarily condone that anyway so uh kabbal akbar uh, formerly jewish was, who was sitting beside uthman said this verse relates to the people of the book it does not relate to muslims Abu Zar mm. cried out at him, Son of a Jew, you want to teach our religion to us? May your mother mourn for you. Uthman said, If a man has paid his zakat and builds a palace, one brick of gold and one brick of silver, there is no blame. Then he turned to Cobb and asked him his opinion, and Cobb expressed the opinion that, Yes, your majesty, that's the way it is. Abu Zar attacked him. Cobb, out of fear, hid behind Uthman and placed himself in the refuge of the caliph. The scene is complete. The scene of the drama of all of history. On one side, gold, coercion, and the ruling religion in the visages of Abu Rahman, Uthman, and Kabul Akbar, and how exact and accurate the principle, gold, coercion, its supporter and religion, hidden behind coercion as justifier, confronting it, Abu Dhar, the sacrifice of exploitation, despotism, and deception, the manifestation of the religion condemned by history and the oppressed class of history, God and the people. Abu Dhar alone, disarmed, oppressed, with all of this, responsible and an assailant, takes Cobb from the refuge of coercion and with the camel's bone pounded him so hard in the head that blood began to flow. Uthman said, how tiresome you have become, Abu Dhar. Leave us. Abu Dhar said, I am fed up with seeing you. Where should I go? To Rabada. Uh, Marwan Hakam, an exile of the prophet, was assigned to exile Abu Dhar. Ali heard of the affair. He moaned. He took Hassan, Hussein, and Akhil, and they came to see him off. Marwan stood before Ali. The caliph has prohibited the seeing off of Abu Dhar. Ali, with a whip, bypassed him and went with Abu Dhar uh, till Rabada. Uh, Rabuda, a burning wilderness uh, without water and cultivation along the way the pilgrims which other than at the time of the Hajj becomes empty and silent there he set up his torn tent and he met his needs with the few goats that he had uh, so you know yeah he lived in poverty uh, he stood up for the poor uh, and mm. you know he had to uh, uh, I, I really yeah. jumped when he said that was him saying the oppressed class of history uh, yes well uh, well that was uh that was uh, Ali Shariati saying oh. the oppressed. Uh, the oppressed oh, okay, okay. I, didn't, I, was, yeah. I was gonna say like uh, that was very, very Marxist terminology for the seventh century. Yes. Um. No, no, no. no yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, uh, he, yeah, probably would not have put those. Uh, but obviously, the story is being used like in a very, uh, like, uh, you know, self-consciously kind of uh, Marxist socialist way by uh-huh. yeah, this this writer. So yeah, I definitely would uh, say that he's someone who who stands out um, in terms of that tradition. But it's a very robust one. But he's definitely someone who's kind of a, a starter uh, area for people interested in, in that topic for sure mm-hmm. uh yeah and uh, um yeah um yeah. so yes. uh to, to the final part of that question it like can either of us envision an islamic marxist jihad functioning as a vanguard party sometime in the future um yes uh, uh you know the arc <laughs> of history arc of history is long so yeah you know uh i definitely could see it i think that there's a lot that needs to be worked out uh on both ends you know there's a lot of internal problems happening uh but uh yeah uh, uh i personally I guess, can't yeah, uh, yeah I, I mean uh i'm i'm not particularly uh you know wedded or betrothed to any particular religious persuasion although i am sympathetic to religion in general so i guess what i would say is a kind of alliance between 
various religions, uh, basically convincing them of the like moral necessity of socialism while also like convincing socialists of like the moral necessity of maybe certain or at least you know a non-hostility and like a like an openness to working with people that operate under like religious meta narratives um mm-hmm. would be like a a very potentially like powerful alliance that would avoid many of the mistakes that were made in the 20th century when everyone thought that religion was just about to like fizzle away around the corner like after the next scientific discovery everyone's going to stop i don't think they're going to stop and in fact i think it's also you do need something uh besides like chomsky's like liberal morality or like even the bill of rights like maybe there there's something to it that, that if you're going to have any kind of guideposts to like uh an overarching sense of right and wrong basically um or like what lines you're not going to cross um religion does provide those in uh, it's some of the oldest social technology if you will not to simply reduce it to that but the the laying down of like a law and commandments i mean like religion was really kind of the uh i don't know if they're exactly the first to codify but the first major forces in the world um uh to codify like codes of like commonly accepted morality and i don't know Mm. like would you know as khrushchev charged like the violations of socialist legality uh i don't know if like if all the bolsheviks decided to be religious if they wouldn't have done that because plenty of religious people have slaughtered people and abused their rights and all like found justifications for doing that as well so you even need to confront like that that contradiction within religion of like still doing bad shit even though you're religious because that's obviously yeah. kind of a like a trap as well and so yeah, i re- think there's being religious uh doesn't make you a good person like or believing no, it that something is bad doesn't mean that you won't do it like uh you know religious people sin that's a part of pretty much all religious doctrines you know even like uh, if you don't believe we have original sin as, as muslims don't you still think that we sin uh you yes. know and you don't yeah you might not think that you need to like go immediately to like a booth to like have it uh, forgiven by like a guy and you can just you know ask a lot uh to forgive you and then refrain from the sin like you know generally human beings are we do believe in the concept of sin and that you know most you know, like that muslims do sin a lot uh although we strive not to obviously mm-hmm. and that's why we ask god to help us not do that but uh yeah, like, uh, you know, in our in our fault and, and such things. But And, yeah, um, I, I don't find anything yeah. wrong with that outlook. I don't think it's, like, that's, like, I don't think that's religious and, like, that leads to bad things in society, the fact that we believe in sin. Like, that's kind of the same line of thinking that, like, narcophobia comes, seems to come out of is, like, yeah. oh, the problem the is that like, people think it's bad rather yeah. than, like, addressing the source of, like, what is the subject that we're talking about and, like, is it generally perceived to be a negative thing? Like, you know, heroin addiction generally perceived to be a negative thing in society, but, uh... And, uh, like, you know, yeah. uh, even, like, a like a Marxist, like, moral epistemology is, like, a concept of sin, right? Like, in some way, maybe in an abstract way. Well, exactly. Know, like, that's the problem. See, that's the risk. Does, if you, you, know, if you uh, to completely way, yeah. discredit, if you go full edgelord atheist mode and you try to discredit the idea that, like, humans have, you know, a propensity to, like, sin and do things that are, like, you know, uh, commonly objectively held as evil, then, like, what do you do about, like, the ruling class and the capitalists and the imperialist mad dogs? 
and all that stuff. Well, it, like, does it not matter as much? Like, you have, you're invoking that, you know, they're violating a certain sense of justice and they're doing something yeah. that's wrong. Now, of course, Marxism is kind of is more interested than some other ideologies uh, in kind of uh, explaining the the structural aspect of like, you know, it's not all about like the individual capitalist being a bad guy. It's like, but he's still acting as a bad guy, you know, and like so in a yeah. way, it doesn't exempt you from like you're a sinner. <laughs> like and, I mean, you know. I do eventually think this is a very commonly scoffed at thing by atheists, but I do think that like if you really think about it, like and you really interrogate like the idea that there are some things that are good and some things that are bad, then you will end up like having to believe in God because like there's no like if like you know it'll, if everything if if some things are definitely good and definitely bad, like then you know you'll end up believing in God if you exact like you know so, oh I feel certain things are bad. I feel that certain things are good. Either you have to be like, okay, well, your feeling doesn't matter, and if I disagree, then, like, you can, like, you know, if you're going to assert your belief in what's good and what's bad over some other random person's belief or try to work it out by consensus, like, yeah, mm -hmm. maybe, but, like, then you still have to ask yourself, like, where does that feeling come from? Like, what's the source of that feeling? Does it have any significance? Like, why should it have value? Like, you know, if you yeah. really try to hang on to that belief. Again, like, atheists do tend to scoff at that idea, but... You know, and that is different from the idea of revealed religion. Like, that's very different from believing that the Quran is something that is revealed by God. But, like, you know, that's, you know, more basic, like, a uh, prime mover type, you know, first principle thing. But I do think that, sure. like, if you're trying to have any kind of morality at all, like, you're going to arrive at that. Like, you know, if you really interrogate it, like, in the basis of it and the grounding of it, you'll arrive at something yeah, like Yeah, because you know? the only other, uh, I feel like the only other real directions you go of is that, like, well, I, I follow uh, I follow a moral code that is rational. But, like, we've seen how that could be taken in a bad direction before in, you yeah, know, like, also, in the 20th like, century. You know, I follow, and yeah, how like, flimsy uh, that could yeah, be. Yeah, or say, like, I have a follow a moral code that's based on harm. You know, it's wrong to harm people. Like, why? Why is it wrong to harm people? Because you uh -huh. feel that it's wrong. Like because it okay, causes well, pain. What if I disagree? Uh, you know, yeah. like you know, or is it like that? Like not that I do. I do think that that's wrong, but I believe yeah. that like my instinct that it's wrong to harm people. Like I call the source of that idea God. Like that's you know where I feel that that comes from. A, uh, a higher power, yeah. uh, as the God controlled would say. Uh, or not even like yeah I mean, in a way like yeah higher in the sense of like it being exalted but like you know not necessarily being in the sky you know almost yeah. also like a grounding a way I think a grounding of like these beings and these these uh, being in these intuitions you know like if it's just the idea that like there's some kind of evolutionary incentive to like not harm people like okay well maybe I do have like an incentive to like uh, kill my enemy and not get caught or whatever and i can yeah. you know try to overcome my evolutionary impulse like and i just don't care like you know or whatever like uh you can you really tell someone who like you know reasons that can you really tell like uh george w bush that he's done anything wrong if you like you know just believe like the evolutionary rationalist idea of like morality i really don't like necessarily think that that holds up like if it's just your feeling that harming yeah. people is bad like you know, like, uh, well, he feels differently to make an argument. It's not sufficient. <laughs> yeah, his, yeah exactly. he and his father feel it's, differently. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. at a certain point, we got to say, because God said, uh, you know, so <laughs> we are it, yeah, as uh, little children sometimes, you know, that's I think, what I and feel, you the know? capacity uh, for self delusion when there's no commonly held or not a seriously held, like, common sense of good and evil, uh, leads to this kind of like, uh, like, gelatinous, like, 
invidious elite that we have now that like they don't get punished or really even scolded or or held up to like yeah Mm -hmm. yeah for doing bad things anymore like they they really i mean they get they get like they get their feet held to the fire for bullshit you can always pick apart everything, you know, like, uh, you can, like, uh, it, I'm thinking, like, even, uh, you know, on a uh, far less systemic level, you know, like, people on Twitter being, like, you know, is incest between, like, uh, you know, uh-huh. uh, a father and, like, an adult son, like, really that bad or whatever? Uh-huh. Like, no one is harmed. <laughs> something yeah, like that. It's like, exactly. Well, you know, if you just, like, read the Koran, like, you would know, like, that's just bad. And, like, just don't <laughs> think about it, you freak. Like, you know, I mean, granted, yeah, like, there yeah. are, like, you know, there have been, obviously, religious systems in history, like, uh, you know, uh, Zoroastrianism or, like, uh, in ancient Egypt, where, like, w- within the elite, maybe they would allow something like that, but, you know, that's why. Yeah, the pharaohs, some of them married, like, uh, yeah. their sisters, like, yeah, yeah, yeah there's yeah, some yeah, weird yeah. shit like Although, that. Although, you know, but... uh, not as much as maybe some people think, because I feel like, I did hear that, like, the I, the word for, like, uh, husband and wife, like, were just sometimes the same as the word for brother and sister, so, like, sometimes it seems more like, you know, uh, more people okay. committed than actually okay. did, but still people did uh and in zoroastrianism it was and uh, european yeah, royalty uh, uh <laughs> yeah i don't know. know if there were straight up brother sister incest in european royalty. um also like mormons like the, F- the flds had like the highest instances of like uh, congenital birth yeah. defects i think in the country because of their like so, extreme they're all cousins marrying each other for like three generations um that kind so of stuff you, you know some, uh you know uh white nationalists on twitter bemoaning the fall of the sassanian empire or something you know uh and uh, wanting uh, uh zura mazda to like come back or whatever uh, just remember that they were uh doing brother sister incest although you know <laughs> muslims uh, the early muslims are so tolerant of uh other beliefs despite like the oppressive uh zimbi system you know they actually did mm-hmm. like sometimes allow that can- to continue because they re- were respectful of their beliefs uh you know, just like lenin yeah what's, yeah what's yeah, wrong with like, that yeah lenin yeah uh, yeah or, <laughs> sorry uh, i don't mean, uh, yeah. uh, don't mean to insult but, the uh, the prophet uh, but uh, you know uh, um yeah but uh anyway yeah so uh oh just uh yeah, well, in terms of, like, uh, whether I can envision it, uh, you know, can I envision it in detail? No, but I do always think that history is, like, surprising. You know, like, we were talking about in our episode about uh, 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 Monarch of Al-Arafin, like, and, uh, you know, the Mongols, like, converting to Islam. Like, people probably, like, wouldn't necessarily have seen that coming. And there, really, there was a time when, like, Mecca had, like, no Muslims in it, you know? So to mm. say that, like, uh, you know, and I do think that there's a possible rapprochement between uh you know uh islam and uh and marxism i do think that they have things i think that concessions need to be made on both sides you know uh like yes. uh, yeah I, but i think that there and i i feel much for, the same yeah. way about christianity as well which i feel like is is kind of particularly even though yeah it's outside the purview but i feel like it would be relevant to like western europe and well the united states but also like like south america central south america and parts of in africa like christianity and islam would both be very you know important things to like grapple with um and i think that like that rapprochement like say between like catholics and like realizing that kind of um like well for one you have a common enemy 
the globalists, yeah. the capitalist globalists, <laughs> like they want to destroy religion. They don't like they they used you. They used it for a while while it was useful. Now they want to like get rid of it and replace it with something like Luciferian. Uh, they want to like you know <laughs> violate everything. Like as Mark said, they wanted like everything that is sacred shall be profaned, and they're not going to stop until everyone's like bleh, Like I love Lucifer, and you know the Marxists like realize like have you know. The Marxists have to realize that, like, there's an opportunity to frame this in spiritual warfare terms, like, not on, like, Alex Jones or something like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in, like, a, a chill way, but, like, you know, be willing to, like, talk to people on that level and say, because uh, I've had I've had productive conversations with people that are religious when we kind of, like, stay away from, like, the third rails of, like, contention. And even to some degree, like, this podcast sometimes is, like, often, like, us kind of combining, yeah, like, these... the dialectic right now. This uh-huh. podcast is a dialectic the this yep. is, you know this is our way to the islamic marxist jihad vanguard party <laughs> sometime in the future you know the, uh yeah yeah but uh yeah like uh I think uh-huh. like liberation yeah. theology, uh-huh. I guess, is the term that maybe like sums up like all of the. I don't mean it just in a specific like Catholic or mm-hmm. like evangelical uh, con- or you know African American Christian context or whatever, but just like that that term in jet like kind of liberation theology as like a tendency inside religion, marrying it with like this kind of a class struggle like Marxist analysis. I think is a very like powerful thing. Um, you know, just like how like multi-ethnic alliances of like the working class are like powerful as opposed to like everyone being balkanized and like, you know, agitated to hate each other um, and things yeah. like that. And like I whenever think... there can be rapprochement and unity and solidarity between these different like social, economic, political, whatever forces, especially as like unions are like pretty much like a dead thing, like they've all been busted. We don't have traditional secular a lot of uh, traditional secular like uh, arenas for like collaborating together, but religion is like naturally that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have congregations yeah. still, uh, mm-hmm. depending on what state you're in, I guess right now. Yeah, but uh, uh, you have yeah. communities, you know, of like believers, and like those mm-hmm. people uh, can act as like a it can act collectively. It's one of the few sectors left that could have any kind of potential for like collective action in a way. So. I yeah. yeah I think it's, it's yeah. a very interesting thing to consider. Yeah, and you know, uh, yeah, I think like uh, yeah, I mean, well, like the Uma is like in you know dire straits by a lot of accounts, you know, uh, and I think that for political theory that Muslims are doing, like you know, it's very challenging. It's difficult. We have to deal with like a lot of things. Like you know, uh, the longer and the more robust and the more sophisticated tradition, like the harder the you know. Uh, political theory like for these times like can be like you Mm -hmm. have to deal with a lot of things but i think that you know if muslims are going to rise to that and deal with you know the fact that like yeah like how much has changed like over the course of the history of like the broader islamic tradition since the time of the prophet it's all like muslim like Mm -hmm. you know uh, i think that marxists can also like try to like you know realize that things have changed like for them as well and like they might need to rephrase some stuff and think like you know maybe like you know islam owns like maybe (laughs) well yeah i mean there's no there's no there's no redos of the 20th century or like the 6th century you know we get we got to play it as it lays now and we got to learn the lessons from you know uh earlier attempts right
yeah. and do the dialectic. Right. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. inshallah. Oh, I did want to mention one last thing. There actually was, I don't know if uh, maybe uh, the questioner, uh, Liberty Uprising, actually uh, did know of this, but there is another uh, book about Abu Zard that I guess Shariati had translated uh, uh-huh. by... Uh, an Egyptian uh, writer, uh, which actually I guess that's probably maybe where he got the idea of the God-worshipping socialist, because that's how the title is sometimes uh, translated, Uh, but I think it was by, like, uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, Oh, uh, Abdul Hamid Jaldat al-Sahar. So, yeah, it's a a title Abu Zar. Yeah, there is another, I don't know if it's in English, though, uh, but maybe... uh, uh, it can uh, be found, but uh, yeah, I thought that that uh, might be worth mentioning uh, as well. Okay. As, as, as well, else. yeah. yeah. Uh, Check it out. Moving on to number seven now. You want to read that? Yeah. Whatever ha- Parenti Sound System asks, uh, whatever happened to the Bermuda Triangle? Is it purely a matter of GPS making ship disappearances much less common, or was something weird going on there? I remember it being kind of a big thing in the 90s, but you almost never hear about it now. Maybe they finished building the ruling class's secret underwater base? <laughs> um, hmm, yeah, hmm. well, the theory that you float in the last sentence uh, is interesting. Uh, that possibly mm-hmm. has some credence. But, you know, in the traditional Bermuda Triangle stories, you know, the eeriness around the Bermuda Triangle goes back to like you know christopher columbus like saw like a ufo in the Bermuda triangle is like one of the old Bermuda triangle really? stories. so yeah oh, that's, that's that. what is sometimes said yeah like he saw mm. like a light in the area like in the sky you know i think he interpreted it as some kind of you know divine uh prodigy as i'm you know did it have a swastika on it by any chance <laughs> it was a it was a flugelrad. Yeah. Did anyone yeah, speak German to him from it? Uh, yeah, yeah. That, uh, they shouldn't have sent an Italian to do a. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a shame it's, Germany it's, didn't really build a navy until later. You know. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, they could have discovered the flugelrad. Yeah, they could have. Uh, yeah, mm. if they had made first contact. Um, yeah, but instead he was like a subhuman med. Anyway. Uh, I don't know. Like the yeah, the Bermuda so. Triangle. Yeah, I, I'm just reacquainting myself a little bit with some of the the disappearances of it. Uh, like most of the recorded ones in the 20th century uh i'm not mm, uh, yeah i don't know i don't know there could well, be something you know, they interesting say there. the skeptoids uh of the Bermuda <laughs> triangle uh will just say that like there actually isn't like anything about the Bermuda triangle that is like actually unusual <laughs> like in mm-hmm. that you know the ship the rates of ship disappearances aren't actually higher than anywhere else in the world that's like similar you know like any similar triangle of the ocean um Mm -hmm. you know that i feel like is i don't necessarily have like the knowledge of oceanographic disasters disappearances uh adequate to like counter that uh because yeah i guess i you know maybe yeah there are those I, out there who might uh, maybe we should do an episode we could do a deep dive to see if there is anything to be a triangle but uh, I, yeah, I'm a I little bit I intrigued mean, by the Atlantis theory that like Atlantis is beneath it and maybe some old like technology that causes like gravitational like, like, mag- like, there's, yeah, like, like magnetic a rock disturbances. On, like a death ray button like underneath yeah, there, yeah. And it's, like firing like <laughs> invisible. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, like yeah. some old uh, anti-aircraft uh, like you know uh, countermeasure technology is like emanating, which makes your compass spin around. Hmm. Uh, uh, yeah. I, you know, if there, if there, if there is some lore on that, I'd be interested. 
uh, to dive into it. I'm sure there is it. some lore on that. I'm sure there's some lore around Atlantis. Atlantis is interesting because on one hand, I almost feel like Atlantis is just like the idea of Atlantis is just the United, like you know, the Americas basically, like not the United States, the the Americas, like the hmm. idea that there's another continent like out there, like in the like Atlantic direction, you know. Uh, sure. It's like, but. Yeah, but I mean, there's all—that's like, very. I mean, well, Atlantis it's the idea that it was episode. wiped out. It's a civilization. It, yeah, it doesn't right, even have yeah, the, the ruins that like Greece Lemuria, or Egypt has. It could be Mu. Yeah. you know, you could. It could yeah, be anything yeah. like that. Yeah, right. Of course, of course. Yes. Yeah, I'd be interested um, in that. I, I I can't say for sure. It depends on what we can dig up by the Bermuda Triangle. I feel like it's a uh, you know potentially uh, uh, something interesting to dive. Well, I definitely think that into, like mysterious appearances at sea are interesting, but I feel like you'd yes. have to like go through like. For every, I almost do tend to think that there are probably a lot of, like, Bermuda Triangle ones that are, like, you know, not interesting. And for every one that is interesting, yeah. like, you know, there would be one that would be equally, like, uh, interesting not from the Bermuda Triangle, you know? Mm -hmm. like uh, Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. For sure. So, so we'll, um, we'll see about that. We'll see about that. Yeah, I don't know. Like, uh, yeah. Um, but it's generally on the it's it? it's it's higher on the top of my pier on my pyramid, closer to seek help. You know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Kidding. Not really. Not really. It's a pretty benign theory. Um, um, but in terms of yeah. the stock and importance I place in it, uh, I think there are like weirder anomalous things that have happened around the world that that might have to do with like air aircraft or yeah there's a triangle that... around where i live called the bridgewater triangle uh as well like there's all mm -hmm. like uh which is like a, a area of weird paranormal activity uh, is that where uh, the perfect storm uh occurred that movie uh, the you know perfect storm uh yeah it wait, was like a bunch of boston guys or something like it was a bunch of like, like mass holes um, yeah, well, I feel like that probably was near the ocean, whereas Bri the Bridgewater Triangle is, like, inland, kind of. Oh, and, okay, uh, okay, interesting. You know, so, okay. uh, uh, hmm. yeah, like, uh, I, uh, yeah, I remember there's, like, one story, this is not to do with the Bermuda Triangle, this is completely out of left field, but there's, like, one story of a guy who saw, like, a little tiny creature that was just saying, like, he wants you! Iwan Chu to him and he like went home and he was like puzzling and, like what did that creature mean Iwan Chu what does it mean and then he realized it was saying like I, uh, like, I want you like and he was like no like uh, or what about he he wants you no you know, very yeah, much like I, I, he, yeah. I think he would like this you know like that kind of thing yeah. you know he right. yes, exactly. uh, I will follow there's him there's something he'll like yeah um. exactly uh, yeah so yikes yeah like there's like weird standing stones around there and stuff so I I don't know people are all about like uh these triangles uh but yeah i don't know like i it. guess yeah I mean, I, but it is interesting his question like you know about why people lost interest in it like you know why do people not like because it was a big thing in the 90s it's true did, did, it like, might you be know, a gps thing like, like taking the mystification out of almost all uh things with the rare exceptions like mh370 which by the way what the fuck ever happened at that point <laughs> uh that would be an episode um, i feel like the diego garcia theories like like i'm fascinated with like diego garcia as like a hub of like evil activity or something you know like that like uh i could go all day on like mh370 because that is still like in our era of gps it's probably the only one i can think of that we like it disappeared you know i mean talk about dracularity well, like yeah it they does only have, have theories i read but you know yeah i read a very very like chilling scary 
disturbing article about like uh malaysian you know it wasn't like paranormal or anything to do with like atlantis or whatever but like it uh you know it was just about like the speculation that it was just the pilot like you know uh that he had like personal problems and like he committed suicide but the description of the flight like you know what happened was like so like disturbing just like Mm. you know he basically like do you buy it do you buy the theory um, I don't really know. It seemed, like, relatively plausible because what they found, like, they found, like, on his, like, he would play a lot of time in a flight simulator, and they yes. found, I mean, maybe they planted it, maybe it was a cover-up, but, you know, mm. uh, they found on his computer, like, a simulation, basically, of the flight just, like, going on, like, over the Atlantic Ocean, you know, like, uh, or maybe the Pacific Ocean, yeah, like, where, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, the South Pacific, in, I think, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So what, until it ran out of fuel? Uh, yeah, basically, that he just went into... Uh, or maybe he eventually did a nosedive. That was their speculation. Yeah. But, yeah, he just, like, sort of flew it, like, you know... Uh, and, yeah, he, like, killed everybody on board, basically. Uh, like, depressurized the cabin, like, so that oh, they wow. would, like, kind of, like, pass out and then die. It was, like, very... Um, hold on, let me see Creepy. if I can actually find it. It's, yeah, um, I'm just going to try to find it, because since I've been talking about it, I... Uh, yeah, like, uh, Persistence of Conspiracy, maybe. Yeah, uh, I found it. It was an Atlantic article, so, you know, you can take mm. it with a, a grain of salt here. But, uh, yeah, like, um, this is what uh, they said. Like, uh, so, um, in truth, a lot, ca- you know, again, you know, to grain of salt, I think this is a very, uh, this is a spooky theory in and of itself, the way that they describe it. So, you know, uh, I wouldn't put it in the same category of those uh, other uh, debunkers, but it does have a bit of a debunking tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not about the Bermuda Triangle, but whatever. We're talking about it. So when we mention something, I feel like, you know, I got to. Uh, all right. All right. All right. Let's, In let's truth, hear it. A lot can be known with certainty about the fate of MH370. First, this appearance was an intentional act. It is inconceivable that the known flight path accompanied by radio and electronic silence was caused by any combination of system failure and human error. Computer glitch, control system collapse, squall lines, ice, lightning strike, bird strike, meteorite, volcanic ash, mechanical failure, sensor failure, instrument failure, radio failure, electrical failure, fire, smoke, explosive decompression, cargo explosion, pilot confusion, medical emergency, bomb, war, or act of God. None of these can explain the flight path. I mean, God could have done it, but I don't see why he would. Uh, Second, despite theories (laughs) of the contrary, uh, control of the plane was not seized remotely from within the electrical equipment bay, a space under the forward galley. Pages could be spent explaining why. Control was seized from within the cockpit. This happened in the 20-minute period from 1.01 a.m. when the airplane leveled at uh, 35,000 feet to uh, 1.21 a.m. when it disappeared from secondary radar. During that same period, the airplane's automatic condition reporting system transmitted its regular 30-minute update via satellite to the airline's maintenance department. It reported fuel level, altitude, speed, and geographic position. It indicated no anomalies. Its transmission meant that the airplane's satellite communication system was functioning at that moment. By the time the airplane dropped from the view of secondary, transponder-enhanced radar, it is likely, given the implausibility of two pilots acting in concert, that one of them was incapacitated or dead or had been locked out of the cockpit. Primary radar records, both military and civilian, later indicated that whoever was flying MH370 must have switched off the autopilot because a turn the airplane then made to the southwest was so tight that it had to have flown by hand. Circumstances suggested whoever was at the controls deliberately depressurized the airplane. At about the same time, much if not all the electrical system was deliberately shut down. The reasons for that shutdown are not known, but one of its effects was to temporarily sever the satellite link. 
An electrical engineer in Boulder, Colorado named Mike Exner, who was a prominent member of the independent group, has studied the radar dates extensively. He believes that during the turn, the airplane climbed to 40,000 feet, which was close to its limit. During the maneuver, the passengers would have experienced some G-forces, that feeling of being suddenly pressed back into the seat. Exner believes the reason for the climb was to accelerate the effects of depressurizing the airplane, causing the rapid incapacitation and death of everyone in the cabin. The intentional depressurization would have been an obvious way, and probably the only way, to subdue a potentially unruly cabin in an airplane that was going to remain in flight for hours to come. In the cabin, the effect would have gone unnoticed, but for the sudden appearance of the drop-down oxygen mass and perhaps the cabin crew's use of the few portable units of similar design. None of those cabin mass was intended for more than about 15 minutes of use during emergency descents to altitudes below 13,000 feet. They would have been of no value at all cruising at 40,000 feet. The cabin occupants would have become incapacitated within a couple of minutes, lost consciousness, and gently died without any choking or gasping for air. The scene would have been dimly lit by the emergency lights, with the dead belted into their seats, their faces nestled in the worthless oxygen mass dangling on tubes from the ceiling. Uh. Ugh. Yeah. Horrifying. I mean, that's creepy. Yeah. That's creepy. Um, yeah. Is, uh, is it as creepy as getting remotely hijacked and flown to Diego Garcia, where, like, Blackwater mercenaries, like, kill everybody on board? But why? Wait, well, what's that theory? Uh, that uh, we'll save that Blackboard for another day. We'll save that for another day because I, I mean all that's right, just right. uh, in terms of the Dracularity of it. There are other theories about what happened. Okay, which really... yeah, I did. Uh, I did hear uh, a friend's, I think a mutual friend's uh, uncle or something, for the theory that like it was hijacked by Pakistan, like and kept in like a, a hangar to then be used as like a 9/11 type weapon against Israel. <laughs> yes, there are a lot of like, really? w- there are a lot of wild hot takes like that basically uh, around it, and I think. It would be um, it would be interesting to like as we've done with so many other things to at least like explore them, give them their day in court, and see you know uh, the kind of things because it, it did happen in like a weird period, uh, you know, of kind of late Obama was it, like twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen, um, and. Like it was like right before Trump, and it was spooky, and you know everything wasn't like uh gone like crammed into like the RussiaGate QAnon binary that like mm-hmm. we have today. So I don't know. It could be interesting, but anyways, that is not about the Bermuda Triangle. So I guess we can uh, no, unless, we can move on. You know, on. maybe they flew to Bermuda the Bermuda Triangle, and that's why it disappeared. Yeah, you know, maybe they made it there. Uh, maybe there was a time warp. I don't know. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah, a disappearance, uh, you know. It's in the same vein. Uh, anyway, like uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I regret, but not I don't. Bringing yeah, up all right. I guess I just don't know. Um, it is yeah. curious. I do wonder uh-huh. why people stop talking about that. All right, we're gonna move on to eight. We're yeah, in the interest anyways, of time. We're gonna um, move on it's because okay. an orange man showed up. That's why. Um, yeah, or, anyways, yeah, orange so, man. Yeah. The orange man destroyed it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take a seat. Right over there, sat on the stairs, stay or leave The cabinets are bare and I'm unaware of just how we got into this mess Got so aggressive, I know we meant all good intentions So pull me closer, why don't you pull me close? Why don't you come on over? I can't just let you go Oh baby, why don't you just meet me in the middle? I'm losing my mind just a little So why don't you just meet me in the middle In the middle
asks, this question might sound vague, but what happened to pop music? I define pop music as, quote, the music you hear when you're out and about in daytime public places. Everyone knows what 80s pop music sounded like. And then the 90s was grunge and R&B and some teen ensembles and Dave Matthews-ish stuff. And the 2000s was a combo of boy bands, Eminem, and a lot of up-tempo R&B that could either be club or radio music, like Usher. But then starting in the mid-2010s, and ever since, there's been this strange, frenetic pop music playing everywhere that all sounds like the singer, they usually have some sort of androgynous voice that could be female or a higher-pitched male, is having a low-key, barely managemental breakdown about a relationship. The lyrics are almost universally about someone sort of losing it, falling apart, etc., and the music matches this vibe. In the absence of MTV, I have no idea who these artists are, if they're one-hit wonders or what, but the music all sounds really similar. It's not really rock and roll, and it's not hip-hop or R&B. It sounds mostly synthesized without any rough-edged guitars or beats. Whenever I hear these songs now, I call them MK music because I don't know what else to call them. Another distinguishing thing about these songs to me is that they aren't really catchy in the way that pop songs used to be catchy. Instead of hooks, they have these sort of ascending, descending crescendos where the singer gets increasingly frenetic slash upset and then breaks into a new chorus. Um, and then I think, I believe, um, Zizix included an example of this, which uh, was the song The Middle from 2018 by Zed with two Ds and uh, two other artists whose name I forget. And I feel like if anybody's, you know, spent any time at uh, a CVS or a Rite Aid or a supermarket or Target or something, you probably couldn't escape this horrible song. Um, are, are you familiar with it? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, may, maybe I am. Uh, what um, was it? let me the... send it to you. Let me just send it to you right now so you can be, inf- it can be inflicted upon you. Um, because okay. I think uh... it actually is. Zizix provided a very good example of like this type of music, which I have noticed as well. Um, I, for a number of years, I actually had a name for it too. I called it uh, CBS music basically because it was mm-hmm. the kind of music yeah. that you I would hear have been in a fair in, amount of CVS so maybe I have heard it uh yeah okay I'm looking at it now yeah uh, um yeah check it check it out I put it in the yeah I, I put it in the chat uh of the on uh, WeChat so you could see it oh there's oh right you the might chat have to copy and paste caster. it all right yeah okay. it's a little keyboard I icon uh I see all right all right yeah here we go wow there's a chat on on WeCaster. we're discovering new things every day all right yeah, uh, right. Really um, yeah, I never use here. it. But okay. no, I, I think there is something about it. And uh, and I actually uh, I found I found an article yeah, from an go. unlikely source that I think can jump out because I think there's a lot going on here. But I think there has been this like flattening new genre, uh, largely spearheaded by producers uh, 
who I both like pretty much despise, uh, Dr. Luke and Diplo. Uh, people have heard me talk shit on the grotto about Diplo before. Uh, and Dr. Luke obviously uh, has a pretty uh, long uh, track record now of like uh, abuse uh, and things like that from, you know, artists like Kesha. But they were really responsible for almost like the majority of these types mm-hmm. of pop songs over the last 10 years. But I found an right. interesting article because I think it could help flesh us out a little bit um, from the Imaginative Conservative org from 2019 called the ima- why pop uh, music uh, yeah yeah it is it's you know okay. this is a conservative who well, believes in the like, imagination this is like vigilant citizens like you know like a uh, more mild-mannered counterpart uh the imaginative conservative okay yes uh, exactly yeah. exactly um, yeah, yeah yeah this is like okay. the the weekly standard to like sk bane uh kind of thing um but yeah. uh but no i think they bring up some interesting points that could shed some like scientific light on kind of what's going on with music right now so uh they uh, they start out and you know i I think i'll I'll, we'll give him a chance we'll give john henchin here a chance uh today's pop music is designed to sell not inspire today's pop artist is often more concerned with producing something familiar to mass audience increasing the likelihood of commercial success with less timbral variety and the same combination of keyboard drum machine and computer software and with only two songwriters writing much of what we hear is it any wonder that most pop music sounds the same Um, So he talks about how he learned to read music and he played in like a state jazz band or something growing up and, you know, how important it was to like if you're playing jazz to like learn some music theory and be able to like read music, you know, off like, you know, off a sheet and whatnot and how important that was. But I guess musical literacy in that sense has been basically plummeting uh, over the last like 20 or 30 years, along with like music programs in public schools. Um, And so the literacy rate now, I believe, is uh, uh, 50% cannot. No, only 10% of the population can read music uh, reasonably well. And so they go on to say, um, you know, uh, yeah, it's actually for conservative, not bad. Uh, Two primary sources for learning to read music are school programs and at-home piano lessons. Public school music programs have been in decline since the 80s, often with school administrations blaming budget cuts or needing to spend money on competing extracurricular programs. Prior to the 80s, it was common for homes to have a piano with children taking piano lessons. Even home architecture incorporated was referred to as a piano window in the living room, which was positioned above an upright piano to help illuminate the music. Um... And besides the decline of music literacy and participation, this is where he goes like a little LaRouche, I think in a good way. Um, There's also been a decline in the quality of music, which has been proven scientifically by Joan Sarah, a postdoctoral scholar at the Artificial Intelligence Research Institute of the Spanish National Research Council in Barcelona. Joan and his colleagues, uh, or maybe it's Juan, (laughs) I don't know, Uh, maybe it's a typo. Um, But anyway, Sarah and his colleagues looked at 500 100,000 pieces of music between 1955 and 2010, running songs through a complex set of algorithms examining three aspects of those songs. One, timbre, sound color, texture, and tone quality. Two, pitch, harmonic content of the piece, including its chords, melody, and tonal arrangements. And three, loudness, volume variance, adding richness and depth. The results of the study showed 
timbral variety went down over time, meaning songs are becoming more homogenous. Translation, most pop music now sounds the same. Timbral quality peaked in the 60s and has since dropped steadily with less diversity of instruments and recording techniques. Today's pop music is largely the same with a combination of keyboard, drum machine, and computer software greatly diminishing the creativity and originality. Pitch has also decreased with the number of chords and different melodies declining. Pitch content has also decreased with the number of chords and different melodies declining as musicians today are less adventurous and moving from one chord or note to another, opting for well-trod paths by their predecessors. Loudness was found to have increased by about one decibel every eight years. Music loudness has been manipulated by the use of compression. Compression boosts the volume of the quietest parts of the song so they match the loudest parts, reducing dynamic range. With everything now loud, it gives music a muddled sound as everything has less punch and vibrancy due to compression. In an interview, Billy Joel was asked what has made him a standout. He responded his ability to read and compose music made him unique in the music industry, which, as he explained, was troubling for the industry uh, when being musically illiterate makes you stand out. An astonishing amount of today's popular music is written by two people, Lukash Gottwald of the United States, Dr. Luke, and Max Martin from Sweden, who are both responsible for dozens of songs in the top 100 charts. You can credit Max and Dr. Luke for most of the hits of these stars. And here's where I think it lines up with what Zizix is saying. Katy Perry, Britney Spears, Kelly Clarkson, Taylor Swift, Jesse J, Kesha, Miley, uh, <laughs> Miley Cyrus, Avril Lavigne, Maroon 5, Tayo Cruz, Ellie Goulding, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, Ariana Grande, Justin Timberlake, Nicki Minaj, Celine Dion, Bon Jovi, Usher, Adam Lambert, Justin Bieber, Domino, Pink, Pitbull, One Direction, Flo Rida, Paris Hilton, The Veronica's, R. Kelly, and Zebrahead. With only two people writing much of what we hear, is it any wonder music sounds the same, using the same hooks, riffs, and electronic drum effects? Lyrical intelligence was also studied by Sarah over the last 10 years using several metrics, such as Flesh Kincaid Readability Index, which reflects how difficult a piece of text is to understand and the quality of the writing. Results showed lyric intelligence has dropped by a full grade, with lyrics getting shorter, tending to repeat the same words more often. Artists that write the entirety of their own songs are very rare today. When artists like Taylor Swift claim they write their own music, it is partially true. Uh, sorry, this is going to trigger you. Uh, insofar. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to this right now. And <laughs> okay, okay. It's not correct. It's not correct. Uh... Okay, okay, chill, chill. Okay. When uh... artists like Taylor Swift claim they write their own music, it is partially true. Insofar as she writes her own lyrics about her latest boyfriend breakup, but she cannot mm. read music and lacks the ability to compose what she plays. Don't attack me, Tay Tay fans. Uh, Taylor um, Swift is the only writer on Speak Now, an entire album of her own music. Uh, also, she does, like, I mean, Max, write her own lyrics, yeah. Ma- and she writes her own music. Well, some of it. Like, you know, it is some true she uses collaborators. And she did she use. She does collaborate. Uh, she is a collaborator. Max, um, she did use Max Martin on two her two worst albums, 1989 and what's it called? Uh, Reputation. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, when she tried to go red, more pop, which, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, Jack Antonoff is also fucking annoying, uh, but... Yes, he is. Oh, he's another one. one. I mean, but though he 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 kind of, like, straddles that, like, pop. Like, I, you wouldn't even call it indie anymore, but it's, like, kind of a little yeah, more, exactly. like, uh, analog, well, I, I guess. Is, what I think is, uh, you know, a critique you can make of Taylor is the idea of, like, folklore, like, you know, her new album, uh, and Evermore, for instance, like, you know, the, her new, uh, sort of dual albums that are, like, uh, in terms of the homogeny of music, like, uh, you know, uh, they're definitely way better, like, uh, than, uh, what she did, like, in a more pop vein, uh, 
you know, although they are still, like, you know, they have substantial collaborations with, like, Aaron Dessner, uh, for instance, is kind of, like, her new big collaborator, but, like, the idea that that's, like, folk music and not also pop music, like, I don't know if that's even what she claimed, but, like, that kind of, like, yeah, it is very much a Jack Antonoff kind of style of, like, quote-unquote indie, but, like, it's not indie in any way. And then, you like, know what? That uh, also, you know, that also, I feel like, even though it's a different kind of sub-style of its own, that also bursts on the scene and started, like, it, it warming its way into people's ears everywhere you went around, like, 2009, 2010, of, like, basically, I'm thinking of, like, all those bands of dudes who, like, wore, like, dressed like they were from, like, the 1910s and wore, like, suspenders and, like, and all their, like, would play it, you know, like, Bonnaroo and Coachella and all their, like, choruses are just, like, oh, you know, like, that kind of thing and, like, yeah. hey, you know, and, like, clapping and yeah, shit exactly. and, like, playing yeah, old yeah, instruments, yeah. like, mm-hmm. just that, so like, that Jack really... Antonoff. And one of the yes. worst aspects of 1989, where you have that horrible song "Out of the Woods," it's very much on. Yeah, for sure. Mm, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so oh, that yeah. I've I've considered that a cancer for yeah. a long time. What was it? Mumford and mm-hmm. Sons. They were a cursed band yeah, uh-huh. that uh, that kind of pioneered that, and then it spread. And now it's on like every commercial for anything where it just wants to give you this like sweeping sense of like kind of desperation, but like soaring kind of hope, and like it's just so manufactured and like fucking lame. I hate it. Yes. Um, it's kind of a companion uh, yeah. to like what Zizix is talking about with this frenetic prop music. Um, uh, did you listen to that song, the Zed song yet? Uh, yes, I did listen to it. I, it's yeah. interesting because yeah. I really have you heard that I, chorus. I first, well, when I yeah exactly when I first was listening to it, I was like, I have no idea what the fuck this is. But when I heard the chorus, yeah. then I was like, yes, I've heard this. And then especially Diplo pioneered, like, I don't know why it fucking pisses me off so much, but like that kind of like a uh, kind of sort of vocal like digitized artifact where she goes like, like, why don't you just meet me in the middle? And then it goes, like it does that like I'm like and it's just like really fucking annoying it's in every single song Diplo produces like shut the fuck up like it's a stupid dumb artifact I don't know why it has to be in every single song it's like a cheap signature it's lame um and that that chorus is like one of those things where you know it is like like uh Zizek said that it's like somebody like approaching like it's frenetic and like manic and they're kind of having like a breakdown and like also a lot of this music i feel like as it's gotten more licensed in all kinds of advertising i mean this has always kind of been a thing but i feel like people maybe it's part of like the collapse of the traditional uh aspects of the music industry or the consolidation of it like touring and making albums and stuff like like there just isn't the same economic uh, kind of framework anymore in this like digital age so really where the money is at from what I've heard uh, is like in licensing your songs for commercials and so like a lot of indie bands like kind of like went, and of course a lot of boomer musicians you know basically did this uh, uh, starting back in the 90s but now that's really like getting your song on like a Netflix show or something is considered to be like a way to make real money so i even would postulate that especially where these people are getting like it's like basically they have the equivalent of the wrecking crew nowadays except instead of being like really talented jazz musicians they're just like 
electronic producers basically that you know and engineers and stuff like that and the lyricists like same thing like it's not they're not writing like really clever beautiful songs that and getting like a good singer to sing it it i, I wouldn't be surprised if like the influence of we want to write this so it has a kind of vague sensibility that could apply to any number of advertisements or be used in any kind of tv show like keeping all the options open which means like whittling it down to like the most basic denominator of like a listening a listening and emotional response and like that's yes. it so i think it's like really pervading in a way true. yeah like yeah. everything's everything's like subliminally a jingle for a product mm-hmm. or a service yeah i think that's especially true of a lot of pop music i mean well you know what i uh will say for one you know uh taylor definitely has the ability to compose uh what she sings you know she yeah you know taylor has, like, i know i'll, I'll, I'll give you that i'll but, give you that because she's but, a great her, she's greatly you know, influenced by the eagles and they were all multi-instrumentalists yeah, who wrote all their own music and so Allegedly i think the country um, at least the country however, side of uh yeah her eagles t-shirt yeah exactly well, um. pop, pop, <laughs> well pop country is another but like uh what i will say is like how you know uh to just to, uh, you know, uh, offer, like, a counterpoint to the imaginative conservative uh, narrative, <laughs> even though I think that a lot of what you're saying is true. Uh, and a lot of it, you know, it does uh, apply to uh, the Quain Taylor. Um, but, you know, is that not true of, like, the doors that they, like, can't compose, you know, like, of all these uh, musicians of the past, that, like, you know, these pop musicians, like... That's a good point. That's a really that good they point. they can't compose, like, what they play, like, you know... Uh, yes. Uh, I guess what the like, difference kind of, is, you know, uh, and I hate I hate to be that guy, but, you know, the facts apparently bear this out, that, like, timbral variety peaked in the 1960s, which means even though you had bands Temporal like The Doors variety. that were kind of a, a Potemkin band in a way um, that mm-hmm. weren't actually maybe playing all the music on their albums or maybe not even writing the lyrics, uh, you had a band like The Wrecking Crew that was like very musically sophisticated and was playing analog instruments and like very complex sometimes. I mean, if you listen to something like Pet Sounds, like very complex like symphonic arrangements that were, you know, we, we were heading towards more complexity and so on. And then if you listen to like a lot of the records of the 70s and kind of like the late analog golden age the the i would say the probably the timbral variety and just everything else of just you know these uh the taking an account like making the sound as beautiful and like deep and and uh, engrossing as possible seemed to be more the order and then with the uh, the rise of electronics um i i remember listening to an interview uh with Ariel Pink canceled uh, Bad Boy uh, Ariel Pink uh, some w- many years ago, and like he went on like a really extreme rant against I guess the uh, the guy who was in the Eurythmics with Annie Lennox, and um, I guess this guy after the Eurythmics Dave Stewart yeah he says that he said I hadn't really like checked up on this but basically Dave Stewart kind of like after the early eighties like went to L A or whatever. And he started producing, like, every single artist. And it was, you know, if you've ever heard a Eurythmic song, it's, like, synth pop, right? And, like, mm-hmm. it's cool for them. But I guess, like, what Ariel Pink was, like, super angry about was that he basically forced everybody into, like, this flattened, like, synthesizer box. And, like, he was a person that really pushed this, like, hyper-standardization of pop to sound like, quote-unquote, 80s music, which is still, in a way, like, better than what we have today. Like, today it feels even more degraded but maybe that's really when like a turning point happened so i think there's a lot uh, to it interesting and... uh stat thing i was just trying to look up what timbral variety even like is and, and understand this uh stat 
And I found mm-hmm. another interesting, like, uh, sort of study about change in pop music over time um, mm-hmm. uh, from an article called uh, Tuning into Psychological Change, Linguistic Markers of Psychological Traits and Emotions Over Time in Popular U.S. Song Lyrics. Um, this is the abstract, you know, I'll try to actually get the thing, uh, but it says American culture is filled with cultural products, yet few studies have investigated how changes in cultural products correspond to changes in psychological traits and emotions. The current research fills this gap by testing the hypothesis that one cultural product, word use in popular song lyrics, changes over time in harmony with cultural changes in individualistic traits. Linguistic analysis of the most popular songs from 1980 to 2007 demonstrated changes in word use that mirror psychological change. Over time, use of words related to self-focus and antisocial behavior increased, whereas mm. related to, words related to other focus, social interactions, and positive emotion decreased. Mm. These findings offer novel evidence regarding the need to investigate how changes in the tangible artifacts of the sociocultural environment can provide a window into understanding cultural changes in psychological processes. So basically, uh, since the 80s, from 1980 to 2007, like, words about, like, self-focus and antisocial behavior increased, whereas words denoting, like, focus on others... So, like you know love like uh, yeah. like friendship I feel like love like, is still pretty prominent uh but i don't know well, like, you know uh, no i think that's a good yeah. that's a good point though because love is still prominent yeah. but instead of uh you know i'm i'm pretty uh like my uh my like my gf and i have a real soft spot for like older country music like bakersfield sound mm-hmm, stuff yeah. and like uh, tammy wynette and like you know uh tanya mm-hmm. tucker and like you know emmy lou harris and people like that and like there's a lot of song i mean you're actually kind of surprised like the territory or like dolly parton like the territory they're navigating is like often complicated like there's a lot of songs about like heartbreak and loss but there's also a lot of songs yeah. well, that like reify like the power that's like a very yes. folk you know for instance, exactly. uh, yeah, there's there's a song on the most recent Taylor album called No Body, No Crime, which was be like her take yes, on a murder I ballad. That. It's the worst <laughs> yeah, murder yeah. ballad like ever fucking written. Yeah, it yeah. makes no sense. Like yeah, that, it makes absolutely the, no fucking sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, know, I remember yeah. it now. Yeah, uh, it was pretty pretty funny. Um, uh, it's but, terrible. But like, yeah, I don't know. Comparing the, the yeah. uh, comparing the yeah. ants, like the the difference between like the the treatments of love, and I feel like there was so much more complex or whatever um and like complicated and like adult just in like a basic way even like 80s like contemporary adult contemporary like some of the don henley solo shit of like you know uh you know uh what is that song like there's a danger in loving somebody too much even that song is like so much more uh artistically like robust and competent and like enduring than any of the shit today even though like when you know we were young we probably thought it was lame but nowadays it's still about love but again Zizix was on point that it's like frenetic it's all about like breaking up or like being freaked out that like you're gonna be left or like or like a kind of like you're not good enough for me or like uh, you know it's like it's like all I don't know it feels like you know like like it's all very juvenile but like in like a weird way uh there's just something off and like kind of dark about it and of course like obviously yes. like anti-social themes in music since 1980 like definitely i mean if you just take like rap and like metal and like rock and roll uh and stuff like that like you it's pretty easy to to chart that out but even like you yeah, know having like megan like- the stallion or something or like uh you know cardi b or Nicki minaj like it's pretty um 
I don't know, like, uh, you know, I, again, not to be Tipper Gore, but like, would I want like noir coming in here? Oh, I thought you were <laughs> no, OK, fine. You're There's other people, noir. too. Um, well, you know, even yeah. Kesha for that matter. Like, I felt the same way when Kesha was uh, or, you know, other people like there's plenty of male uh, artists that you know um yeah well yeah we make the most of the night we want to die young uh the song that had to be pulled under sandy hook uh oh my god know, i want to die young yeah yeah and again yeah, you know all these luminati um, things so i mean i think there's some yeah uh, or, uh, you know olivia o'brien our favorite uh you know oh, driving uh youtube pop trying no, to break in yeah you know, her songs about like wanting to kill tyler and i won't fix me let's yeah, yeah, this no, wigsy all the k's when we pronounce the g's yeah, I don't exist. She's blowing up um, now, by the way, because the sad, the like the sad person, like sad wave is now the dominant thing. Where like Billie Eilish is like getting choked by like off-screen oh, yeah, hands, and like her thing. eyes are turning yeah, white. She's turning into a devil. Put out on her face. What like, the fuck? Like a, a tarantula so crawling up. out of her mouth? Like I'm sorry, what I the saw fuck is going on? That was like all the good girls go to hell, and they're like, what does that mean? And then she was like, it just sounded cool. Like what? <laughs> like stop. Like ah. yeah, like, no, no, I, I, I mean, mean I've. Not to be I've like meant- a fucking get off my lawn reactionary, but like I know, uh, uh, you know just like uh, you know, uh, several years ago when she was like blowing up and becoming famous. I, I think I've mentioned this before, but for a long time, the the follower count of people that she followed on Instagram was six six six. No, uh, well, yeah, cool. I mean, she obviously like is kind of in that unknownism. It, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, she's definitely yeah. in that sort of like playing around with that stuff. Like, uh, yeah, you know, and you know, not sure. to like totally uh, like just like a uh, bag like pile on to like some like nineteen year old uh, star, but whenever they're you know, I think that it's actually her brother that produces her music, so he's easier. Yeah, I to think like, that's go a after weird thing about and... her too is like the sort of like sexual tension not to you know like oh, i think other people would as well like i'm just saying like yeah um, i don't know yeah like uh, i don't know yeah they, 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 they come uh, from a kind of like strange like irish like like entertainment biz like family or yeah. something like they grew up in la and like i don't know kind of what's what's up with that but no, I, I, mean, I do well, think like the Again, aesthetics like, of it does like when you talk about the stars themselves it has a sense of you know i think what the point you're making is that when you talk about the stars themselves it has a sense of like you know because they're all young women and it has a sense of like you know attacking like the expression of these young women but oftentimes you know uh you know i do think that it can tip it on in fairness of just saying that taylor's incapable of composing music uh but you know what is mm-hmm. fair is to talk about like you know uh system that i think has it's something that is like very exploitative towards women uh you know yeah, especially yeah. young stars and i think that that is something that uh oh, incredibly you know, so yeah, you know the haters like taylor you know she can't do anything right you know she's had to fight tooth and nail to co- to survive in that system you know like yeah uh, yeah not, you no, know I, obviously I have, like, like i acknowledge yeah. bad taste but you know i'm just saying it's a brutal <laughs> it's a brutal world like uh you know yeah you, no like, the, yeah, the pressures are tremendous and, and like spit out like what happened to kesha yeah. like you know uh not that I think Kesha has written, like, you know, or maybe even has not even written any of her songs. I really don't know anything about her. Except not for those songs. Not, not like, a, yeah, but, not like the um, TikTok. And, which is funny. She was the first one to, like, throw, like, T-I-K, T-O-K out into, like, the mainstream. I know it comes from, yeah, well, it comes from TikTok. L. Frank Baum and, like, The Wizard of Oz uh, or the Return to Oz yeah. book where I think there's a TikTok man who, like, can do everything but, like, uh, feel or something like that. Like, um, uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. 
you know, yeah, like the we should right. we should do an episode on Return to Oz because it's super creepy yeah. and like MK. Um, but like you know, I don't know yes. the TikTok and like 2010. I remember hearing that song and just being like, uh, like it was grating and kind of like it just. Oh God! Oh like, yeah, uh, yeah. TikTok is a terrible song, but I mean, what happened to her? Like, is terrible. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, now I feel bad for. Know? I feel bad that I had that like reaction like back in 2010 because now I realize like how much Doctor Luke was forcing her to do all of that, and then was like fucking with her career. I've heard anecdotal stories about other people that were like Doctor Luke's artists that like if he senses if he like spots you catches you slipping, he'll like lock you in like a inescapable contract he is kind of like swan like you know basically like he will get control of you and he'll use you for like his ends of like what he'll, he'll project his image of what you're supposed to be which is usually like highly sexualized and like kind of you know um and and going towards this like very uh you know uh timberly uh decrepit like form of pop music that sucks um so i feel like i feel sympathy for anybody that gets like goes into that machine and has to like yes. deal with it but i think like it's kind of incontrovertible and it's like a shaitanic seduction where like you know it's just a persistent that we've allowed to perpetuate where like you know it's these prizes so attractive to people and so entrancing and it's set up as, as a desire but it seems like really you know it's quite awful like you know once you're in it like you can't you know the only way out is through i think a lot of the time you know or just mm -hmm. like you know it mm -hmm. yeah like but there's many people have been like yeah it's it uh yeah so like, but if it, you, it almost yeah. in a way makes sense yeah but i was gonna say yeah like uh oh yeah it almost makes sense that like its product is like uh psychologically like has a psychologically like, negative cast to it and like uh you know uh is uh homogenous and soul deadening because like it's not produced by like you know, uh, a healthy system is produced by like an exploitative and, and twisted one. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, like uh, I've said it before. Say, I think uh, well, yeah, music industry more satan even more satanic than Hollywood. Yeah, it's a tough call, but uh, I could definitely uh, yeah, it's hard to say, but I could definitely uh, see see your point. Uh, I was gonna say that yeah, like it kind of reminds me of like it's almost like um, you know, when they had more timbral variety in the '60s, it's almost like they were like experimenting to like try to hone in on like the ultimate like psyop frequency mm. and like just yeah. it down like over the years to finally get to like you know the one like uh tone that uh people totally like, you know, uh, totally was, i mean like, this is like this is a whole another level uh, we we could talk about 440 hertz and the nazis all day but i feel like there's some yeah, there's there had the to be something going on in the 60s and 70s because there were great advancements in recording technology and in the style of like you know engineering music and it, it's a bizarre testament that like like you would almost want to take it as like a point of faith or, or, or assume that today with all the technology we have, the incredibly sophisticated technology, like I could produce, you know, hypothetically, I guess, like a, a professional sounding track like on my laptop. However, the, the overall quality, it's like everything else in our culture, kind of. It's like somehow the quality has been immensely cheapened by the advancement of yeah. technology. And that seems counterintuitive. Like why... Shouldn't we be able to make better music easier, like for for cheaper and stuff? And then so that introduces the idea of like, okay, there are structural processes going on, like just with the type of technology they're using now. 
I found another article that like cites the same Spanish study, but is like not conservative. Um, from Stereo Mono Sunday. <laughs> no, well, I mean, and, but is it imaginative? Is it imaginative? Yeah, you're right. Uh, I, I don't know how imaginative uh, it is, but yeah, it basically also um, it does talk about like the timber. Yeah, has been declining since the 1960s. So it makes you wonder, aside from just, and and like the role of compression and the loudness factor um, and all that stuff, you have to wonder like were there other uh things at play besides just like oh this is the most efficient way it can't be i know for a fact i heard a little while ago i forget the name of the program but i think it was through it was maybe through like sirius xm um or maybe it was through clear channel i think it was actually through clear channel it was called like like the rising like star program or something like that it was basically a thing where uh, they would partner with the record labels, uh, the conglomerates, when they wanted to put a new star out. And they were able to basically like scientifically like flood the airwaves with a pop song, with the right kind of pop song. And they were able to identify like the amount of times they would need to play it per week for it to get like stuck in your brain. <laughs> like like literally that's kind of what they were talking about was like how do you make a song to where it gets like stuck in your head and it's like well you have right. to play it like like you have to play it you know three times an hour or something for like three weeks straight on like every single station so in a way they're almost able to take this like very generic not very good music and just by sheer force of will and using like algorithms and and saturating the airwaves with it they're able to like make it a hit through ubiquity yeah. which is like disgusting which is weird though <laughs> you know? because if they can make like you know if the why not make like, good music yeah, though well, right but yeah but or why not make at least more shitty music because you would think that like they would i mean i know it all sounds the same so maybe it all blurs together but i feel like they're just always playing the same shit like that like why don't you just make like i've heard that a billion times like so <laughs> yeah if, like, yeah well and that's the thing maybe may- so many other songs just like you know why not you know just have another ver- like you know uh right like, I mean, well that also yeah, makes me know, wonder maybe. about uh, things are so much more balkanized now where it's like we don't all have like the same tv show everybody watches or like the same recording artist might not be like the there might be very few that like everybody listens to no, it's yeah, much it's more like you know like stovepiped uh, yeah. and stuff so maybe the way it's like they want to build something approaching like a common pop culture but they want to use it with the most shitty empty like satanic crap music ever so that everyone like coheres around that music and like i guess like i don't know i feel like it's like it's vampiric it sucks like it drains your soul energy it like lowers your vibrational frequency it calcifies your pineal gland (laughs) what 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 is the middle about like what is like the song about it's like okay let's see take a seat right Let, there let's do the a deep you want to do a deep reading of it okay stay um, or leave uh the cabinets are bare and i'm aware of just how we got into this mess got so aggressive i know we meant all good intentions i also just hate it in songs where like you know uh there's many examples of this in all sorts of songs but i just hate it when like you know they just like things say like uh i know we meant in- like you, you, like i meant intentions like you intended intentions like what it like, kind of stop. insults like, me uh, just in general like like if you're a songwriter like wh- what does that mean yeah like, uh there was uh just as a not good english the same, uh <laughs> the same topic of pop music there was a, a new a song that recently was forced on all of us was the song uh driver's license maybe you encountered that you know like I oh yeah i did like, i did yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, uh, yeah, she was being called a new, uh, Taylor. Uh, so I looked into that, uh, out of curiosity, you know, but of course, like, uh, uh-huh. you know, it was pretty hard to avoid. 
Um, but not in that song, but uh, it was actually part of like a feud, like obviously like a fabricated thing where it was like a love triangle between like these different Disney people. And like uh, that song is by the brunette, but like in the love triangle, there's also a blonde girl. Um, and there is a song by the blonde girl who, uh, you know, was uh, like a rebuttal to that song. And she said mm-hmm. something that was like, one of the lyrics in that song just drove me insane because it was like, you can try to get under, uh, like, you know, try to get under my skin or like, you can't get under my skin while he's on mine, you know, kind of like saying like, you know, you can't get under my skin while like, you know, I'm with this guy or whatever, but like, I'm sleeping with your boyfriend. That's not how grammar works. Like you can try to get <laughs> under my skin while he's on mine. Like that makes no fucking sense. Like you have to say while he's on it, like, because like you be if I get under your skin while he's on mine, that would be okay. But like that literally is like completely nonsense. Like dude, you can't say that. Like I'm sorry. Like stop. Yeah, no. I mean, I mean, of course we want to make you know uh, songwriting and like you know uh, lyrical. And I'm not like you know, music. about grammar or anything. I know, like, I know. Uh, well, no and you know, like sense. the use of idioms uh, in songs, like, is obviously a great thing. But when you're saying things like that, or like, I know we meant all good intentions, it's kind of like that's not like a phrase people say. It's just well, random. It's just like, like you know, yeah, and it's just like all like obviously like yeah, like the idea is there, but like the thought to like develop it isn't put in like you know like uh the the idea of the rhyme or whatever like the rhyme between i don't know what the rhyme is with intentions in this line uh maybe with it's like aggressive and like intentions i think it's like that's not even like yeah alive yeah yeah sia is another great example i think we we talked in the the questions uh sub chat a little bit about sia who i feel like was also a huge like booster of this type of sound and is now in like a super group called lsd with diplo so cool and uh like Uh, making like making problematic like musicals about kids with autism is that uh. she adopted like a child like that she saw in an HBO documentary about orphans and like uh, okay. that, yeah I read a crazy article about her how like the, the you know she met the kid and he was like I you know he was like 16 or something and he, she met he met the kid and, uh, you know uh, she was like I want to adopt you and he was like oh well can my cousin come and she was like yeah you know I can't separate you from your cousin and it was obviously just like his friend you know so like <laughs> yes, ended up like uh, you know so she just adopted these like two friends like uh, yeah so now like Rachel Dolezal she's the mother of two black sons but um oh, you know God. yeah, yeah like, um, uh, it's like a very bizarre thing to like see a documentary on HBO and be like I must adopt this child but I guess like if you're gonna get adopted by anyone after being an orphan for 16 years or even 18 years like you know, that's, I guess it's good for it to be like a billionaire, like, or, you know, millionaire, like, see, so yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I just, I just find her whole aesthetic, her vocal, like, style yeah. is, like, grating and weird, and, like, there's such a depressing vibe. The fact that she uses, like, a 12-year-old kid and has her, like, uh, like, mud wrestle with, like, Shia LaBeouf inside of a cage, like, there's so many weird MK things. Again, like, she always has her, like, alter, like, basically getting, like, attacked by, like, demonically possessed dancers. There's a specific choreographer that does the choreography for a lot of these types of songs in their music videos where like his specialty is a kind of almost like mimicking a demonic possession like you can kind of see it in all her videos and it's considered clearly like in the 2010s it was considered very like cool and edgy and like wow like but i've always found it like sus and weird like i just don't like given like the the downer notes of the songs 
and like the weird kind of like abuse illusions that are all over it, but not in like a real genuine way. It's like just very bizarre. Um, I also noticed that like when you really I didn't I feel like these lyrics can kind of like put a spell over you because when I'm looking at the middle just you know break this down like the actual i don't like there's there's kind of a tonal disconnect i think with like the 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 vibe of the song and the melody and everything and like what the lyrics are saying so you know basically the lyrics are like take a seat right over there sat on the stairs stay or leave the cabinets are bare and i'm unaware of just how we got into this mess got so aggressive i know we meant all good intentions so pull me closer why don't you pull me close why don't you come on over i just i can't just let you go oh baby why don't you just meet me in the middle i'm losing my mind just a little so why don't you just meet me in the middle and then blah blah and then the second verse uh oh take a step back for a minute into the kitchen floors are wet and taps are still running dishes are broken how did we get into this mess got so aggressive i know we meant all good intentions um and the chorus again the song is about like a like like domestic like violence violence, basically yeah and like looking at you so like saying like why don't you just like you know can't we just compromise like you know can't we like can't you just meet me in the middle yeah yeah and also yeah also the bridge here i because we're doing a classic pop structure here you know verse chorus verse Uh, chorus bridge whatever looking at you i can't lie just pouring out admission regardless of my objection oh oh and it's not about my pride i need you on my skin just come over pull me in just and then the chorus again and then it's over so like yeah this is like like breaking dishes like the tap is like running the there's water all over the floor like every Everything's like, oh, we got so aggressive. Like, how'd we get into this mess? We meant well. And like, but just do your uh, best, do everything you can, and don't you worry what their bitter hearts are gonna say. Don't, ignore your friends who tell you to get out of this relationship. It just yeah. takes some time. Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride. Everything will be just fine. Everything will be all right. All right. I don't know. I feel like if you're at the point where like you're breaking China, it's like a bad situation. Yeah. Uh, just saying, yeah. you know, like. No, for sure. Um, what? Oh, I guess I'm reading different lyrics from a No, uh, that, that sounded like, like a different uh, song, real quick. Yeah. I was confused. Is yeah, that the everything's going to be all right? Is that Rockabye <laughs> you're saying? Like, I don't know. Uh, um, no, it's from a song called The Middle by Jimmy Eat World. Uh, when I'm looking at Oh, oh it, just, it just takes some time. Yeah, okay. I, I played that this morning and, like, compared uh, the two songs. Because, like my, like, my GF, like, hadn't heard this terrible song, The Middle. But obviously knew about like Jimmy Eat World and just comparing those two, I mean at least Jimmy Eat World song is like a catchy, like uh you know pop punk anthem that has like you know this like spirit of like teenage excitement at like a first crush and like uh, you know like I remember when that song came out it like it it, it served a purpose it hit a vibe you know um, <laughs> but this um, is like about domestic like violence like we're fucking like we're getting a divorce and we're like getting into like a violent fight like breaking dishes and like destroying our house but like why don't you just meet me yeah. in the middle like what like this is like dissociated this is like she's like yeah. mk'd or something and like so is or just i know we meant good intentions what does yeah that's also that feels like crowleyan that feels fucking crowd yeah. we meant exactly. all good intentions like, we, had, like, we meant our will you know exactly yeah when we, we did the ritual will. like on our, our personal uh, we altar will and the next thing you know <laughs> um 
the slave <sighs> shall serve uh yeah apologies to our thelemite listeners um but uh or, yeah, yeah or you know uh, i don't know is she singing to the um, devil that she or the djinn that she like sold her soul to for fame and success and now like her life is falling apart and like yeah. you know jin why don't you meet me in the middle i'm losing my mind like uh you know how do we get into this mess uh i made my intentions good it's not about my pride i need you on my skin well, so the it's like you know is like yeah that is the liminal domain like the the barzakh you know like why don't you just meet me like in the space between in the worlds, field beyond you know? good uh, and evil uh. yeah <laughs> yeah, um, yeah right, exactly yeah. um it's yeah, us like um, it's us yeah it is it is interesting like uh, i mean well you know you definitely could compare some of that uh you know uh poetry which is highly formulaic like uh, you know islamic uh poetry which is highly formulaic its meaning and its significations can change and the form can be applied in different ways like for instance the idea of love poetry uh being about like a lover versus being about god you know the classic thing but you can see like the complexity of the idea of love you know as a heuristic that kind of shapes and moves and i have noticed this thing uh to do with you know not necessarily in this song per se um but uh with love in general where like love is for instance in movies Mm -hmm. love is like really the basic thing like you know the the core value that always is upheld like in a movie you know like that's Mm -hmm. the ultimate morality like the moral barometer that like uh or the sort of uh core like ethical or like moral cosmology that exists like you know the, the value that is always being upheld is like this sort of broad idea of like love uh but it's extremely vague it doesn't have like any specific like or social dimension uh you know and like i'm sure you could critique other like ideas of love like in the past at various times but yeah it is interesting like you know love is a very powerful concept but yeah uh and of course it's good like you know it's something that is uh definitely like you know it by its very nature it's like it basically is similar to good where it's like a kind of uh dialogue or like circular definition with like you know yeah no for sure but i guess you know know, this song in a way is about love and but like what is it trying to say i genuinely don't know i almost think like you know uh yeah i i definitely am sympathetic to the shaitanic reading but another reading and maybe they aren't mutually exclusive but like i almost feel like it's so lazy that like yes they just like use tropes like oh people are fighting one uh-huh. of the tropes of a of a, a spat at fighting is like breaking China, you know. So like, let's just put that in. Like even though like, oh, completely... there's been so much pat. It's alluding to some kind of passionate argument, but like you yeah, have no idea what like, it's about know, or well, who these I feel people like are. Even, like, going back to like the I love like I love Lucy or whatever. Like you know, that's like a that's like a tropic image of like uh, a lover's quarrel. Even though like of course, like if you're actually in a situation like nowadays, like we understand that you should not be throwing like ceramic plates, like you know. Yeah, or like running, I don't know, stuffing (laughs) up the sink, uh, like the the sink drain and like flooding it like the wet bandits in Home Alone. Like, what the fuck are they doing in there? You know, there's like water all over the floor. Like, you know, are you like flooding the house on purpose, like destroying it because you didn't get it in the divorce? Like, it's really like dark and like and also the melody, you know, yeah, right. Like an illusion (laughs) pole to like, you know, uh, I don't um, know. I don't know. And also, if you if you took out the lyric, if you showed me the lyrics on a piece of paper and then you played me the melody for the song like i wouldn't put the two together like it is not the tone of like a marriage is falling apart and there's a lover's quarrel like it's like this chipper like like just sort of very simple like almost like i think it might even just be a three note you know it's like do do 
And it's just that over and over again. Like, there's not even any tonal variation. Like, you know, basically. And it just doesn't sound like a song about, like, lovers, like, falling apart. It's, like, it's cheapening this, like, terrible, violent downfall of, like, a relationship. And, like, Mm -hmm. uh, trivializing it by just, like, meet me in the middle. Like, I guess it means, you know, I guess maybe we're overthinking it. It's just about why can't we just (laughs) compromise and, like, come together. But, like... Ugh, like I don't know I don't know there's something off about it it doesn't uh doesn't emotionally connect with me and it feels like uh a, a gr- feels like it's trying to like uh corrode my soul or something like that like it's it's deeply empty and I feel like maybe it's not an accident <laughs> that it's all empty because yeah. like why I don't know like what couldn't they you know couldn't they make slightly better music if they're just gonna make CVS music like there's all kinds of music you can make like, like like this pop music this type of pop like doesn't need to exist basically you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like I, there's all kinds of different styles of music and versions of genres that are like there's pop versions of every genre so you can have a catchy song but it doesn't need to be in this like weird nether region like the dr luke zone where it's all just like completely stripped of any like humanity or you know timbral uh diversity <laughs> yeah this is an but they, that's what they uh, want that's what they want uh larouche was kind of right that like rock and roll is the most debased form uh of music ever yeah um actually it's no this is more debased uh, than rock and roll i think i can say uh, hands down. yeah i mean what is it like yeah like what yeah, i guess it is pop it's really hard but to it, say. It, like, it, yeah, but it, like, it, it doesn't have a name. It won't categorize itself, which is also yeah, sucks. It's, it's like it won't shifty. cop to being yeah, a subgenre. It's just what's yeah. most popular, which is completely yeah. engineered. It's not uh, like I said Lordy, earlier with the the rising uh, the rising yeah, star like, program or whatever. Like, uh, you know, basically, uh, it like if if Swan, if the proverbial Swan like wants you to be the next star, yeah. they can brute force it into reality now. So it has nothing to do with really like what's actually the most resonant or catchy or like quote unquote best song so it's like uh it's just but it's just lurking out there pretending to be the natural winner of like a meritocratic like marketplace so that makes it even feel more sinister because it's like you shouldn't be the number one song i hear everywhere i fucking go at least when it was like adele or something like rolling in the deep years ago and you did hear it like literally everywhere you went it was like well yeah, but, like, this is, like, a good song. Like, you know, it's, like, not... It's, like, well-produced with, like, real instruments with, like, a very talented singer, and it's kind of got a good melody. You know... Do you know what I mean? Or maybe a Taylor Swift song might be resonating with you as an example a little more, where, like, it's poppy, uh, but you're like, okay, I can at least get, like... Yeah. There's, there's, no, a, there, there, I mean, there's there a craft at work awful, here. There are awful Taylor Swift songs, like, Me, uh, You Need to Calm Down... <laughs> Like, yeah. the singles uh, sometimes, like, are the worst ones because those are the ones that are going to be played on the radio, actually. Uh, yeah. You know, so it kind of makes sense. But uh, there are, like, songs by that she did that are just dreadful. But there are also good ones. She, you know, and I think, yeah, she, uh, you know, uh, there's many things about Taylor that stand out. But, of course, you know, uh, don't, uh, <laughs> like, uh, uh, highlight her, like, un- uncritically, you know. I uh, know she's not to everyone's taste, uh, nor is she, like, the most... Uh, uh, talented musician like uh, in the world she's just the artist of the decade you know but uh, anyway um, <laughs> fair enough I think yeah, we could like, uh, uh, we could probably uh, oh yeah well, but uh, start yeah, to move like, on, but. Uh, 
Yeah, there's one thing that uh, I did find uh, interesting here, which is uh, uh, there's one blog I found where someone is sort of talking about a study, and he kind of brought out, uh, he was trying to kind of say at first that the, like, you know, the, the database that they drew from to determine that the temporal variety, you know, has shrunk since the 60s, mm-hmm. um, that the database is kind of skewed to, mod- to modern music, so there'd be like, some selection bias where songs from the 60s... Um, you know, uh, that like lasted or that we remember, those would be the ones that would be, you know, that would stand out. It would have sonic variety. I see. I but see. they wrote to the person, They, but he did write to the, the sort of uh, researcher, um, Sarah, um, and uh, he said, uh, the test of time bias might be there, but its influence should be small, according to him, because he said that the patterns and trends still existed over smaller windows of time. Like, music has gotten worse since 1997, 2007, you know, or less varied in timber, and the wow. same thing from 60 to 68. So it's okay. really just been this sort of like telescope effect. There isn't like really like you know uh, a dramatic jump per se. It's just like oh, slowly and slowly converging, inexorably um, going down, down, down. Yeah, according to that guy. Yeah, there may you know maybe there's something in selection bias thing, but I don't know. That is a. Uh, it does seem like it, if it's over, over all that period of time, then or over the short period of time, then yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, they're narrowing mm-hmm. it down to the ultimate, uh, you know, uh, Nazi for uh, Hertz for thirty eight, thirty two. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. sounds like another way to get the result that like Lynn and the Rouge claimed that the four forty Hertz was <laughs> going for, which is just like increase anxiety, like make you feel out of harmony with like your body and nature, like increase people being I mean, like fucking pissed blessing. off at each other. Yeah, one blessing of COVID is not having to hear pop music like as yeah. much, you know, like I, yeah, not completely, going into, uh, like, you know, wandering around in like open spaces and then getting blasted with like stuff like that. Like, uh, yes, yeah, you know, uh, it's been a blessing. Like, uh, um, yeah, it, I mean, we've mostly talked about like the sort of like uh, obnoxious, like sort of like. I'm like you know need to have like you know sex or whatever like a uh, type of like well, uh, you know yeah, y- not... young girl type songs, but there's also like the sort of sad boy song. Like uh, I remember there was that one like kind of like British guy song that was like uh, you know like Ed Sheehan. Uh, it's over, mate. Like you need to move on, mate. Like do you, do you remember this? Like uh, <laughs> no, you know, like, I I I, I, I you're right. All those British guys, the One Direction people, like they also yeah. basically have like the Ed Sheeran is another Ed Sheeran's the best example, like the male example of like an annoying fucking pop star that came up He's out of nowhere. Annoying. Who's like I'm in love with your buddy. You know, there's like shut yes, the fuck up. Yes, I was just gonna like, mention yeah. that an other yeah. awful song that I had to listen to a million times. It uh, also has that like dun dun dun. Dun, 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 dun. Like it's that, that that just like stupid like stabbing synthesizer like very simple melody just put on loop is basically like every song and it's like what are you paying these actually, people yeah. for like in these studios mm-hmm. like I could do that on GarageBand in like twenty minutes like what exactly is like the creative complex process in here besides like you have a ton of professional equipment and can like auto tune it to like a perfect degree which also does like that um, that flattens out like the subtleties of the harmonic waves 
uh, when you apply any kind of auto-tune to a vocal audio track. So that's yeah. another area where it feels, even if it's subtle, because sometimes, like, you know, like Isis, they put a subtle amount of auto-tune <laughs> on it. They don't go full T-Pain. Uh, yeah, and well, that right, that yeah, is okay. even more insidious in a way, because at least rappers use it consciously, where it's like, I'm just going to rap with, like, auto-tune turned up to 100%. And then, like, I'm going to use that as, like, almost like a vocal instrument in of its own right. It's kind of absurd, and, like, it, you know, a lot of people have used that to... Uh, you know, great at like Kanye and really did that and everything. But if like the subtle autotune is more insidious because you're actually listening to like a kind of like deracinated, like flattened sound wave that erases like the almost like subconscious imperceptible tonalities of the voice and it into like a fake perfection, a fake like a fake idea of perfection, which is kind of literally satanic. Like it's thinking yeah. that you can do better than God, yes. uh, basically <laughs> in crafting sound waves and you can't. So, um, um yeah, that's, yeah. uh, and also I just want to say as a last thing that everybody knows that baby queen is the next Taylor Swift. Uh, she's the only one uh, I'll ride with. <laughs> oh, babe, yes. uh, she's uh, the only songwriter who I think, I hope was... she doesn't sign the Faustian contract, but, uh, she has clever songs. And they're, they don't sound like this quite. (laughs) Do you remember that other song, um, you know, uh, that was like the, like, uh, pull the sheets right off the corner of the, you know, your roommate back in Boulder. Another one of rhyme between corner and Boulder. We ain't ever getting older. Do you remember that one? Uh, Uh, we ain't ever getting older. Only song played. We like, uh, yeah. Like, uh, it was like in the backseat of your, uh, you know, something. Uh, are you talking you about know, yeah. uh, uh, We Ain't Ever Getting Older by Halsey and Closer no. featuring Halsey? Closer by the Chainsmokers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Closer by the Chainsmokers featuring Halsey. Okay, yes. She's the uh, one who's saying yeah, she is a very, she is a slightly frustrating like vocal affect that like a lot of artists have now. Like, the, uh, like a little like goo goo aspect to her voice that is like uh getting popular now it's like a thing but i find uh, yeah, it to be well, a little course, bit yeah. like the, like uh, overwrought yeah, the, mm, yeah. Mm, well the well, the breathy vocals really like, they, like oh this song oh my god no i'm listening to it <laughs> now i'm getting thing. triggered this song is another great yeah. example it's horrible where the, the, the core like, like the post chorus yeah like like why is yeah, that doesn't um, even sound good? Like who are the fucking chain smokers? Like fuck off! Like you know yeah, what I mean? Like uh, this is like I crappy that, music. Uh, Justice Taylor uh, references the Eagles. Uh, they have a little reference to Blink One Eighty Two in the song. Uh, stay and play that Blink One Eighty Two song that we beat to death in Tucson. Uh, shout out mm, to the Stars Academy. That's uh, okay. Uh, that so at least like actually game. rhymes. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Two yeah. song and Tucson. Yeah, Blink-182 song, Tucson, yeah, that, that, that's a relatively clever That's good, rhyme. that's good, you know, like, uh, uh, credit where credit's speaking. due, you know? Yeah, uh, um, yeah, okay. but it's uh, interesting, I think... <laughs> for the blue bean. Uh, oh, yeah. well, last thing, yeah. did you ever hear that, uh, this is truly the last thing, did you ever hear, uh, like, that, uh, that most unwanted song and most wanted song thing? Um, no. It was like some band, uh, uh, artists Komar and Melamid, uh, and composer Dave Soldier. Basically, they like told people about the qualities of music that like annoyed them the most, and they made uh-huh. this song that was like designed to be like the worst song like imaginable. Uh, wow. And like you know. Uh, I see the I see yeah, this on like, here. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, like uh, there's a lot of like children. Like it's in, it's interminably long, and it's like there's a lot mm-hmm. of children singing. Like you know, like uh, there's one part where they're like Ramadan, Ramadan, <laughs> like like you know prayer and fasting. Like or something like you know, it's just like this grating children's choir singing about different holidays. But it's also maybe this speaks to my horrible taste in music, but it's also kind of the best song. Uh, and they made one that was people's favorite qualities in music, like called the most uh-huh. wanted song. That was just like literally like endlessly talking i'm kind about, of listening like, to it right now love. i the the, yeah. the kind the most unwanted song kind of slaps like it's so much yeah, better exactly. than the like any top 40 music and the most unwanted song is better than the most wanted song uh because the most huh. wanted song is just like endlessly repeating the word baby and say like uh the lyrics are like oh yeah every day i think of love and thank the angels from above they sent you into my world baby let me be your girl you know just they say baby all the time (laughs) there's one line that's like you know joey was a traveling man on a lane with a face like a baby you know because like they're trying to do like what people (laughs) say they like like, uh, yeah like uh you know they want to do like sort of guitar driven like you know uh male vocalist music but they just say the word baby endlessly too yeah it's pretty good anyway sorry (laughs) that's great that's great Uh, um all right all right we'll we'll wrap it up there but uh that was fun Uh, um yeah Just fine before I met you. I drink too much and that's an issue, but I'm okay. Hey, you tell your friends it was nice to meet them, but I hope I never see them again. I know it breaks your heart. Moved to the city and I broke down car Four years, no calls. Now you're looking pretty in a hotel bar. think of number stations especially cold war era ones i recently listened to the conet project all the way through and found them really fascinating and eerily beautiful beautiful and after digging on them i found uh some more i noticed they seem to have real psychological effects on some people that were discussing them like sort of universal creepiness 
it made me wonder if number stations were being used for more than just covert communication. I don't have anything to back it up, though. Do you guys have any takes? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I. Well, I'm. First? Uh, yeah. Well, I. I just want to say right off the bat, I was excited that somebody asked about the Conant project uh, because I stumbled upon it uh, kind of in my early day. I'm. I'm thinking like 2014 during my uh, studying like drone warfare and like the war in Syria and like various like CIA Pentagon things. I uh, stumbled across the Conant project and I, I found it in my iTunes library. I still have it. And I walked around listening to it like for a while. I found it very like hypnotic and spooky and interesting. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard any of it, but I'm sure you've I've heard definitely listened like to number, number stations. stations, but I haven't listened yeah. to this in particular. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's like really uh, fascinating and I don't know. Yeah. They do have a kind of like hypnotic, like trance quality uh, to them. And uh, I don't know. You know, the question of it, are they doing more to you than just like transmitting encrypted information? Uh, the one thing I could throw out as a potential thing is that I know that there was a classified NSA relay radio station that I believe was involved in like, uh, I don't know if it was like a numbers station per se, but I feel like given the overall nature of it, that it was that. And it was, this was in Liberia during the Cold War. And mm-hmm. it was actually a not insignificant aspect of, like, the United States foreign policy towards Liberia uh, as a sort of a geopolitical, um, you know, node point in West Africa during there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one of the reasons, I believe, why when the president, uh, uh, William Tolbert, in 1979, uh, who was a little bit frustrated by the lack of U.S. government uh, aid and support uh, for Liberia, uh, began to make certain diplomatic overtures to the Soviet Union and was exploring the uh, possibility of opening a, establishing diplomatic relations with the USSR and opening a Soviet embassy in Monrovia. And shortly thereafter, a, an illiterate army sergeant who was trained by the U.S. military named Samuel Doe uh, took over in like a military coup and uh, had all of the cabinet executed on the beach on like live television and allegedly ate the heart of William Tolbert and his wife uh, in a shamanic ritual to absorb his powers. Um, Um, (laughs) So not to go totally off, we'll we'll get back to Liberia one day, but the the Mm -hmm. presence of that number station was considered, and also it was a staging point for like, uh, you know, uh, covert ops in Angola during their civil war at this time. So it was an incredibly important uh, like jewel in the sort of African intelligence web for the U.S. uh, government. And uh, so that's the one thing i know of where you know uh that i know of, of kind of like a top secret radio relay station uh kind of played a role in the u.s was like very intent on even like a moderately soviet friendly uh you know regime or whatever in liberia was like absolutely unacceptable and that was part of the reason so i think and then also you know just the crazy dimensions of like the liberian civil wars that uh went on after that though i believe that charles taylor's forces destroyed the nsa station after like taking it over and that might have been a thing that like uh earned him a little bit of ill will in certain circles of the national security state um but i, I believe it was out of commission by the mid 90s but you know there's been all kinds of weird allegations of like uh kind of uh, like mk 
aspects of warfare in that conflict um again i'll get to that at a later day but uh that's hmm. the only thing i really know about uh uh in kind of more in depth i wonder if on one hand i'm sure that they are used for the purpose of instructing spies but i wonder if there are also other purposes for them especially after the phenomenon of people listening to them was understood like on one hand mm. i wonder if there are number stations i mean maybe the Connet project number stations they've like vetted them to ensure that they you know now they're known to have been involved in intelligence but i wonder uh if maybe you know there would be transmissions that like might have had some different purpose test something else or to or you know there might even be people who are like doing an art project or something or some kind you know something like that but like mm -hmm. uh yeah i mean the power of numbers and ciphers i mean i feel like we talked about this pretty recently like uh in our episode on hypnosis which i think maybe is uh relevant to the idea that they have some sort of psychological effect on people um yeah you know the idea of, of numbers having some kind of uh you know uh yeah i mean i definitely agree that number stations are creepy um you know i just uh yeah. in looking up the uh Connet project i found some article that was like number stations aren't creepy much like the dial-a-tough pass thing of like uh <laughs> thing of being, yeah, you know okay. uh, like they are creepy like they're yeah. like viscerally creepy like they creep people out because it's like a mechanical far-off voice like reading these numbers and like an eerie tone like uh yes you know uh so well just a, as a little example because i think they do get perceived as creepy i found one such example from 2017 uh and this is mm -hmm. a pretty emotionally charged article from the the british uh, express uh tabloid and it's uh, titled north korea sends chilling coded radio messages to south korea amid fears of world war three and i guess they no. had stopped for about like 16 years uh, I believe, yeah, they stopped uh, doing number broadcasts for about 16 years, from 2000 to 2016. And then they revived them. And uh, I guess it says, you know, uh, uh, Kim Jong-un's hermit state resumed broadcasting the eerie numbers via its radio station in Pyongyang last June, using them to direct their spies across the border in the south. But the ghostly broadcasts, which are usually broadcast at midnight. Ghostly. Was yeah, right? Which was aired last night for yeah, the wow, first time since uh, Moon Jae-in was sworn in as South Korea's new president. The new coded message was read out on Radio Pyongyang at 1.15 a.m. local time by a female announcer. She said she is instructing, quote, number 27 expedition agents to review their foreign language lessons, according to Seoul's Yonghap uh, news agency. The woman then called out a series of numbers, such as number 18 on page 451. Analysts are still divided over what exactly North Korea is using the codes for. Um, and, you know, of course, like espionage experts believe the radio transmissions are designed to give spies secret orders. They can translate using a cipher book. And I guess they broadcast a, a, as of this, like since they revived it in 2016, 36 different broadcasts. Uh, you know, one addressed the 21st exploration team and read on page 924, number 49, on page 14, number 76, on page 14, number 37. Uh, and I guess that's, uh, yeah, so that's like a recent example of them doing it. I also saw, interestingly, that there was a, uh, there was a Soviet number station that was being monitored, like throughout, that was discovered throughout the Cold War. 
and it changed its like regularly scheduled transmission during the August 1991 coup, attempted coup against uh, Gorbachev and uh, published like a kind of anomalous message, which uh, they, you know, would you would take that to believe that, OK, like this is in either under the control of like the people that did the coup or the people that were trying to stop it, but probably more likely the people that did it because they all came from the military. Mm. But uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I think that they're pretty fascinating um, in general and yeah. very mysterious. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they definitely have a mysterious air around them. I'm sure that like a lot of them are used uh, for like, you know, covert communication, but I wouldn't necessarily rule out that they could be used um for uh other purposes like uh either like to experiment like with the form uh or to sort of play mm-hmm. around with the phenomenon of public consumption of number stations or yeah. uh you know to yeah to test certain like tone you know because for instance like during the cold war period the idea that like a certain tone of voice um mm-hmm. could manipulate people or like subliminal information like you know, they might just put that in the, you know, sus music, uh, but, like, uh, the sus pop music that we were just discussing, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it might be, uh, the number station might be, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. I don't know of, like, any documented, uh, instance of that, uh, but, yeah, I wish I did, but, uh, yeah, I, I would say that, uh, I, I could see it, uh, especially, like, with the phenomenon of them being listened to by the public like we're, yeah yeah uh, well a, lo- a lot of people yeah. um speculated that when uh the dprk did it you know in 2016 and 2017 that that was basically like more about psychological like, warfare and like yeah like yeah psyop basically yeah yeah mm-hmm. which is like intrinsic to a number station and it's like you have no idea whether it's transmitting real information you don't know what to focus on like they could be reading like dummy broadcasts that mean nothing and then embedded yeah. like one out of ten mean something and you wouldn't really it's very hard to tell Mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> yeah um okay yeah we might come back because that, that's a cool like cold war psyop like numerology yeah, it, it ties together a lot of things mm-hmm. yeah i think yeah, we would have to find a specific angle, angle. maybe there's yeah. a story more about uh specific number stations or something um we yeah could or into that. the use of a number station for like a, a purpose beyond simple covert communication or something you know more yeah, complex that would the, be fascinating the, the standard explanation because if there were any kind of, like, inkling of... I could definitely see it, but there's nothing I know of that, like, you know, uh, says more than the, the standard purpose. I mean, it's basically, like, at this point, admitted that they have that purpose. So if, uh, mm-hmm. you know... Uh, you know if there's yeah did some of those mind war ideas that aquino had about like you know ultra low frequency uh waves and stuff does any of that apply on the global scale with these number stations um i don't know i don't know um but yeah yeah there are some mysteries Um, around them like i mean who ultimately operates them who owns that like how does you know how do these things work i mean we know like certain things but yeah yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay. But there's something inherently uh, think, fascinating about any enigma, especially any coded message. Uh, so for it sure. definitely is an effect of putting it out there. Like, uh, and you know, yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, we'll I think we can. Uh, yeah. Uh, moving along yeah. here. Um, we got uh, number ten. We got three left. Number ten from Pooh McDonald. 
uh, would be interesting to hear the host's thoughts on Kurt Vonnegut. He checks a lot of spook boxes. Cornell Dropout, who after serving in the Army, studied anthropology at UChicago, worked for General Electric, where his brother also worked on cloud seeding. Very interesting. Spent some time at the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is now like a confirmed CIA op. That said, he's still one of my favorite authors, and his novels seem generally critical of war and to an extent capital. Also interesting that a big theme of his is that you don't control your own reality, slash you never quite know who's really in control, which seems very SJ. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I guess we we haven't really brought up like Vonnegut before. I mean, we talked a lot about Pynchon, no. um, and they're kind of like it's somewhat it kind of like how Delillo and Pynchon share some things in common. I think that Vonnegut and Pynchon also they ser- share, they share certain com- in common. commonalities. They share things in common. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Have you I read a lot of Vonnegut? Like- yeah, I mean, well, a fair amount, you know, uh, I, like, uh, you know, read the big ones, like, when I was younger, like, Cat's Cradle, you know, I yep. taught pretty I recently, e- yeah. like, back when I used to teach, like, you know, creative writing, I, I taught, uh, and English, you know, I used, I taught, uh, uh, what's it called, Slaughter, Slaughterhouse-Five, you know, which is, okay. uh, you know, it's a good way to, like, teach literature, you know, it's a, a good, like, sort of accessible timely book that has like a genre hook you know so it's like i see why it's a uh a popular book like in that context of like teaching english you know uh that Uh people often use i do you know i honestly i would not have considered like the spook connection with kurt vonnegut without this question so that's like you know one thing out there but you know i can kind of see it a little Hmm. bit because like I mean, Me too. Pynchon also, uh, you know, Pynchon also was, like, puffed up, you know, he, like, hasn't, it's not like he's been, like, you know, attacked or, you know, really or meaningfully, you know, there's also, like, spooked up aspects to Pynchon, yeah. for sure. But, like, you know? Pynchon, uh, Pynchon so. draws attention to it in a way that you at least feel, you get, I don't know, I at least get the impression, many others do, that he, like, is privy to something or he saw something and he he didn't like what he saw and he's like dropping veiled references to it in his books in like a weird like specific kind of coded way and generally like his overall orientation feels pretty like skeptical of like the military industrial complex that he did kind of you know openly work for um whereas i feel like vonnegut I don't know. I, I haven't really, like, I'm a little bit like you. I, I read Cat's Cradle in high school. It was, like, assigned to us. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, liking it, and it was it was good. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was a good, like, oh, okay, like uh, the Cold War satire and stuff. But I never really heard as much from him. I mean, he was a much more public figure. He'd, like, give interviews and stuff. And I'm not sure. I guess he was generally kind of, like, an anti-war kind of person his novels kind of yeah. reflect that but there's maybe a little bit more i don't think people are uh, as aware uh of his um maybe these weird connections like i mean the ir writers workshop for one and then uh yeah i guess going to u chicago being in the army uh his brother working on cloud seeding technology which like reminds me of like the ice nine substance and cat's yeah, cradle a little nice. bit like yeah. and how it like mm-hmm. destroys the whole world like obviously it's kind of a metaphor for like uh, absurdist kind of metaphor for like nuclear weapons as well and uh i don't know he did get he did get a uh, guggenheim like fellowship really what it's like is the gray goo stuff i don't know if you ever heard about that but the idea of you know our favorite topic of the the nanites you know the idea of these self-replicating nanites mm. will like 
turn convert all matter into like some kind of gray paste like uh they'll like malfunction somehow like these sort of mm. self-replicating machines and they'll consume all matter to just self-replicate themselves and become this blob of nanite apocalypse yeah the uh the end of cast cradle is like very uh you know perhaps prescient of some of the the current i mean i guess it's been around for a while but the current sort of uh the the chomsky in line on the on the global warming stuff you know that like uh mm-hmm. one day the the world will just freeze over like uh when you mentioned the perfect storm i thought about the day after tomorrow like that movie where like they're out running the ice and everything not to say they do that in cat's cradle but like uh you know they're out running the cold and stuff but uh you know it happens instantly mm-hmm. in that book but anyway yeah like yeah, uh yeah like uh um yeah i think like uh what the only reason why i bring up pension is like just to you know leaving him aside like uh the possible substance of pension there is like a little bit like Vonnegut's much more accessible and i think that uh you know he's like taught to younger kids you know like uh he Mm -hmm. like uh i think he's you know uh, even though pension is celebrated i think Vonnegut is a lot more celebrated and uh you know uh very well known and i think that you know even though uh slaughterhouse five is definitely anti-war and that's good like but still ultimately like you know the official pose of like you know everyone's anti-war like being anti-vietnam i guess at the time it had a greater significance um so you know because they're you know yeah uh, people who you know but uh yeah but I mean, I, I think in terms of also like his politics, I do see here that he did say some things that were I mean, he was pretty uh, uh, he was pretty down on both like American liberalism and conservatism uh, and did say some nice things about socialism broadly defined. Uh, I guess he said that uh, he said he thought socialism could provide a valuable substitute for what he saw as social Darwinism and the spirit of survival of the fittest in American society, believing that, quote, socialism would be a good for the common man. Um, I guess he was a big fan of uh, Eugene V. Debs, uh, and he expressed disappointment that communism and socialism seem to be unsavory topics to the average American and believe that they may offer beneficial substitutes to contemporary social and economic systems okay okay like that's you know but that's chill like you know um i think you know was he was he like on paul robeson's level no um is he even on yeah it's hard to say what level pension is on but i don't know even though slaughterhouse five i definitely i think is definitely like implicitly like you know uh about vietnam in some ways like Mm -hmm. yeah released in 69 with the dresden thing and like that is something like of course like you know yeah, like the uh, it does have the sort of yeah, so about the Dresden thing and like you know the horrors of World mm-hmm. War Two. That's like much easier yeah. to reflect upon. Like at the time, it's not like incisive, quite incisive in the same way. Like you know, so that definitely is something that at the time even really like even though like, you could read into it like uh, you know, and I think that mm-hmm. people did read into it like uh, at the time you know uh, critique of Vietnam. Like you also could read that out of it easily, you know. So mm-hmm. I think it's like mm-hmm. safe in a way, which you know. But it, does that mean that like he was an intelligence operative? I don't know. But maybe like you know, or like you know, in, to that extent, the way that like you know, you might speculate about other artists or something like that. Like uh, you know, I don't know. Like, uh, but he was someone who was like sponsored, and I think that maybe it's something that has to do with the general uh, thing of the, the I would, you know, he's he's safe in a way, you know, the same way that like Foucault. You know, Foucault, like, uh, he's challenged certain structures, but 
there's something yeah, else yeah about no, for sure. that could, you could be said to be safe in a way because like you know it's di- he's much safer than like a doctrinaire marxist not that like having a doctrinaire yes. marxist not that a doctrinaire marxist would write a good book you know necessarily yeah maybe or a good novel did, yeah like, you know, yeah exactly <laughs> or, or, or that or it would like it. or that it would somehow like you know uh bring down like the the pillars of like american power or yeah. something like you know if you wrote the right book but you know you don't want right. to let things but like that kind of metastasize that, like, and get out of control expressionism at the time would be a is a great like you know representation of american culture in the cold war climate yeah uh slaughterhouse five is an excellent like you know expression of like american culture like at that time you know it's like reflective yes. it's creative it like you know uh deals with these like complex like philosophical ideas about like temporality and things like that you know uh but it has like a certain national character like you know so yeah you can definitely yeah see, no like, i think actually the promoted, you know yeah the yeah. fact that he went to the iowa writers workshop which like it'd be great to do a whole kind of dedicated uh, episode one day to like the cultural cold war um i think it was like francis stoner saunders wrote a, really, a pretty good book um about that in the last like 10 years and the iowa writers workshop was like a a really important node in the cultural cold war apparatus uh to promote kind of what you just described like a kind of creative dynamic like fresh free like libertarian kind of a uh you know style of american arts uh basically that could compete with you know the dead and formulaic uh you know styles of socialist realism like in the eastern bloc as they they kind of perceived it or wanted to you know cast it and so uh the cultural uh the iowa writers workshop i forget the name of the guy who founded it but uh he basically took i believe he took cia money through a cutout and he was an ivy league guy who i think had had sort of like pretensions of becoming uh, a poet um you know in his younger uh times uh i believe it, yeah it was paul angle that's what it was I, I believe that's what his name was yeah like he it says you know on the, it doesn't say this on the uh you know the the, the, the wikipedia article but read between the lines uh angle um under his tenure uh which he um so it actually started before in 1936 so it maybe didn't start whole cloth but then it got taken over and like after world war ii it almost got like enlisted and uh, that's when the Writers' Workshop became a national landmark. And Angle successfully secured donations for the workshop from the business community for about 20 years, including locals such as Maytag and Quaker Oats, as well as U.S. Steel and Reader's Digest. Between 1953 and 56, the Rockefeller Dona- Foundation donated $40,000. Henry Luce, the publisher of Time and Life magazines, um, and Gardner Coles Jr., who published Look magazine, provided publicity for the workshop's events. Um, and so like basically I think in that book, like the cultural about the cultural cold war, uh, Francis Stoner Saunders like digs up a lot of evidence that, uh, uh, Paul Engel was basically, uh, getting like a bunch of CIA money and kind of guidance and specifically was kind of like, they were setting this up. They wanted to bring in international students from like global South countries and things like that. And teach them like an American style of literature so they wouldn't be seduced by things like social realism 
or you know blatantly revolutionary things and that's where they really eventually started like pushing a lot of more like postmodern uh kind of approaches to writing and like steering away writers from like being really social uh writing like social commentaries and things like that strong aspect of like slaughterhouse five like you know really in many ways like you know like so it goes you know it's not Mm -hmm. like so it goes yeah you know it is like a lament in certain ways you know it's been a while honestly since i i uh have like read the book but i definitely you know uh have explored it like uh, a fair amount uh so like yeah, you know, it's not necessarily like a uh, call to arms or, or, or necessarily, you know, it uh, definitely uh, something that you can contemplate, but it certainly, like, you know, it's not like, uh, yeah, it's a very... Sort yeah, of I, I can't say for sure, but I, I think, uh, as you said, like, fitting, like, th- if these people kind of, like, this is a kind of, like, talent farm, right, uh, for... Mm-hmm you know, literary figures, uh, a lot of famous people went through here. And so like identifying somebody, uh, who is kind of critical of like the military industrial complex and like American foreign policy and like American yeah. culture and things like that. Uh, uh, you know, it, it only goes to so, show how, know, how like, open you are. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as exactly. long as he's yeah. not like really advocating for, he's, he's kind of swimming around in like murky enough postmodern waters that like, mm-hmm. you know, you're not getting like a, call to arms uh you're not going to get like you know an uncle tom's cabin situation where you get too many people pissed off and fired up um not you know not to say that novel obviously had a lot of problems but like you know what i mean like something that has like a really galvanizing effect and like radicalizes people like i think they were on the lookout for shit like that and would kind of like there was a very uh delicate kind of subtle process of like steering people in certain directions i'm not saying necessarily like vonnegut got steered in like a shit direction that meant that like his work was like effectively like neutralized or whatever but like these are just like the broader dynamics i think that were at play during that period and perhaps in a way that was like imperceptible to him uh that uh, you know he was allowed to rise his rise maybe a better way to put it is like his rise was like not prevented <laughs> you know like for yeah and it was promoted you know he got a like guggenheim yeah. fellowship and stuff you know and his book yeah, got to go to germany like, so that's a big breakthrough you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah like uh, weirdly yeah, also it, it is five, but yeah yeah a weird thing about cat's cradle which is uh came out in 63 is that he wrote it as like his graduate thesis at the university of chicago when he was getting a master's in anthropology and he was awarded wow, a master's really degree was <laughs> different damn right i mean like uh, what like you wrote a uh, you wrote a satirical like like uh, apocalypse novel and like that was your thesis to get uh like i would go to grad school right if i could now, just write a novel um, <laughs> what the you know, fuck like, see uh, that jumps out as yeah. a little odd like why would you the uh, what well i guess like, it's what not do you mean? odd because like the more we read like when chomsky's uh, claimed that his advisor never read his dissertation like or anything that he ever wrote <laughs> or whatever you know like uh yeah those people are like what do you mean like proof like what do you mean like rep like citing anything what do you mean replicating a study like you know uh or an experiment like uh yeah i just feel like yeah things have that's changed. a little uh, weird yeah people say that like wokeness has taken over and like the true standards have like gone away but um you know uh i feel like what uh, were these standards uh, um yeah apparently yeah. nothing uh apparently, like, how do you, like what the fuck does that have to do with anthropology 
I don't know. I really don't know. It uh, like it's just casually mentioned in like the Wikipedia article for uh, the alumni magazine obituary right here at, at U Chicago. Yeah, he was a graduate student in anthropology at U Chicago from 1945 from 1947. Left to take a job with the public relations department at General Electric after his first thesis was rejected as quote unprofessional. The university later accepted Cat's Cradle as his thesis and awarded him his AM in 1971. He commented to playboy that quote this was not an honorary degree but an earned one given on the basis of what the faculty committee called the anthropological basis of my novels i snapped it up most cheerfully and i continue to have nothing but friendly feelings for the university which gave me the most stimulating years of my life okay so that uh, that uh, makes so a little like bit more sense after he became famous they were like oh shit like let's just give him his degree yeah, like, and it must have been in 71 after, like, radicalism, like, the, I'm sure, like, the long march through the institutions had begun, and there were probably some, like, radical people that were like, you know what, like, let's, like, let's show how free we are, let's give, uh, let, let's give, uh, Vonnegut his degree for, yeah, uh, Slaughterhouse you know, Five uh, came whatever. out, like, pretty, yeah, he, like, you know, he was, after Slaughterhouse-Five came out, he was, like, famous, so, yeah, so that yeah, was two that years after that, so that would make sense, so, yeah. Yeah, um, and I guess it, yeah, it was originally. I wonder what his original like thesis was and why it was rejected for being unprofessional. It probably was Cat's um, Cradle, and they were just like, oh, let's give this, you know, maybe. But thing. he wrote it in in 1947, I think. Uh, so I don't know if he was working on it that early. Oh, but, I thought, oh, I just thought you said that. It, oh, so I guess yeah, no, he left. Yeah, so he, there was a huge gap, like of he left in 1947 oh, after his thesis was rejected, and he went to work for GE, and then got into writing novels and so like, went to Iowa later. and stuff. That's interesting. Yeah, like okay. way later, almost yeah, like like 20, uh, 23 years later or something, oh, uh, and then they gave it to him earlier or something. All right, that makes yeah, sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that makes sense. So yeah, I don't know. That's what it is. Okay, I think we can we can move on from there uh do you want to read number 11 sure i'm unsure if this has been answered before in some of the other music episodes but what are your thoughts on the band tool and their singer slash frontman maynard james keenan uh well as i mentioned before (laughs) you know i was a big tool fan uh in high school you know uh yeah i think i actually like got into tool because someone told me that like they were similar to radiohead and being like a like a great live band um you know they're not similar to radiohead like in any other practical way but uh you know and i I actually did see tool live in high school i saw them alone but i had great seats oh wow am i supposed to go my friend but we had like a fight or something some kind of like high school drama or something but like uh for some reason i think it went alone so it was not enjoyable and it was also like uh during like it was after they came up with that album Ten Thousand Days, which like wasn't very good. Like I honestly uh-huh. haven't followed them since that album came out, but in looking them up, I realized that they've only come out with one album since then because they just dig so long to make. Oh yeah, an album. Fear so, like, Inoculum from much. last year. Yeah, which is just yeah. a typical tool because that like sounds like so cool. Like you know, it sounds deep. Like you know, if you're like ten, like you know, or what, you know, like uh, when you're yeah. like uh, in high school, but. Uh, yeah, then you realize, I actually like, it means nothing. It means almost as little the, as uh, try to get under my skin while he's on mine. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, like uh, it is funny. I know, actually, uh, I, 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 I was not yeah. like. I mean, I, I like. 
I basically, I, I think like I said at the beginning of this, like my main association of a memory with Tool is just that like creepy uh, claymation video for Sober that was like really big in the yeah, 90s right. on MTV. Mm-hmm. And like that's like a, a vivid 90s like touchstone memory of like that video being on all the time. And like I guess that song's kind of like as far as like depressing 90s grunge goes is like pretty good. I actually saw them live as well. I forget what like the festival was called, but it was something in New York in like 2009 or 2010 maybe, and they were like a headliner with like My Bloody Valentine. And I remember kind of taking it as just like, oh, what? Like, Tool is playing? <laughs> like, okay. Um, <laughs> and, like, I remember watching that. It was like, okay, yeah, it was, like, pretty good. I don't really have, like, a super clear memory of it, but it was like, oh, yeah, I guess they're good live and all. But overall, I mean, the thing with Mater... I, I didn't know this until I looked up Mater James Keenan, but, like, I didn't realize he had this, like, weird, like, West Point, like, Army background. Well, I don't think he actually ended up going... I think that he was no like he, he he declined well I'm getting some I'm not gonna lie to do I, music, I um okay type vibes. Uh, uh okay hold up like I'm getting some Papa John Phillips vibes of like goes to the Naval Academy just like drops out for no reason and then goes like gallivanting around the Caribbean and like hangs out in Cuba like right before like the Cuban Revolution and like oh you know he, he just dropped out no big deal this guy it's like okay he he like watched the movie stripes in 1981 and yeah. aspired to join the army and I mean, like wanted to, uh yeah, yeah no it's terrible uh, the, I, the interesting stripes uh, I read is some a psyop that was uh, like he thought all wars were like oh you know what war was over and like we were gonna have peace or whatever i mean I I mean obviously well, he did you know, like, much drugs like and stuff like uh, I don't know like you know, m- much um, like much like PFC Angel Salazar in uh, De Palma's Redacted he wanted to get the GI Bill to fund his dream of attending art school so then he like went into the army and was a forward observer but then went to West Point Prep School from eighty three to eighty four um, which is weird because I guess like that means he like went into the army for like a year or two and then. Like, did he drop out of high school? No, it's a, yeah, he says he graduated in 1982. So then I guess he went straight into the army and then he went to like West Point prep school, which I guess is maybe uh, it might prep like enlisted people for like getting an appointment to West Point. And he did get an appointment and which, you know, is no small feat. Uh, it takes a bit of work like to get that. And um and then but then he just suddenly was like, I want to do a music career. Uh, I guess he, he was disillusioned with his colleagues values. And because he knew West Point would not tolerate his dissidents. Edgy. What, his dissidents um, in what way? Right. Like, I don't know. But being a Satanist, Generic like, I don't know. Um, well, uh, if he knew about Aquino, he would know that he'd be welcome in our army. Uh, very much I don't so. Even like, really he know could... what Maynard James Keenan's like beliefs are. I feel like he's like a generic, like psychedelic, like guy. Like, uh, yeah, I remember. Like, uh, I think it was mentioned in the Grotto that he, in one of his songs, sampled like an old coast to coast, taking it full circle back to coast to coast. Oh, I remember okay. he uh, sampled like some old coast to coast uh, recording on like one of his interminably long songs on one of his albums uh, towards the end, or one of Tool's albums. Uh, like the the one with the guy screaming about how like you know people are gonna be uh, thought controlled by like uh, what yeah like I remember the line what we're thinking of is aliens are actually extra-dimensional beings uh, that an hmm. earlier predecessor of our space program made contact with uh, okay. yeah um, 
but uh yeah i i mean yeah uh, so well, i feel like you he's know, like into like but i don't really know like yeah if he i don't know i feel like he might just i don't know he might be kind of a stoner who like does you know i, uh, I, I would i would quibble a little bit with ideas. his like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, hold on. I, I, I would, know. I would like, quibble a little bit with the. Like a... I would quibble with the, uh, the the description of him as psychedelic. I think he's like, he's kind of like new metal, grunge, like hard rock, well, like well, sort of metal. Like the, uh, well, think about the like you know the covers of like the Tool albums. You know, that's like Alex Alex Gray art. You know, Alex Gray. Yeah, I mean, no, I would say that like uh, there is a psychedelic. At, you know maybe not psychedelic rock and like the genre sense but there definitely is like you know a psychedelic after the tool and like you know i think that it is in a way music that like even though it's not the same stylistically as like you know the music that was designed for uh taking drugs and listening to uh you know in the 60s for instance it does that purpose is one that's very much implied uh for it um, uh, I yeah, I mean, I mean, like, I mean, there's, know. yeah, there's elements, uh, there, there's like the, elements the, 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 the in there. I mean, trust me, I'm the real tool fan here. Like, I think <laughs> I can say, you know, like, uh, I just, I just see yeah. them as such a downer, like, like post metal kind of like, you know, like they're, they're much more like in that world adjacent to heavy metal than they are to any kind of like hippie kind of thing. Like they're dark, like to, you, we can agree that tool is very dark, right? They're dark, um, but y- y- I think they're dark, but they're not, like, I wouldn't, I don't think that, like, uh, Satanism, it, like, they're not that kind of, like, satanic, like, metal, you know, they don't really, like, do the pentagram, like, thing, not to say that, like, you know, it's not, like, yeah, sort of, like, a, not to say that it's, like, uh, inherently, like, better. No, yeah, I don't, I don't mean, but, like, you know. like, literally, like, satanic, but, like, uh, they have a dark, like, kind of almost more, like, demonic, creepy vibe. Like, the sober music video is super creepy. Um, and then other videos yeah, of theirs, guess, like, basically. Maybe, but, yeah, like, uh, you know, for instance, like, uh, if you, like, uh, the album, like, Anima, you know, probably, like, uh, their most famous album, you know, uh, uh-huh the uh uh just the liner notes uh it's included references to dissociative anesthesia through ketamine as well as timothy leary futance ritual magic and religious fundamentalism uh you know Hmm. yeah so like there might be a dark vibe but like i think it's still like very much in that like kind of world um you know uh, yeah but i i don't get like a positive vibe (laughs) like you know i mean it's like yeah he's like uh doing dissociative anesthesia with ketamine and like i guess like uh i don't know yeah i guess maybe yeah stink fist uh you know anima like listen to the like the song titles like prison sex like they're all just like Uh, really dark titles i listened to this album today in preparation for this episode and i will say that okay uh, the song Enema itself actually kind of holds up a little bit. Uh, you know, I think, like, uh, you might appreciate that song uh, because it's just about, like, hating L.A. Uh, it's a song... It's it's oddly straightforward for a uh, Tool song because the lyrics for a lot of their songs are uh, very pretentious, uh, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, like... Uh, yes, yes, Enema they are. Is not. It's quite... Enema, Enema is a dark, downer, aggressive song about wanting everyone in L.A. to be killed by a tsunami. <laughs> um, but... Wow, like, just like Snake uh, Eyes. Uh, yes, yes, just like Snake Eyes. 
But you know, on this album, there's <laughs> also like uh, okay. There's also Third Eye, you know, where he continually for, for goes on for 13 minutes and he screams about prying open his third eye. Uh, I remember okay. Die von Satan, which is like a scary. Yo, yeah, I was just song, gonna bring up like, Die von Satan. What do you got to say about that? <laughs> Well, the Ayer von Seitan uh, is a puckish joke. Uh, you oh, know, it's uh, a puckish prank. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, it's That's a puckish a, prank. Yeah. Uh, mm, because it's, okay. uh, it's actually like a recipe for a cannabis edible or something uh, be, spoken in German. So, but it yeah. sounds like, I think it even says here yeah. that basically... Uh, that uh, basically the combined effects of the song uh, make it sound like a militant German rant or a Nazi rally. Um, but while the tone is aggressive, the speaker is merely reciting a recipe for a cannabis edible. Um, okay. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, like, ha ha, LOL, I'm a Satanist. Like, you know, uh, but I'm actually just a stoner. It's a certain vibe hey, of a period. Um, uh, you know, I'm not saying that uh, Tool is great. You know, I wouldn't necessarily listen to Tool like today. I mean, I did listen to Tool actually literally today, but only because we received this question. Uh, I haven't really listened to them in years. Like, it's actually one of those bands from my youth that I, like, have not... Even Radiohead I've gone back to more, even though I really haven't, as we mentioned in other episodes, gone back to them. Uh, But, you know, Smashing Pumpkins I've gone back to, like, a fair amount, even though they're one of the staples of my youth. But Tool... Not so yeah, much. Yeah, like tool very is a. And, uh, it's very but, of a time and place. Uh, also, like what's going? I did listen to a couple songs off Enema uh, a, a couple days ago. The one that really drew my attention was "Hooker with a Penis." What's that song about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, you know? I don't honestly remember. Oh yeah, I remember this. I met a boy wearing Vans. Right? Isn't it about like like a guy who was mean to him or like said like something that was shady to him? Uh, or like you know that. Um, oh yeah, uh, the insulted tool, and he said, "Yeah, yeah. he told me." It's a metaphor for a disgruntled fan. Yeah, mm-hmm. is it a metaphor? Or is um, it just a straight up literal story? Well, it, I guess the fan? lyrics reference the person depicted as a metaphor for a disgruntled fan who Maynard notes is wearing Vans, five hundred ones, and a dope beastie tee while sipping Coke, who claims he was OGT from '92, the first EP taken to stand for original gangster tool. I mean, I kind of like <laughs> the song. I uh, like. Uh, I mean, like, after uh, introducing know, himself, right, he proceeds I, to accuse Maynard of selling out, likely due to the softer music and commercial excess of 1993's Undertow. When asked if uh, he is sucking up to the man, Maynard casually responds that we are all the man. He points out the hypocrisy of such a statement by noting, all you read and wear or see and hear on TV is a product begging for your fat-ass dirty dollar. Keenan whispers in the left channel throughout the song. At 141, he whispers, consume, be fruitful, and multiply, which may be leading to Genesis, uh, uh, and the song concludes with some of the band's thrashiest playing and Danny Carey's fast double bass uh, footwork. Um, I, well, why is it called a hooker with a penis? It's a, I, what does that mean? I think that maybe uh, I don't know. I don't know. Why is he the hooker with a penis? Like shock? Yeah, I guess maybe he is the hooker with a penis because he. I mean, as he says, like. Um, I've got some advice for you, little buddy. Before you point your finger, you should know that... I can remember how the song goes, because I listened to it so many times when I was young, even though I haven't listened to it literally (laughs) in years. You should know that I'm the man, and if I'm the man, then you're the man, and he's the man as well, so you can point that fucking finger up your ass. Um, Yeah, all you know about me is what I've sold you, dumb fuck. I sold out long before you ever heard my name. I sold my soul to make a record, dipshit, and you bought one. (laughs) Wow, Uh, wow. I mean, it it doesn't get any Gen Xier than that. 
Yeah, yeah revolution by, of the method. Uh, I just yeah, think there's no way that, method, like, yeah. I, I'm not saying Tool is bad or that they don't have, like, any good music, but, like, to, I, I cannot say that, like, uh, they're not, like, operating they're swimming around in some sus vibes uh, like some sus oh, they dark absolutely vibes. are like and that's i don't think that it's even like up for debate that they're like swimming around of course in some sus yeah vibes i guess that's, that's what like i meant it's of... like they're so dark like like edgy and dark like that's really their their vibe yeah, right kind of like yes. nine inch nails or something like that like yeah it's all about nails, like right, misery yeah, alienation yeah. like depression like drug addiction just like bleh like everything sucks um yeah, etc. Well, which you know when also, you're uh, when you're a kid, uh, it's a tool than you would think. You know, like maybe uh, there is. I haven't listened yeah, to their their catalog more, as, you know. as extensively, and I never yeah, understood. I, I actually you, didn't I know that until that is the that's like the sheen over them. But there's more dimensions, and but yes, it's also it is very sus, and like it's similar to like you know. Uh, I mean, you can make a comparison to, like, uh, anyone in this general, like, milieu of, like, uh, you know, in this psychedelic milieu, you know, like, uh, but sometimes it's different where, like, uh, it's, uh, more like metal adjacent milieu. <laughs> Not. Uh, they're they're, right, they're much right. darker uh, than the other psychedelic stuff is dark but like in a veiled way like uh papa well, john phillips well, is dark may, but yeah. like he's pretending well, to be positive like, whereas tool's not well, pretending yeah, well, to be positive at all i think that's a part of like psychedelic still... as a uh, category in, in like uh popular music Maybe. is a kind of like Maybe. uh i mean Maybe. Like, there's I mean, a, I there's sometimes a tinge of darkness yeah, I don't know. Pretending to be positive is like an aspect of it. I mean, maybe like, but anyway, yeah. Like, I guess maybe the aspect of it is that there's like a hidden dimension uh, that you perceive in that type of music, where like the darkness is what's hidden under like a, a, a something of more positivity. But mm-hmm. like, uh, there's often more dimensions to that than than meet the eye. And in the same way, I think there are there are actually more dimensions of tool. I mean, there are some very positive tool songs, like t- songs that are so positive they're almost like just boringly mm-hmm. positive like uh pa- parable parabola mm, which is just like a love song okay. um or patient which is just about how you need to be patient uh the patient uh i believe it's called uh yeah cool. i think it's just about oh okay i mean stink fist like as like gross See, i'm already thinking about is. mk ultra when he says the the, oh, the patient uh you know like uh it's about getting electroshocked or something in like that weird like boiler room that like the little sober man uh puppet has to live in i you guess know? but i mean well all right but like yeah i, I guess like the patient <laughs> like whatever like there's lots of different patients not only mk ultra my point is that that song is incredibly like you know uh positive and not like about misery and darkness it's just about being patient uh okay like, you know, fair enough uh, fair enough uh, <laughs> well but, so you're saying there's like, like light there's light lurking under the surface of tool that i'm not that i haven't perceived necessarily yeah or that like uh in the same way like yeah yeah exactly and it's not one dimensional basically like in the same way that there i'm not saying there's light lurking under the surface per se but that like the same way that in other bands or in other genres perhaps the uh the surface perception is also illusory like the surface perception of tool is illusory. It doesn't necessarily mean that what's underneath is like not, you know, can't be described as dark or that's necessarily lightness, like, but, you know, uh, there's like, there's more uh, going on. And is that, I mean, the tools like sophisticated, like, I mean, not, I almost feel like they appear more sophisticated than they actually are. Like, I almost would say, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think that like, uh, yeah, maybe like uh, music, like, uh, you know, they see, like, the, 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 the Iron Von Satan is like a good example because. 
like you know it seems like an incantation like to the devil but it actually is like a eggs rest like a you know recipe or whatever you know like uh yeah that. it's a, the eggs or, of satan hmm yeah um eggs, we see eggs, eggs again yeah. i'm the egg man but exactly. yeah i mean uh, uh, totally like i would say that like you know in the general category of like being sus lords who like love to bleh around like uh <laughs> you know basically being a more successful version of morbid from the lisa lamb documentary <laughs> like i would definitely say like that's very true of tool uh uh-huh. but yeah like they're into pretty much everything but i yeah and it's also very sus that i don't really know like what I know that, like, Maynard James Keenan, like, flirts around with, like, you know, uh, uh, like, rich references of ritual magic and things like that. Um, yeah. You know, for instance, the title of 1,000 Days referring to the orbital period of Saturn. Uh, ah, you know, no. Um, All right. Wow. Uh, clock that for the, the Saturn episode. Um, very sus. Yes. Um, uh, what, is he worshipping yeah, that I mean, hexagon a- storm uh, <laughs> on the North Pole? Yeah, uh, right, yeah. Maybe uh, he is. Um, yeah, I feel like there is a very strong aspect to the Alex Gray, uh, con- like, you know, there's some a lot to that, because he's a really big, like, you know, all of their cover illustrations and, like, the art and stuff, and, like, you know, is has something to do with, like, DMT or, like, ayahuasca or, like, stuff like that, you know, like, uh, so there is, like, mm-hmm. a heavy uh, aspect to, to Tool for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of was... It's interesting, you know, maybe if you want to take, like, a spook angle on this with Maynard James Keenan dropping out of West Point, you could actually say that it's sort of a recalibration of a very similar, a very familiar formula that we can see in, like, the Laurel Canyon-type, you know, psychedelia that we talked about earlier, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, to, like, a slightly different, more 90s grungy it's the, the it's psychedelic yeah. range, you know uh, no it's true i mean yeah. and yeah there were psychedelic aspects to both grunge and like kind of new metal and like prog metal and all these things like they all had certain influences that kind of came i mean he did say that like Joni mitchell was one of his main influences which is kind of funny like uh, uh okay well yeah I mean, she, uh yeah that is i guess the way he sings thing, right? the way he uh, sings actually does on like sober kind of like reminds me a little bit of like that kind of like dramatic like like talking kind of thing uh, that that Joni Mitchell does sometimes. Um, yeah, did he explain uh, yeah. why Joni Mitchell? I mean, I I also like Joni Mitchell a lot. Uh, Joni Mitchell's dope. But, yeah, you know. I love Joni Mitchell, but yeah. uh, uh, I'm, I don't know. Did he explain um, what about her? He re- like, I guess he uh, said in multiple interviews. He's like talked about how Joni uh, Mitchell's an influence. Just for the I don't record, I, according to Wikipedia, according to the Wikipedia article on Tool Band, um, Tool parentheses Band. Due to Tool's incorporation of visual arts and very long, complex releases, the band is generally described as a style-transcending act and part of progressive rock, psychedelic rock, and art rock. Okay, uh, so it's not the it most... It, that, it's like a t- it's a secondary band. trait. Uh, it's not the dominant gene in their uh, their genome, but I'll, I'll give you that. It is an um, element. It is a prominent gene. I, I you, you argued with the Tool fan uh, about Tool. You I, got tooled. Fucking, I got tooled. Uh, yeah, I got yeah, tooled. I fucked around and I found out. right now uh, because you're insisting that like they aren't like fucking all about dmt and ayahuasca when they rub it in your face and scream about prying their third eye open and uh no you're right i mean i guess like i didn't know that they sang so much about dmt and ayahuasca because i was gonna cancel them for being narcophobic for making a song called sober that made uh like drug addiction sound like you're like a little claymation puppet man like trapped (laughs) in a boiler room Uh, and not like a 
totally cool lifestyle choice that maintains your work-life balance. So, um, fair enough. Yeah, um, we've got to do something about how Google, if you Google sober lyrics, like a fucking song by Demi Lovato <laughs> comes up. Uh, anyway, yeah. Oh, God. Um, oh, God. Um, yes. <laughs> anyways, uh, um, all right. I think uh, yeah, we so can... The um, lyrics to sober are kind of like the lyrics to uh, meet me in the middle, honestly. Why can't we not be sober? I just want to start things over. Why can't we sleep forever? I just want to start this over. Why can't you just meet me in the middle? <laughs> uh, oh, God. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it does kind of line up a little uh, bit. I don't know if that's a, yeah, a, a condemnation. Um, but, yeah, uh, I mean, there's more. I feel like there's, there, you know, I, I, I really could do, like, a, a uh, analysis of Tool's whole progression from the era of anima to uh schism which is like more pretentious or you know uh uh what was the album a lateralis where we had songs such as schism yeah. which are more pretentious mm-hmm. and like kind of like just uh you know abstract rambling stuff about uh you know uh one's not quite sure like vague things but i mean i also listened to his side projects too a perfect circle i was a huge a perfect circle fan uh, I was I never and this is this is gonna probably like piss you off. I never knew until like three days ago that like a perfect circle was like the tool guy. And I just thought it was like a different band that for some reason everybody was into in high school who I've like I've never listened to them and I just I'm found not as like remotely pissed off by that as I am by the <laughs> suggestion that Taylor Swift is incapable of composing music. Uh, <laughs> Fair so enough. Uh, Fair enough. No, but uh I mean, no, that's not offensive to me. I don't really, because I don't have any attachment to Tool now uh, at all. Uh, and, okay. like, even, yeah. like, when I would listen to Tool, like, uh, my attachment to Tool, like, was, you know, it, it was uh, fickle. Um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I know, I yeah. get it. Um, wow, I so actually I guess, just learned uh, that the, the title of the song in which the Art Bell thing is uh, sampled in um the coast to coast thing is sampled in uh it's a and the title is enochian for the voice of god oh my god is enochian language so holy shit uh, wow okay so he knows he knows um yeah he he knows knows for sure Um, i don't know what um anyway uh, yeah yeah anyways Um, uh, yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. all right sauce we'll move on to the last one there we go all right last question here okay so this is uh i don't know who i have it from is this, is this a new Grotto member that just slid in? Um, maybe. Let me check the let, Grotto itself. Yeah, let me th- I don't know why I didn't put the names on these last two. Oh, yeah, no. It's a, uh, it's a first-time asker. If I might have put these in here, yeah. M. Lewins is this one. And the last one was uh, from Jinji00 again. Uh, so yes, Jinji00, yes. That's a tool okay. one. This one is from okay. M. Lewins. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, so M. Lewins uh, asks, uh, uh, apologies if you've been over this already, but I was wondering where your thoughts were on the UFO phenomenon. I recently watched the Bob Lazar doc on Netflix and unacknowledged on Prime. They make some convincing uh, cases, but I can't shake the feeling that it is inherently untrustworthy, especially as many of the whistleblowers are ex-military or have spooky, spooky connections. Thanks. So, yeah, I mean... Um, we, well, we, don't worry about shaking that feeling, because uh, I think yeah. I haven't seen the Bob Lazar documentary, but I have seen Unacknowledged, and I that's definitely a Stephen Greer thing. So I understand why you felt it is. Yeah. that it was inherently untrustworthy, because uh, Stephen Greer is incredibly, like, sus. Like, uh, we yeah. did a whole episode about the guy who was prominently featured in that. Um, basically, like, it's his 
outfit like the whole thing like uh yeah that was our let me think uh the ce like uh close encounters of the fifth kind episode um Mm -hmm. that i forget which number it was but i believe we talked about yeah we talked about the ce5 documentary and and unacknowledged was like the the previous film he did like before that right i believe or maybe i'm not sure if i remember it might be 44 and we did an earlier one 24 20 episodes before that which was on about um, tom DeLonge's documentary which was what was that called again? yes uh phenomenon and just about oh the phenomenon stuff yeah. in general you know yeah yeah um, yeah so, so we i mean yeah, yeah we, like, we've, we've gone covered, into length on those eps about yeah, the the susness rivals, of these various figures you know? yeah they are they yeah. are they're in a sinister uh, dialectic right. um they're in a yeah, hegelian dialectic. So, yeah, dialectic yeah 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 um nothing new yeah, uh, uh and i i think the one thing we haven't stuff. covered yeah. the one thing we haven't covered yeah. yet is bob lazar um i mm-hmm. feel like maybe i watched that uh documentary on netflix i forget when it came I've out i've definitely um, heard of bob lazar you know yeah i've I watched his old like vhs uh, tape from like 1990 or whatever when you know he first like exposed this stuff and i've heard him on joe rogan before it's one of the only times i kind of listen to joe rogan um but he's gone on there a couple yeah. times and you know uh, i mean it, it's I, I i have fun with the bob lazar story really don't know because he can't like the the real crux of it is like he can never quite prove it even though it's like like he even took a video of like a piece of this technology that like he did in his garage but like he lost the video and it's like come on man like what the fuck like you know like uh it's like oh i just looked around in my storage unit and i just can't find it and it's like oh you mean the one time you got you built some alien technology in your garage and got it to work like you lost the tape like come on but um i don't know like uh you know what i mean what's your impression of bob lazar generally yeah he is like a limited hangout or something uh it must be must be uh yeah he pushed like the grays the zeta reticuli thing you know which i feel like is like the the standard limited hangout line so i feel like yeah i don't know he's kind of like the original philip snyder because he also did he talk about uh, underground bases? I believe that he did, or maybe it was just that he talked about. Well, like, he talked about S four, which was, he was a, a government whistleblower. Maybe that's why I'm, I so I think of him as. He being, was like, an engineer that was brought in to work on yeah. one of these supposed uh, crashed UFOs, and like I guess he says he went to MIT, but then as a result of coming out and going on like local news in las vegas and like spilling the beans they somehow arranged like erase his entire academic record so now people can't even verify that he went to mit yeah chomsky did it chomsky went in there like (laughs) yeah this guy is not a serious scientist in my book agent agent chomsky uh the file (laughs) (laughs) he 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 unplugged the cord that was sticking out of his pant leg uh, from the wall and like went down to the registrar's department (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah that's cool um um vonnegut's dad also worked at mit by the way i didn't mention that but Mm. mm, interesting uh but uh yeah bob lazar like there's just a lot of like gaps in the story and i think it's like he's a fun and kind of funny person to like listen to talk about the stuff though he did i i think his interview on joe rogan was like the bizarre story and the phil snyder phil schneider story because if you do then why is bob lazar still alive 
Yeah, I mean, you could say that. Like, why haven't they killed him or something? But then, well, you know, I mean, it's the classic, like, well, if they killed me. Maybe because yeah. Bob, well, but that's the whole thing. Like, that's the whole thing of him being a limited hangout. Like, you know, if he's alive, they want that information to go out there to cover up the deeper truth. If you believe both, you know, you have to pick one. And I feel yeah. like Phil yeah. Schneider, even though there's there's definitely questions about that, is still more believable. You and think like, Phil Schneider is more believable? Than Bob Lazar. Hmm, interesting. I, I don't know. I, I was always impressed that Phil Schneider was, like, pretty unbelievable, like, in general. <laughs> yeah, I um, mean, the story is wilder stories. The story is unbelievable, but I could believe that there's something up with Phil Schneider. Like, you know, because oh, of yeah, his yeah, dad yeah. being, like, a Nazi submarine guy, like, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Bob Lazar, I could see, I guess, like, you know, he could be, like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, Phil Schneider, I could see him being, like, you know, privy to something, like, deeper, or, like, maybe even being killed, like, you know. I could see that Phil Schneider, like, maybe was killed, like, because there was something he was getting at. I don't know. I don't know how to explain the story of getting zapped <laughs> by, like, a, a gray that, like, rubbed its belly and, like, blasted him with, like, a... As, like, a Delta, Delta Force operator, like, pushes in. you in the... Like, get in the elevator! Yeah. Save yourself! And then, like, gets blasted yeah. in the chest. <laughs> like, Yeah, you know, I don't know. Uh... <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, you're, you're right. That is... That's not necessarily more believable, but, um, uh, <laughs> you know, on its, on its face. Uh, but, like... I don't know. I don't know. I'm not... Uh, yeah, I'm more... Uh, but at least he did, like, die under mysterious circumstances. And he did have, like, a father, Otto Schneider, who was, like, a... Uh, yeah, you know, a Nazi, Nazi U-boat commander. Uh, yeah. Um, who possibly developed, like, a theory of nonlinear time or something. Uh, you know... Uh, I wonder if he was... I wonder if he was one of the Nazi... Yeah. is definitely a grift. Like, there's no, like... If you're, like, a UFO believer, like, or if you're, you know, you believe there's something to the phenomenon, like, you know, or if you believe, like, even if you believe that it's E.T., even if you believe the E.T. hypothesis, where I feel like in general, you know, correct me if I'm wrong about uh, where you stand, but I'm pretty sure that on this podcast we're both very anti-E.T. hypothesis. Uh, we're down with the gin hypothesis uh, in this house, although, you know, we leave all... Yeah, We yeah. leave all doors I, open. I'm, I'm but, kind of a... You know, I'm, a, I'm uh, a more of a yes, gin, and uh, kind of person, but I would put yeah. more stock in a kind of interdimensional like uh, a liminal being theory than yes, like a gray hopping yes, into a spaceship and like improv. flying yeah yeah um, <laughs> first yeah, rule of gin like, improv yeah uh. uh but yeah like um yeah but like uh you know but of course i mean i think we both agree that there's definitely like uh uh, psyops like uh, and manipulation of the ufo community that's been documented over like decades like you know uh by government agencies that's incontrovertible yeah yes. definitely known yes. uh yeah again i would refer you to our ufo episodes in fact when this comes out it hasn't come out yet but by the time this comes out mothman will be out which is another episode that goes into the ufo phenomenon so i would also recommend it does so to my one, surprise it will, did yeah so you'll yeah, you'll get be, more on that yeah. and that that also go, we got into aspects of like uh, you know mibs and agents or people impersonating agents or people showing up to psyop people and just like a wilderness of yeah. mirrors around all this shit mm -hmm. yes yeah. uh but yeah like uh so that's definitely going on so i feel like even if you believe in the et hypothesis you gotta think that this guy is like you know some kind of disinfo agent or you know like he's just completely a grifter like even if you believe like in the 
in the ET hypothesis, like, you know, he's just... Cause yeah, like, I, I, I feel like he's... I don't know how much money he's actually made from embarking on this, like, career as, you know, I guess maybe you know, grifter is the wrong word, but, like, attention seeker. I mean, I'm sure that there's mm. he's gotten something out of it, you know? He, he has a book. Yeah. He must have a book, you know? Yeah, uh, and, and a couple movie, yeah. couple documentaries, you know, that are now, like, one of them's yeah. on Netflix. He probably was involved in, like, producing it, so yeah, he Yeah, I'm sure they gave him, like, a little that. honorarium to do that, like, you know, which would probably a yeah. to them, but significant to uh, any one of us, you know? Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, it's yeah. possible. In 1990, yeah. he was arrested for aiding and abetting a prostitution ring. This was reduced to wow. pandering, to which he pleaded guilty. Oh, weird. He was and in Nevada, of all places. He was hours of community service, stay away from brothels, and undergo psychotherapy. Um, this stay is away from brothels? Like, what was he this doing? Is... Was he trying to, like, recruit women out of the brothels in Nevada? Because they're legal there. This is weird. Uh, this is even uh -huh. weirder than that, perhaps. In 2006, Lazar and his wife, Joy White, were charged with violating the Federal Hazardous Substances Act for shipping restricted chemicals across state lines. The charges stem from a 2003 raid in United Nuclear's business office where chemical sales records were examined. United Nuclear pleaded guilty to three criminal counts of introducing to interstate commerce, aiding and abetting introduction into interstate commerce, banned hazardous substances. I guess his thing is United Nuclear. That's his company or something. United Nuclear. Right. Okay, that's weird. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe we'll we'll stumble across him in one of our future US, UFO apps and dig a little deeper into all that business because that's bizarre. This is yeah. This is also a bizarre. Th this is just from Wikipedia, you know. So this isn't like you know the kind of deep research that we will do. Maybe when we do an episode on him. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, in 2017, Lazar's workplace was workplace was raided by the FBI and local police which Lazar theorizes was to recover Element 115, a substance he says he took from a government lab. Records obtained through a Freedom of Information request show the raid was part of a murder investigation. Wow. What, what the fuck? Wow. He did actually predict that Element 115, back in, like, 1990, he predicted that there was this new element that they were working with there. And then I think, like, to, I don't know, 25 years later... Uh, I forget what it's called now, but it actually was kind of like confirmed and added to the periodic table. Um, Moscovium, that's what it was. Synthetic chemical element, uh, MC-115, uh, recognized in, uh, uh, yeah, found in 2003 by a joint team of Russian and American scientists at the Joint Institute for Nuclear Research in Dobno, Russia, uh, and was recognized as one of the four new elements in December 2015. It's extremely radioactive. Uh, and, um, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly like what, you know, it's but like used for or anything. The fact that there is an 115th element and like the element 115 that he claimed to have taken from a, a lab, like the properties of that element, like probably aren't the same as, uh, yeah, like, I think, but I think he's claimed that it's the same element. <laughs> so, uh, I'm I sure, think, yeah, um, I guess so. All right. I guess so. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there now some people, you know, feel like it, it's been confirmed and like, uh, element 115 is like dangerous and it's as alien origin and, you know, it could be used as a weapon, et cetera, et cetera. It its own uh, gravitational field, its own anti-gravitational field. And it's what you use to lift and propel the craft. Uh, uh yeah. yeah, it's I don't so know. Like, you know. That. Yeah, he claims that element 115 is the fuel that was used in the UFO that he worked on. 
Yeah. Hmm. I guess uh, we had a customer a few years ago that murdered his wife. FBI, local law enforcement came with a warrant to get our records on him. We provided them documents and all the info we had on him. Uh, so there's somebody, a customer of his murdered somebody? Apparently, yeah. And they provided some. This is a long uh, story, but well, I we'll, uh, you know, we can wrap up. We'll go into it yeah, later. Uh, let's wrap yeah. up. We'll, we'll leave people with a. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, you can to, look into uh, it for yourself, I'm sure. We you do know, a full dive. I, can, I didn't know about this until literally just now, so nothing I could tell yeah. you now is something you can't learn yourself. Uh, yes, uh, um, exactly. We'll eventually um, explore it. Um, yeah. We will. We will. I'm We're, sure. Our eyes are fixed uh, on the potential blue beam, yeah. you know, situation. On the skies. So, on the skies. Yep, we will. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. So I think uh, we'll we'll wrap it up there. Uh, big thanks to the Grotto once again for yes. providing some very quality uh, grist for the mill. Some good queries. Yes, definitely. It's very uh, appreciated. Um, yeah, if anybody would like to uh, get in on the next Q and A, uh, we do these every yeah. month. You can uh, sign up on our Patreon on the All War Frequency. You can get access to the Grotto Discord, which is uh, just you know crackling every day uh, with you know spicy commentary and good takes and yes. good vibes and uh, you can go into the question sub chat there you ask a question we will answer it yeah yeah we yeah, got a premium content coming patrons out for a little while so we're trying to like get over like you know just the 89 so if anybody out there yeah if you just want to remove this nazi curse from us that'd be great yeah we yeah. have a nazi curse lingering on us so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so uh um, inshallah yeah, we, we'll we'll transcend it this month um yes inshallah but that's where uh yeah that's where you can submit your questions and uh as always we'll go in hard and maybe go a little too long and yes. whatever but <laughs> you know uh we got some good stuff today some good stuff about music uh yeah we got some good stuff islamo marxism like good shit all around yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah good Word. stuff um, um all right so uh we're gonna get out of here now but yeah. uh watch out for the bermuda triangle you know uh, yep um yeah um, watch out for uh, watch out for sock loss as always. <laughs> watch um, out for sock loss. Like keep your eyes fixed on the sky. It's our, uh, yes. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, don't over compress your music if you're somebody who makes music. Uh, don't like compress the uh, you know the what's it called the timbral like range of it and strip yeah, out the soul of your music. Your ranges. Uh, yeah, and. Uh, the word alive has two syllables. Uh, you know. Alive. Yeah. Yeah. Stay away from MK's yeah. CBS music at all costs. It's yeah. poison. It's mind poison. It's degraded. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's satanic. Yeah. MK, MK music is like a good designation for that genre because it does elude classification otherwise. It's simply MK Yeah, music. yeah. I mean, just go uh, look at everything. Every Vigilant Citizen article, you could find yes. uh, the subgenre that we're referring to pretty... It lines up pretty perfectly, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, stay, uh, stay safe out there. And until next time, dear listeners, uh, stay vigilant. Peace.